When your legs don't work like they used to before And I can't sweep you off of your feet Will your mouth still remember the taste of my love? Will your eyes still smile from your cheeks? Darling, I will be loving you Baby, my heart could still fall as hard at 23 And I'm thinking about how people fall in love in mysterious ways Maybe just the touch of a hand Well, me
Ed Sheeran, Thinking Out Loud from 2014. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. This is Todd Tandruff Wattellis. I host this show every week. And you might wonder, you might be thinking out loud, why did I play that song? Because that's very unlike me. Most of my music that I play on this show comes between 1955 and 1989. So why am I playing for, why am I playing something from just last year? And I will tell you, it's because one of our regular listeners asked me to play this song. He asked to have this played and offered to donate to the free roll in exchange for having this played. Uh, when I heard the reason that he wanted to have this played, I decided to go ahead and do so. And that is because it's dedicated to... Uh, it's dedicated to his fiancée, Carrie. And this is Scott from the East Coast who's getting married very, very soon. So that is dedicated to her. And uh, I hope that uh, I played the right song because <laughs> I don't know it. So <laughs> if I if I played the wrong song, it's by Ed Sheeran, then uh, I apologize. But that's what I thought I was supposed to play. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, you know, I wanted to do this for a regular listener who is getting married soon and seems to really, really be into the woman he's marrying. And you could say, well, everybody's into the woman they're marrying or they wouldn't get married. But I can tell by reading this guy's Facebook status and basically seeing where his mind is. And he, he really seems into this girl. He really seems like uh, he found someone that... Uh, he feels he's going to be very happy with for the rest of his life. I, I don't want to sound too sappy here, but uh, I, I've been impressed observing him and his relationship. And uh, so he wanted me to play that, and he listens every week very loyally. So I figured, what the hell, even though it's not the type of music I listen to. So, again, welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio, the Druff and Friends show. I don't know if we're going to have a co-host tonight. If somebody wants to join in, they can. Uh, we switched to Thursday night because Brandon said he could make it on Thursday night. But as I've said before, when Brandon's on the show, it's infinitely better. And I love having him on the show. And I think just about everyone who listens agrees. But the one strength Brandon does not have is consistency. <laughs> Where he'll be on for a while and then he'll disappear for a while. And... Since he hasn't appeared very often on Thursday, for whatever reason, then uh, if he doesn't come back to the show soon, then I'll move it back to Tuesday. So I apologize for the schedule jumping around, but I've noticed our ratings have gone down since we moved to Thursday. So I guess Tuesday is probably a better night for people, even though Thursday is actually a little better for me. But I'll probably move back to Tuesday. Just for the listener's sake. So our ratings go back up in pursuit of the almighty ratings. I'll move back to Tuesday soon if Brandon doesn't start reappearing on the show. Brandon is not obligated to appear in any way. He's doing it because he wants to. So I'm not mad at him or anything. It's just uh, that's the reason we moved to Thursday. And if he's not going to be able to make it, then there's no point to have moved here. 
So, as usual, the schedule of this show is very erratic. We have a free roll tonight, starting in six minutes. A very large free roll, at least by our standards. It is, you're not going to believe this, the free roll this week is... One million dollars. What if that were true? What if I actually had a million dollar free roll just out of the blue? Like, how happy would you be that you were listening to the show? Like, if I had a million dollar free roll, I probably wouldn't announce it. I'd probably just have it. I mean, I would never donate a million of my own money, no matter how much money I had. I could be like Bill Gates. I still would not have a million dollar free roll for you guys, I promise. But if somebody else donated a million dollars for the free roll, I probably would not announce it unless the person demanded I did. I would just have it, and then whoever was a loyal listener to the show would benefit from it. But no, it's $150, and the money this week came from Slow Roll, who gave $64 to the last minute, very generous guy. Handicap Me, who gave $50, and he put one condition on that money. He said, the money cannot be won by either Jay Searles or Garrett. <laughs> So, okay, I said you can do that. If you don't want your money going to people you don't like, then specify who they are and they won't win your money because it's your money and I do not feel I should have the right to tell you what you can do with it. So if Jay Searles or Garrett wins any of the prizes tonight, then I will have to divide their prize by two-thirds and give the remaining one-third to the other prize winners because Handicap Me gave a third of the money this week. Other money this week came from Flipper Fair, who gave $11. SMI Florida, a frequent donor to the free roll, gave $20. And Daily gave $5, which adds up to $150. So the prizes tonight, we pay five places. $70 for first, $40 for second. That often exceeds our top prize. Third place gets $20, pretty healthy. Fourth place gets 12 and fifth gets 8 so we're paying five spots, starting from $70 at first place. So good free roll tonight. And we've had a smaller group in the free roll because it's Thursday. For whatever reason, we have fewer free roll players on Thursday as well. So you have a good shot at winning the money tonight. And it's not huge money, but it's a nice thing to win. It's cash. I'll send it to you pretty much whatever way you want. PayPal, bank transfer, Bitcoin if I have them, cash, check, whatever. I prefer to. Do it by PayPal. So if you have PayPal, please make that the way you have me pay you. But uh, if you want it some other way, I can accommodate it. It will be cash. It's real money that you'll get in a real form, not some crappy online money that you may never be able to cash out. We have this every week on Poker Fraud Alert, and the money comes from our listeners, and I appreciate that. I'm very happy that we have successful listeners. I'm glad that we have a listener base of people who do pretty well at whatever they do in life, whether it's uh, owning their own business or working a well-paying job or being a good poker player, whatever it is that brings in some good money, and that these same people are also generous and that they try to give back to the community that is attached to this show, which they find entertaining. So very good. I'm, I'm very happy about this. Very happy when you have these there's free rolls, especially like 150 bucks. It's pretty amazing. If you want to call into the show tonight, and by the way, uh, if you want to qualify for the free money, please go to pokerfraudalert.com slash free roll. That's pokerfraudalert.com slash free roll. 
all lowercase, pokerfraudalert.com slash free roll and read the rules. Because if you are not familiar with the rules and you win the money, you will not qualify to get the money. So you have to read those rules to understand how to qualify for the free money. The good news is it's easy. You only have to do it once. Pokerfraudalert.com slash free roll. It starts at 8.10 Pacific time, and you have 25 minutes to get in there in late registration. The phone number to call the show tonight, as always, is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. That's also the text phone number. If you want to text me during the show, I will read your texts on the air unless you ask me not to in the beginning of your text, so be careful what you say. If you send me a troll text, I'm not going to read it, by the way. I'll probably just block you. And by troll text, I don't mean a text that doesn't agree with me. I mean just one that's sent to be purposely insulting and get me mad. Though if you want to send a text as a joke uh, or something like that that's insulting but not really, really nasty, I'll read that too. We're just talking about if you would just want to troll me on that number, I'm not going to read your text on the air or even receive it. I'll just block you. But everybody else, 775-372-8355. And you can also call the Mount Charleston line. The Mount Charleston line is an old 70s rotary telephone that sits on top of Mount Charleston, which is a mountain near Las Vegas. That phone number is 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808. You cannot text that number. You can only call it. Whichever number you call, make sure to show your caller ID or you will not get through, I guarantee you. If I don't answer the phone when you call, don't worry, just try back in about 15 minutes. And I'll probably answer your call then. It just means I'm busy. You can chat in the chat room. You need a flash-enabled device, meaning no iPhone or no iPad, but any other device that can do flash. You can get in there. You also need an account on the Poker Fraud Alert forum to get in there. You will not really be chatting with me. You'll be chatting with the others who are listening live. That's the only time the chat room's active. I don't really read it all that much during the show because there's too much for me to do. I have a new thing to announce for this week regarding two features that I have added to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. And I think that some of you will really find these things useful. First of all, I have added 24-hour-a-day, 7-day-a-week live streaming of random reruns of Poker Fraud Alert Radio to PokerFraudAlert.com. So basically, if you go to the radio page on Poker Fraud Alert, anytime, 24-7, you will hear the radio playing. But if it's anytime except for when we broadcast live, you'll hear a rerun. It could be a rerun from 2012, 2013, 2014, or 2015. It's going to be random. I was doing this all week leading up till now, and it's been working. Sounds good. So I decided to go even further and add a second feature to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. And that is a call-to-listen phone number. What's a call-to-listen phone number? Well, that's a phone number which you can call from any phone. It can be a cell phone. It can be a landline. It can even be the old 70s rotary phone that's on top of Mount Charleston. Anything in the world that can dial 
can listen to Poker Fraud Alert Radio now. You don't need an app. You don't need the internet. You don't need a smartphone. You just need a phone that can dial. And this number you can also use to listen to the streaming reruns. That phone number is 712-775-8162. And if you forget it, you can go to the radio page. It's right on there. 712-775-8162. Try it right now. Don't worry, you're not going to busy it out because it pretty much has unlimited lines. So a whole bunch of you can listen to that phone number at once. Now, you're not going to reach me ever on that phone number. You cannot reach me. You cannot leave messages there. All it is, it's a phone number you call, and you listen to whatever is currently on Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Right now, it would be the live show, or if it's not broadcasting live, it would be something from our archives that has been chosen randomly. But it is broadcasting on that phone number 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 712-775-8162. Now, when I announced this, some people met this with skepticism. They said to me, why would anyone want to use this? What's the point? Doesn't everybody have smartphones nowadays? Doesn't everybody have a computer they can use? Who would need to listen to Poker Fraud Alert Radio over the phone except perhaps Ken Scaler? So I said this. We actually have several listeners who have a need for this. First of all, Android phones don't work very well as far as listening live. You need to download a separate app, and some people, they they don't really understand how to do it because they're not very technical, whatever. Uh, Second of all, there are some people who are driving when they're listening to the show live and don't have the best internet connection on their phone because it's a lot easier to have a decent phone connection for your cell phone than it is to have an internet connection, especially if you're driving through an area without very good reception. Also, there are some people without smartphones. Yes, it's true. There are some people who have cell phones but not smartphones, and if you're out somewhere and you want to listen to Poker Fraud Alert Radio, you have no way to do so if you don't have a smartphone. So now you do. Now you just call that number and listen. And it's also just easy. You don't have to start any app. You don't need any streaming. You don't need any internet. You don't need a computer. You just pick up a phone and dial this number, and it's right there. It's really easy. And I found the sound quality is pretty good on it. So 712-775-8162 is the phone number. You'll probably get the best results if you mute the phone after you call it, because there's no point to not mute because you have nothing to say to it. There's nothing you can say to it. It just plays to you. So setting all this up was not easy. This took some effort. I, I spent a good deal of time this weekend setting both of these things up. I, I basically had to, to build this stuff here. I didn't build it all from scratch, but... Uh, Uh, Getting this all going was not just like flipping a switch. And I don't know of any other poker or gambling internet radio show that you can call up a phone number to listen to. I don't know of one. So I'm just giving you another listening option. As I said, it's on the radio page, the phone number. So if you forget it, no problem. So those are our two announcements for Poker Fraud Alert Radio, and you know, I'm always doing things to try to add to this site and make it better. On the forum, for example, I recently added the ability to embed tweets, to embed Vine videos, and to embed Instagram into your posts. And that's been a pretty popular feature. 
So I always want to do things that make the experience of using Poker Fraud Alert or listening to Poker Fraud Alert radio better. Because I know as a user of other sites, I find it irritating when something I want to do can't be done or when it's difficult to use a site or whatever. So I, I think I want it to be an easy and pleasant experience to use the site and to listen to the radio. And if it's not, then I've failed. Take a look at the chat room here. Uh, where's the flashing on-air icon on the radio page? Well, I see it. It's flashing. Someone's asking me in PM. Desert Explorer saying, I listen to Poker Fraud Alert Radio on my Commodore 64. <laughs> That's actually a computer from the mid-80s. Early to mid 80s, if you guys remember. Very popular Commodore computer. I actually had the predecessor to that. I had the Commodore VIC 20, which was inferior, but that was my first computer ever, the Commodore VIC 20. But I got to know the 64 pretty well, too, because it's similar to the VIC 20, and some of my friends had a 64. I was jealous of them. If the on air thing is not flashing for you, I don't know what to say. Just reload the page. I mean, it's not really important. It doesn't really matter if it's flashing, but. Like, I just loaded the page again just to be sure, and it is flashing. That's the one saying, I listen on my Amiga. That's another Commodore uh, computer of the 80s. I wonder if there is a way to listen on a Commodore 64 that's been modified in some way. Probably not. Probably not. But it's, it's amazing what some people manage to be able to do with some of these old computers. Darkstar saying, I pissed away nine months of my life playing Ultima 4 on my fucking Commodore 64. Yeah, I used to play Ultima 4. I remember that. I played that on my IBM AT, which was the successor to the IBM PC. A whopping uh, 6 megahertz. Anchor Draw in chat saying he still owns a Commodore 64. Hmm. I don't know what happened to my VIC-20. It's one of those things that just kind of disappears over time. All right. Let me give you the agenda tonight of the show, and then we will get going. Brian Mikon was officially sentenced today, not today, this week, for running Seals with Clubs, a Bitcoin poker site. I'll tell you what that sentence was and whether there were any surprises there and how I feel about it. Of course, Brian Mikon was my former business partner and radio co-host for many years. Not on this site, but on two previous sites I was involved with. We were once very good friends. Now we're pretty much the opposite of that, as what sometimes happens with friendships. He was an even better friend of Brandon's, and they are not even close to that anymore either. So uh, obviously the story has a bit of a personal impact to me, so I will comment a bit on that. The big story, though, this week is about poker stars. Now, I try not to talk too much about the non-U.S. facing poker sites because most of our audience, not all of it, but most of our audience is not located in the United States and therefore, or sorry, is located in the United States. So most of you guys don't care that much about sites that you cannot play on. So 
I'll talk about those sites, but I try not to make big segments out of them. But this week I have to. It's a big story. PokerStar has dropped a huge bombshell regarding their VIP program where they're degrading the VIP program, especially at the highest levels, big time, and it's going to take an effect very, very soon, and the regular players are furious. Very quickly, here are some things that are happening in relation to that. The Supernova Elite, the top VIP level, is being eliminated. The existing Supernova Elite players are going to be grandfathered in for one more year in 2016, but will have inferior benefits. The FPPs are being devalued by 25%. There will be no more rakeback or VIP tier points at the middle and high stakes games. Any kind of third-party player assistance tools or programs will be banned for use on stars. Some super grinders, the guys who play a ton of ti- a ton of tables at once many hours a day, are really, really angry. Donnie Stern is one of them who is really, really furious and has been vocal about it. And Daniel Negreanu, the face of Poker Stars currently, is going to bat for the players behind the scenes, but is publicly defending stars. And I have a leaked chat I'm going to read you part of that you can only find on PokerFraudAlert.com. You will not find it on 2 Plus 2. It is here. It's not supposed to be here, but it is. And I'll read you pieces of it and tell you where to find it if you want to hear the whole thing. Seth Polanski, a vice president at Caesars who is very involved with the World Series. He's really the number three guy at the World Series of Poker behind Ty Stewart and Jack Effel. He has defended the Poker Hall of Fame voting process, which has come under fire recently, including on this show. And by the way, Seth Polanski is very aware of this show. I don't think he listens to the show, but when something bad is said about the World Series or any of its employees on this show, he knows about it. And I know this because we once had a 45-minute conversation about a segment I did on this show about WSOP.com. So Seth Polanski actually does care what is said on this show about the World Series, which, which is good. I'm not even criticizing that. I'm glad he does care. It would suck if they didn't care. It's nice that there's some impact if something is happening at the World Series that I don't like and that a lot of people don't like, and I bring it up on this show, and they know that there's dissatisfaction and that they're unhappy about that dissatisfaction. That's a good thing. So anyway, I'll read what Seth Polanski had to say about the Poker Hall of Fame where he's defending it. As you guys know, I am a cheap Jew. I don't try to hide that. And something I do every year is make sure to maximize my World Series of Poker food vouchers that I get for being part of the media and use every single one. And by the way, I have to put some effort out to get these. i got to go to the media room every day to get one for $10 each. But I always use them all because I don't want to leave money on the table. I'm already paying so much rake to play in the World Series. I'm like, well, this is the least I can get back. And uh, and, and I'm, it's legitimate. You know, I'm a World Series of Poker media member. I report a whole lot on the World Series. I do long segments every week on this radio show about the World Series. So I'm definitely a member of the poker media. 
I definitely cover the World Series a whole lot. So I get those vouchers, and I usually use them. In fact, I talked about last year how KevMath gave me one as a peace offering for snubbing me in the hallways. Well, I had $80 worth of food vouchers this year that sat unused. (laughs) This hurts me every day that I could have bought $80 worth of food at the damn Rio and not paid a penny for it, and I didn't, and these vouchers are worthless now, I believe. But they, they may or may not be. I'll explain that when we get to that short little segment. Bitcoin, been the news again. Bitcoin is jumping all over the place. After a long period of stability in the 200-something range, It shot way up, all the way up to 500, and has since come crashing down, but it's still higher than where it began when it was rising up, but it is nowhere near its peak. But nobody knows exactly why. There are some theories, but nobody knows exactly why Bitcoin has done what it has done. So we will discuss that. Is the devil coming to Georgia, finally? He might be. Casino gambling may come to Georgia very soon. There are no casinos in the state of Georgia. We'll talk about what's going on there, and I'll even tell you the states where you can and cannot find casinos in the United States. Some may surprise you. Willie Nelson, you think about him, and one thing you don't really think about is poker. You don't really associate Willie Nelson with poker. Apparently, he is a poker player and a high-stakes poker player at that. And there are stories going around, numerous stories, that Willie gets people stoned. You know, he's a big pot smoker, but he, he offers pot to people who he think, thinks will want it. They smoke with him. He gives them a whole lot of it. And when he thinks that they're really, really stoned, at that point, he offers to play them in poker at high stakes and beats them. Pretty sneaky, Willie. I'll talk about that. And I'll tell you about who some of his victims might have been. General topics tonight. Driverless cars are already reality. Google is testing them, especially in Northern California where they're based. You drive around San Jose, San Francisco, you may see a car with no driver. One of our listeners, JSTAT, even videoed one speeding on the freeway of all things. Can you imagine a driverless car that's speeding? I mean, why is it doing that? Where is it? What's the rush? Where is it trying to go? Why is it speeding? Is, it, is the car getting impatient? <laughs> that was really weird to see. But yeah, he showed his speedometer. He showed what the speed limit was, and he showed the Google car speeding by him. So I guess even uh, computers get impatient. But the question is, as driverless cars become more and more commonplace over time, which they will be, would you want one? And would you trust it? I'll give you my feelings on driverless cars in the first general segment. I have an editorial this week about the Republican Party. Most of you probably know I am a Republican. But I haven't been all that happy with the party in recent years. I think they've done a lot of stupid things. They tossed away five Senate seats since 2010 that they should have won. They've put up some pretty horrible candidates. And I really don't like the two leading candidates right now 
for the presidential race in 2016. I think if either wins the primary, it will be an embarrassment to the party. So I feel it's time for the Republican Party to get its head out of its ass. Otherwise, it will go extinct. I will explain why in the editorial. Finally, a sports segment. For those of you who are outside the U.S., you'll probably hate this, but too bad. It's at the end of the show. You can turn it off. The Los Angeles Lakers are starting their season. They've already played four games, and they've done very poorly. They are 0-4. They look terrible. Three of the four losses came against bad teams. How bad will the Lakers be this year? And what will it take to fix them? How many years will it be until the Lakers are competitive again? That'll be the final topic of the night. You never know what else will come up on this show. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. Someone also wants me to give an update on Dwight Pilgrim. I'll do that too, if I remember. Someone texted me about that. Remember, he was shown last year to be a scammer. All righty. Taking a look at the text messages, that's why I'm uh, pausing here. Here's a text I got a few days ago. Actually, yesterday. From the 870 area code, watching Parts Unknown on CNN, after the show, it said it was produced by a production company called... Zero Point... Zero. And I thought of your show. I didn't know there's a production company called Zero Point Zero Productions. It's it's probably named after that same sound clip. But nevertheless, that is uh, yes, from Animal House. That's probably where they got it. It's interesting, but it made someone think of this show. From the 586... They texted me two days ago. Tell me you caught that Justin Schwartz bluff on Buteroni at the World Series. Sick bluff, but terrible attitude. So I hadn't seen it yet, but then I went to go watch it on YouTube. And I agree. Uh, Justin Schwartz, a stealth monk, uh, he did run a big bluff on uh, Buteroni. And uh, even though Buteroni's at the final table and Schwartz is not, uh, it was a big bluff. But I felt that Schwartz acted kind of inappropriately. I thought he was a jerk to call the clock so quickly. And I thought the needling at the end, after he did that and showing the bluff, was pretty bad form. Everything was his in his right to do. He wasn't cheating or anything. It's just I thought he was a jerk. If you remember, Stealth Monk called the show once and was very uh, obnoxious with me. He was mad that I did not fully agree with some tweets he had written. I, what had happened was Stealth Monk had written some tweets criticizing poker coaches, basically saying that all poker coaches are basically scammers, that they're all terrible and that they're selling poker tutorial and coaching when they're not qualified to do so. And I said I partially agree. I said I think some of these coaches should not be coaching good players because they may not be good enough to beat the games that they are coaching for. But if they're coaching novice players, that's fine. You don't have to be a great player to coach novices how to beat 1-2 no limit. So that's what I said. I was saying I basically half agreed with him, and he, he just called up and tried to rip me a new one here. Just 
It was a contentious phone call. And I, it's not even like I was bashing the guy. I was saying, like, I half agree with him, but I guess that wasn't good enough. Uh, from the 734 area from Halloween, he wrote, It's funny how you talk about sheep and then say something so stupid as, when the police ask you to do something, you do a generalization. Depends on the situation. You don't always have to obey the police. I agree with you about teenagers nowadays, but Jesus Christ. Well, look, if you say no when the police ask you to do something, you're asking for trouble. Now, that doesn't mean you just automatically agree to everything if your rights say otherwise. Like, let's say a cop knocked at my door and said, yeah, I want to search your house. I would ask, do you have a search warrant? If they say no, I'd say, okay, well, come back when you have one. Because I, I don't need the police searching my house. I, I don't have anything illegal here, but I'm not going to let them search my house and go through all my stuff here without a warrant. So in that type of case, I totally agree. But uh, if, if a police officer says you need to leave this place, you know, the owner of the place wants you to leave, please leave, you need to go. You don't just say, no, I'm not going, because you're just going to create a confrontation. Uh, if during a traffic stop, you're asked to do something. You, you don't be difficult. You just uh, act cooperative, get the whole thing over with, and if there's something you don't like or you think you're falsely accused, fight it in court. I even think that if the police want to search your car, if you have nothing to hide, go ahead. Now, if you have cash in there, you shouldn't let them because uh, they'll find an excuse to confiscate it, as we've talked about before on this show. But other than if you have a large sum of cash in your car, or I guess if you're hiding drugs, which you shouldn't have in there, uh let them search your car. What's the big deal? It's not like searching your house where you have like everything there and they can you know, turn over your house searching everything. You know, that type of thing they shouldn't be allowed to do unless they have a warrant. But you know, one time the police did ask to search my car. They pulled me over. It was on a Friday night. They wrongly thought that I might be drunk or on drugs. And uh, they said, can we search your car? And I, I knew that by letting them do it, it'll end the whole thing faster. And I had nothing to hide. So they searched it and that was that. There wasn't, you know, there's not that much to do to search a car. I wasn't worried about anything that would be found in there. This is like over 20 years ago, but in general, you should try to make any encounter with the police easy, in my opinion, and that will severely lower the chance that you have any kind of bad experience where there's any kind of uh, police brutality situation. The easier you make it on the police, the easier they will make it on you in general. So that that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying to be a sheep and just do whatever they say, but... Do whatever they say within reason. That was my point. You may not agree, but that was my point. Let's see, anything else? This is from the 805. This is a guy who wants to hear about Dwight Pilgrim. Uh, just read your agenda. Agenda. I don't see any follow-up on the Dwight Pilgrim scandal. Numerous players came out to Aaron Massey, including a rec poker player and fan regarding being scammed by Dwight. So, all right. Uh, I got this just before the show was starting, so I'm going to have to read it as you guys read it, produce the show during the show, but if I remember, I will do that. If you want to text me anything else, 775-FRAUD55, 775-372-8355. Actually, you need to text. You can't really text letters, I don't think. You have to do 775-372-8355 if you want to text me. Let's get going with Z Show. By the way, if you want to – somebody check on the call to listen phone number and make sure it's working. I'm kind of paranoid that it's not working on our first show. <laughs> Seven, 
712-775-8162. You know what? Screw it. I'm going to do it right now. Let's do it right now. Here. There we are. Here, dial tone. Old school dial tone. Yeah, I miss, now I missed dial. I'll try it again. 712. Let's hear if it works. You were listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. You were listening to Poker Fraud. <laughs> now you just heard the delay of it. It's like on a second delay or so. All right, it works. Beautiful. I'm just always paranoid when I get like a new thing like that. It's not going to work. I just didn't want the embarrassment that like the thing's not working after I've pushed it so much. All righty. So TMML Gay is is texting me or or PMing me. Keep the segments moving. Thank you. It's like my self-appointed producer there. He did a decent job as a co-host. I was surprised. I, I thought having him as a co-host a few weeks ago was going to be brutal. I thought it was going to be just... I thought I was going to be hanging up on him within like 10 minutes. But I, I stuck with him for over two and a half hours, and most people liked it. Most people enjoyed it, and I, I, I felt he was a good co-host, shockingly. I would have never guessed that. The other calls he's made to this show, like, I, I can only stand him for a few minutes, then I have to hang up on him, but... When he tones it down some, then he's a lot more pleasant. All right, so let's talk about Mikon, what happened with him. Brian Mikon, his troubles first started in February when some weirdness started to occur with his Seals with Clubs Bitcoin poker site, which he was a partial owner of. And uh, it started having some service issues and some of the tech guys were saying something weird is going on. And then shortly after that, his door was kicked down, literally kicked down. Police came in with guns. They did not arrest him, but they searched the place and confiscated every piece of electronic equipment he had. And it turned out this was Nevada Gaming coming after him. The Nevada Gaming Commission actually is a police force in the state of Nevada. So they actually are state police. They have a right to make arrests. They have a right to do seizures. Of course, they had to get a warrant, but they did. So uh, they let him out to his front lawn in his underwear, literally, <laughs> while they, they searched his place and took his equipment. Did not arrest him. So Mikon, who had already been making preparations to move to Antigua anyway, because... Apparently, he was going to go there, and I think he was getting scared something like this was going to happen, and he was going to run seals from there. He uh, hightailed it out of there, and that same day, flew off to Antigua with his wife and young daughter. Basically, was fleeing from the law. He can say that's not what he was doing, but that's what he was doing. Obviously, that's what he was doing. Well... I thought that was kind of stupid, but it turned out I think it actually helped him because since he was unreachable in Antigua, it ended up, uh, I think, benefiting him because he ended up making a deal to come back, basically. So about two months later, they actually did file charges against him, I think two and a half months later. 
So at that point, he was formally charged with a felony count of running an unlicensed gaming site. It was just one count, but a felony. And he could face, like, five or more years in prison, which I didn't think he would, but that's what he was possibly facing. So, he got an attorney. First, he ran a GoFundMe site to fund his own defense. He wanted uh, people to give him money up to $100,000. Seriously, he actually was hoping that the general public would give him $100,000 to fight this. (laughs) Which I thought was ridiculous because this wasn't like an activist who got in trouble. This isn't like someone who was fighting for what they believed in and then got in trouble and wanted the public who believed in what they believed in to give them money for a defense. Like, let's say uh, someone who was fighting for animal rights did something illegal and was arrested for it. So fellow animal rights activists paid for their legal fund. I'd understand that. That makes sense. But uh, not when you're running a site for profit. He wasn't running SEALs to make a political statement or a social statement. He was running it to make money. And he was breaking the law. He was knowingly breaking the law. And when you do that, then if you get in trouble, that's part of the risk. And then you need to dip into your own pocket from the money you made by illegally running that site to defend yourself in a court of law. You don't have the the public pay for your defense. He didn't collect that much. He collected, I think, $4,000, and it's possible the first 1000 actually came from him anonymously, so it may have only been 3000 But still, it was money he shouldn't have solicited or gotten, in my opinion. Uh, but he hired a very, very expensive attorney, Chesnoff and Schoenfeld. And that law firm, they take many high-profile criminal cases especially ones involving gambling-type uh, criminal cases. And they have they have an amazingly good track record. And they take all kinds of criminal cases, by the way. But they have an amazingly good track record of getting people out of hot water. I don't know if they have some kind of insider connection to make this happen. I don't know if any bribery is involved. I, I don't know. I'm not accusing them of this. I'm just saying that uh, in a city like Las Vegas, you never know. I could totally see where there'd be some corruption. But whatever it is... If I ever get in trouble in Las Vegas, I would hire them. I'm not even kidding. That's exactly who I would hire because they get the job done. So Brian Michael, Brian knew that. He hired them, and indeed they got the job done. He's probably like $100,000 lighter for the whole thing. That's probably what it cost. That's probably why he was asking for hundred k. That's probably what he had to put down up front. But it was worth the money because uh, this summer... In July, they came to an agreement that he would return to the U.S. They would briefly detain him. He'd go to a court hearing immediately. And basically, a deal was hammered out before he would come back. So the advantage Mikon had was that if he didn't like what was being agreed to, then he he could just not come back. So like if they said... Well, the best we're giving you is two years in prison. He would have said, F you, I'm not coming back. Whereas someone who's already arrested, someone who's already in the U.S. and that they have they already have custody of, they don't have much choice. But Mikon, he did have a choice because he just didn't have to come back. Now, yeah, he was risking that he might be extradited, but he knew that he wouldn't be a high priority to extradite and that Aruba may not even cooperate. So he did have that power. And while... Technically, 
the state of Nevada could have pulled a fast one and maybe busted him again for something else on a technicality once they made the agreement for probation for running seals. I, I knew that wasn't going to happen because high-profile attorneys, the state never makes a fool of them like that. Basically, there's a level of trust between high-profile attorneys and the district attorney or the attorney general of the state. There's, there's a level of trust where they don't pull these games on each other. So if, if one gives their word to the other, they don't break it. And the reason they don't is because if you break your word once, then you're not trusted again. And that would prevent negotiations on future cases. So for that reason, high-profile attorneys and high-profile district attorneys or attorneys general, uh, they shoot straight with each other. If they agree to something, they keep to it. So this way they can make future agreements and not worry about being screwed. So there was an agreement in place that basically Mikon was going to come back, face the charges, accept conviction of a misdemeanor, get probation, and pay a fine. It was not formally completed, but at an informal hearing in July, this was agreed upon. And in fact, Mikon even played a few World Series events at the end of the World Series. I don't think he played the main for whatever reason. Now, his actual sentencing was to occur in November, in early November. I think on November 3rd. So, until November 3rd, this was not a done deal. He had not been sentenced yet. The deal had not officially commenced. Meaning it could have been taken off the table if he screwed up, for example. It technically could have been taken off the table for any reason, but it wasn't going to be unless he did something to screw it up. For that reason, his attorneys told him, shut your mouth, which is why he's been quiet for so long, ever since he, uh, ever since he retained these attorneys. Uh, and ever since GoFundMe temporarily suspended his account for whatever reason, he has been quiet, completely quiet on social media. No tweeting, no radio shows, no posting, nothing. It's not because he's had nothing to say. It's because his attorney said, look, Mike, on, you've made an idiot of yourself since this whole thing went down. Because he, he released these videos bashing the government, talking about how math doesn't bow to guns, how he's going to fight this, he's being oppressed by the government, blah, blah, blah. Like, he made a number of videos, including ones saying that he's starting a new site, which he did, called SWC Poker, that was basically the new SEALs after the government forced the old SEALs down, which was even worse. Like, he was basically taunting the government, ha, 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 I'm in Aruba now, I just started a new site that's identical to my old one, in fact, even better, to F you guys. That wasn't his exact words, but that's basically what he was saying. So, the attorneys, who of course are, are very, very good, they said, stop this shit. Stop it completely. No more social media for you until this is done. No matter how harmless you think it is, do not do it. Because anything you say that you think may be harmless may be taken a different way. So if you want this sweetheart deal that we arranged for you to stick, shut up. Shut your mouth until November. Now, I can tell you from being friends with Brian Mikon for about six years that this was a very difficult thing for him to do. Brian Mikon loves social media. He loves interacting with people. 
He loves attention. And this is very, very hard for him to do. If you think it would be hard for me to stay off social media and forums and this radio show for six months or so, and it would be, it would be even harder for Brian Mikon to do it. I'm sure he hated every moment of that. But he did it. I think he made one tweet that was like a few words that really meant nothing. Forgot what it was, but other than that, nothing from him. So the sentencing finally happened on November 3rd. And uh, basically uh, now it's a done deal and now he just has to keep his nose clean. This is what has happened. He was sentenced to a maximum of two years probation. I think what they mean by a maximum is I think it can end early, but uh, he was given what's called a maximum of two years probation. He could have been given three, but he was given two. He paid a $25,000 fine. He gave up about three Bitcoin that they found on his computer. And he gave up all the computers themselves. So he's not going to get any of that stuff back. The government keeps all that stuff. They keep his three Bitcoins. They keep his computer equipment that they seize. And he also gives them $25,000. But that's it. No jail time. He gets two years probation. He will serve this probation, which is starting immediately, starting uh, November 3rd, in Las Vegas. At which time he claims he's going to move to Antigua after it's done. Also, his felony charge is going to be reduced to a gross misdemeanor once he completes probation. So he may actually have a felony on his record right now. But uh, it's going to be reduced once he's done with probation. So at the very least, when the probation period's over, then he goes down to a misdemeanor. That's important because when you're a convicted felon, there are a number of rights that you no longer have. So he didn't want to lose those rights in the United States as a convicted felon. He didn't want that affecting his future. Having a misdemeanor on your record is much lesser of a deal. So he got that done as well. This is all thanks to his attorneys, uh, Chesnoff and Schoenfeld. So Mikan was very fortunate. Now, this none of this was a surprise because this is what he agreed to back in late June, early July, when he came and uh, had that hearing when he returned to the United States. So no one's shocked by this. If you were shocked, then you haven't been following this. By the way, the the thread about this on Poker Fraud Alert is 135 pages long, (laughs) with 208,000 views. I can tell you with certainty... There, there is no place on the web anywhere that this was discussed more than on this site. I don't know if that's good or bad, but this is where, this is where the discussion took place the most. But it hadn't really been discussed much since July until this development occurred. He claims he's going to take a job in a technology office of a newspaper in Antigua. That's really strange Like He's not going to be doing this immediately He claims in two years 
when the probation's over in November 2017, he's going to go to Antigua and take a job in a newspaper office uh, working with technology. It's really weird. Like, how would he know that job's even going to be open for two years? Are they, like, are they going to leave it open for two years for him? It's really weird. But that's what he claims he's going to do when his probation's over. At the moment, he supposedly has a job at Drones Plus, which is Crazy Mike's drone store. He claims he's the head of security. We've seen a few articles about break-ins to Drones Plus, where Brian Mikon, head of security, was quoted. I think that job is probably somewhat of a sham. Probably was a favor done for him by Crazy Mike. I think that Mikon really is doing some work with it. He probably is trying to improve their security there trying to catch the thieves, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think it's a complete sham, but I don't think he's regularly working there. I, I can't even picture that. But uh, he probably needs some sort of job. I don't know if that's a condition of probation or just something to look good for probation's sake, but uh, it's possible his attorneys told him get a job and he didn't want to get a regular 9 to 5, so he talked to Crazy Mike and they arranged this. That's just these are just my guesses, by the way. I, I have no information on this. But whether real or semi sham, that is his current employment at the moment is a dro- drones plus as head of security, and that's not a secret. That's been mentioned in public newspaper articles. So he's very lucky here. Not only didn't he get any kind of prison time. Not only didn't he get a felony on his record, at least if he does, it'll be off once he's done with probation. But uh, the fine he paid was very small compared to how much he made with SEALs. I think he made a lot of money with SEALs. A lot of people believe that Brian Mikon made whatever money he has through Bitcoin appreciation. That basically he hoarded Bitcoin and that when it when it shot up in value, that he made a ton of money. Now, I will concede he probably made some money doing that. But... Raw Wolf, who I know listens to this show, he once called in and he said that he used to talk to Mike on all the time about Bitcoin because they remained friends even after uh, most people left Donk Down. In fact, in fact er- after everybody left Donk Down, they still remained friends. And he called in to say that uh, he and Mikon sold most of their Bitcoin when it shot up from like 17 to 80, which is a nice profit. But I don't think Mikon had that many at the time to make huge money. So when it did that huge run-up to 1,200, I don't think Mikon had all that many Bitcoin. And the ones he did have, I don't think he bought them when they were dirt cheap. So whatever Bitcoin he obtained at the time, I think he got later. And I don't think he sold it anywhere near 1,200. I think he just held them, believing they might rise to 10,000 or 100,000. And then they crashed back down to to something until recently. So I think that any money Micon has at the moment, I think it came from running SEALs. SEALs was never all that active, but it had very low expenses. I believe he was taking in about half the revenue. And it did have a steady stream of players who were generating rake over and over and over again. So, uh, also... When SEALs went down, they gave a finite amount of time for people to withdraw, which was understandable because they they didn't want to expose themselves to being identified, the rest of the people who were involved besides him. So they gave everyone like 
three months or so to get their Bitcoin out. But I'm sure there were some people that abandoned their accounts that only had a little bit in them, just never came back. There were even people who had like a, a tenth of a Bitcoin or had one Bitcoin or something that back when it was worth $10, it was inconsequential to them. But then that went up to hundreds of dollars for each Bitcoin. So I, I bet when you add all those dormant accounts together that never cashed out, even there he made some money. So I think he made good money on seals. I don't think he became a multimillionaire from it, but I think he made some pretty good money. And to only have to give up 25000 of it is a great deal because he ended up a net winner in the whole thing. Even with the misdemeanor on his record, this was someone who was flat broke. I mean, he was really flat broke. When I left Donk Down in 2011, he was flat broke. F-L-A-T broke. He and Drexel, Brandon, they had a falling out, and they stopped being friends, and they were really, really, really close friends because Mikeon wanted Brandon to lend him money to go play slots. I'm not even kidding. Mikeon was like a slot pro at the time, and Brandon didn't support it, and Brandon refused to give him $3,000 to go play slots. And then they had a huge fight over it. And that led to a huge falling out. So Mike was flat broke, and to go from there and really no prospects to make money to being very comfortable financially, which appears what he is right now, that's all thanks to SEALs. And if all he had as the negative, aside from the stress and having to run off to Antigua for some months is a $25,000 fine, giving up three Bitcoin and giving up some computer equipment and a, a misdemeanor on his record. I mean, that's he did pretty well. He did pretty damn well. I mean, even if he could have seen this whole thing from the start, uh, I, I think this was worth it to him. I don't think he regrets running SEALs. Because he made a lot of money. I've always felt that if you commit a crime such as running any kind of illegal operation and then are caught, that if you make a plea deal with the government, at the very least, every penny you made from that illegal operation should be confiscated. Otherwise, where's the justice? Otherwise, if someone gains financially from running something illegally, even when caught, why wouldn't they do it again? Why would anyone do it? If that's the result, if you just get a misdemeanor and you make a lot of money. So I thought at the very least the government was going to say, all right, we're going to confiscate everything you made from Seals with Clubs. And they'd figure it out and then they would uh, they'd confiscate that amount of money from him. But they did not. They only took 25K and a few bitcoins. So that's, he did very well here. Team MLK, hello. Hello. So what's going on? All right. Well, I'm just talking about Mike. What's your opinion about this whole thing? Well, shout out to uh, Anchor Draw. Do you know him? Um, and all my fans out there. Well, do you know uh, Anchor Draw? He kind of out. appeared out of nowhere. I don't know who he is. He's he's made some good posts on the site, but I, he kind of just came out of nowhere. And uh, you know, I'm glad to have him. I'm always glad to see new people appear, especially when they have thoughtful things to say in the forum, which he tends to have. But do you know who he is? Um, it's a secret location. <laughs> I'm not asking you to tell me, but do you, do you know him? I can't disclose that. Alrighty. Secret location. Yeah, by the way, Anchor, um, Anchor Draw... I think of the uh, Brian Mike on? 
yeah. segment. Uh, it's gone on too long. We yeah, gotta okay. get on to the next. Is that topic. really what you're calling here? The, by the way, Anchor Draw said Jennifer Harmon and John Juanda made millions off Full Tilt as owners, and now they're in the Hall of Fame. It's a little bit different because they didn't know what was happening. I mean, they were technically owners of an illegal site, but uh, they were part owners. They weren't on the board running it. They were just given a piece of it to be major site pros. I, the ones I would more compare would be Howard Letterer, Ray First, uh, even Phil Ivey who wasn't on the board. Uh, of course, Ray Bittar, Chris Ferguson. They're the ones I would compare with Brian Mikon, of course, on a much grander scale. And they were much worse than Brian Mikon because Mikon didn't steal from people, whereas they did. But like Jennifer Harmon and John Juanda, they did not know any of this was going on. In fact, John Juanda thought that Ray Bittar was incompetent and tried to get him kicked off the board. They tried to get a new board installed, and uh, there was, like, big factions fighting with one another, and Juanda and Letterer like, hated each other because of this. So I-, I give John Juanda credit at least for trying to fight the corrupt powers that be at full tilt, but he just was not successful in doing so. So anyway, um, you know, I don't have that much more to say about Mike. I just feel like he got off really, really well. I think that attorney did a spectacular job for him. And I just, I, I don't support anyone who runs something illegally and makes a lot of money from it, walking away from the whole thing richer. They just shouldn't be able to do that. And, you know, I would have run a Bitcoin site if I could have done so and not gotten in trouble. Because I, I wasn't against the concept of a Bitcoin site. I think it's fine. I just think that everyone should have the equal opportunity to do so. And if it's illegal and certain people are allowed to make a lot of money by doing so because they don't care that they break the law, while others like me don't do it because we're afraid to break the law, then that's unfair to people like me or anyone else who wants to run a Bitcoin site because we're afraid of breaking the law. And no one should get rewarded for breaking the law. So uh, as I said, if, if there was no law against it, I would have run a competing Bitcoin site. I'm not even kidding because it's not hard to do. But I didn't do it because I don't want to go to jail. And that's why just about everybody else didn't do it. Not because they were incapable. Not because Mikon was a great Bitcoin poker pioneer. He wasn't even the first Bitcoin poker site. In fact, Seals wasn't even his creation. Another guy created it, a guy known as Free Money. And Mikon joined there basically as the marketer. He became part owner, and he was like in charge of marketing. He was the face of the site. So... uh, it, Forum Wars is saying that Mikon can get his conviction sealed. Is that true? I don't know if that's true. I know it's going to be downgraded to a misdemeanor. I thought you could only get it sealed if this sort of thing occurs before you're 21. I don't think he's going to be sealed. Maybe I'm wrong. I think your uh, next uh, theme song opening should be the Authority song by John Mellencamp. <laughs> that way uh, we can... Address that issue. Yeah, maybe the new site, if he does get the conviction sealed, maybe the new site should be called Sealed with Clubs. <laughs> and here's one other thing that's really ridiculous, and I don't understand why the government did not at least demand this. I'm going to give a little plug for Mike on, I think it's his, if it isn't his, it was once his, current Bitcoin poker site, and that's swcpoker.eu. And it's basically the same as SEALs. If you go there, it looks identical to SEALs. And this is the site that he said himself, I'm not speculating here, he said it himself on video, that he started in Antigua in response to the government shutting down the first SEALs. Amazingly, this is still running. 
Now, he doesn't claim to run it anymore. And I'm sure if you ask him, he'll go, oh, no, no, I don't run it. I, I gave this to some Europeans to run. And there probably are some Europeans involved physically running it at this point. But I don't think that he has divorced himself completely because he's never publicly even stated that. He's never even publicly stated, okay, I've sold seals. I have nothing to do with it. Please don't ever bother me about SWC poker. It's not mine. Like he doesn't do that. He just doesn't say anything. He doesn't say he does own it. He doesn't say he doesn't. And if he didn't anymore, he would want everyone to know that. He would have no incentive to have anyone think he's still the owner. Like he wouldn't want people still bugging him going, hey, Mike, I'm having this trouble with SWC poker. Can you help me? Like he wouldn't want that if he didn't own it anymore. So I'm, I'm pretty sure he owns some portion of it, but I have no proof, but it doesn't make sense that he doesn't. And I'm shocked that the government didn't say, shut it down or give us the information of who's currently running it, who you sold it to, but give us everything on this new site you started. But for whatever reason, they didn't, and it's operating the exact same way. In fact, the whole reason he got busted was because SEALs was taking Nevada residents as players on the site. And Nevada residents today can log on to SWC Poker and sign up and play. It's the exact same thing. It's the exact same thing. I mean, it's different software, but other than that, it's the exact same thing. And I don't understand how the government can bust him for running SEALs. Then he starts SWC Poker, which is identical, serves the identical people in Nevada. And for whatever reason, they're willing to put him on probation for the first one and not care about the second one. It's so weird. So I don't know what to say about that. It's really weird. But uh, it looks like the government was incompetent in their handling of this one. If Mike is smart, he will. if he is running SEALs, or SWC poker behind the scenes, or owning any piece of it, or has any involvement with it, which I think he does, and again, this is just my speculation. I, I want to make it clear that I have no information that he is. This is just my own guessing and speculation. So I want that to be clear. But if he does have any kind of ownership or partnership in this site. Mike on, you got to be real careful because if this ever gets out, if they can ever prove it, your probation is going to be gone. You're going to be back to a felony. You're going to be in state prison. It'll be a mess. So I would keep your mouth very closed about that. If I were you and I'm not being sarcastic here. I mean, that's, that's, if that's what you're going to do, that's, that's what I'd suggest. So, uh, now, it's possible, it's possible he really did sell it to some Europeans and has nothing to do with it anymore and just hasn't announced it. Maybe that was part of the agreement in selling it is that it would be kind of implied to the existing players that he's still involved, even though he's not. But I, I even looked at posts about this on Bitcoin Talk, which is a forum about Bitcoin, and they used terms like MyCon has stepped away for a few months. So even there, they didn't say he sold it. They just said he stepped away. You just think if he's done with it, he'd want everyone to know he's done with it, both so people don't bug him about it if they have questions and so the government is 100% sure that he has nothing to do with it so they don't arrest him again. It's really weird. I, I don't understand it. I mean, does the government even know that this other seals exist? You'd have to think they know it exists. They must have watched his videos. I, I cannot even begin to answer this one. I, I cannot begin to answer this one, how they could have put him on probation for the first thing, and now the second thing, which is identical to the first thing, is still running and serving the same people. I've never even seen this before in anything. I've never seen any kind of situation where someone is arrested, charged with a crime, and then it appears the exact same crime is being committed while they're 
negotiating probation for the first crime, and the government doesn't care. It's so weird. And I'm not saying this because Mike Khan and I aren't friends anymore. We had a falling out, or or I don't like him. Like, it's just really weird. And I'd be saying this about anyone, even if like a total stranger was the one involved with this, and not Mike Khan. I'd be saying the same thing because it's so weird, and I, I can't even explain it. Like, I I rack my brain. This is the one part I cannot explain is how the government ignored SWC poker. I cannot explain it. Tough, but fair. Yeah. Darkstar theorizing, he likely made a phone deal where he paid off someone in Antigua to vouch for him and say, yeah, Mikon can work for us in IT in two years. Mikon pays the guy 5K to lie to save his ass. I don't think so because I don't think what Micon does after the probation is over matters to the government unless he commits more crimes. So, like, I don't believe that a requirement is after probation is over in two years that he has to get a job. I could see it that during probation he has to get a job. During probation, they can basically say anything. You basically have very few rights when you're on probation. They, they tell you what you have to do on probation, and then you have to do it. And if you don't like it, then you don't have to take probation. But if you take probation, you're doing it on their terms. So... It's very possible they stated he had to have a job during probation. But after probation, they, he can do whatever he wants. And by the way, that's, that's TMMLK on here who's co-hosting, if you guys are wondering. He's being uh, understated, but he's here. I'm saving the show. I just thought I'd point out that I went um, 1-0-2 on my uh, guaranteed picks. And if you would have bought my picks late, this part would have adjusted, and I would have went 3-0. So, oh, you can't say that though. If you went one, one and two, then you went no, one, one oh and two. Oh, one, oh, and two. Well, that's not pushed. Okay, well, that's it's not pushed. that great. So you you won two and tied. You won one and tied two oh. and lost zero. Big deal. Not a big deal. That's pretty impressive in uh, sports. There. How is how is that impressive? All you did is, it's like winning one game. I won one game, but I pushed two. But if the spread went up to three and a half, which it did, you would have won three and zero. Oh. Yeah, but if the spread went the other way and you would have lost, you wouldn't be pushing that here. You wouldn't be mentioning that. No, because I would have won. Because if this spread went down to two and a half, I would have won. No, but I mean, if it went the other way, if you went the other way from uh, to where you would have lost, you wouldn't be bragging about that. But there's no potential way where I could lose, though. Think about it. If I had a spread at minus three, how could the spread be adjusted where I would lose? It wouldn't be. But <laughs> we're talking about if someone took it later and then got a worse spread of minus three and a half, and then they would have lost. I mean, I've, I've had this before, too. I've had this plus before three. where the... Where this... Plus three. Okay, My then the other way. Then if I went to plus two and a half, then he would have lost. Like, what I'm trying to say... Is they... I would have won. What? If, 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 if you have plus three and your team loses by three, then you tie. If you have plus two and a half and your team loses by three, you lose. Nice. Right. But anyways, TMMLK's picks, I'm undefeated. Just thought I'd let everybody undefeated. know. Undefeated. The bottom line is I could take a penny right now and flip it and just pick a side of the game based upon that penny, and the penny's going to be right 50% of the time. That's how well you did. You did as well as a penny that got flipped. Not necessarily because I got two pushes. You know, you realize, Truff. But the pushes don't do you any good. You, you tie them, you get your money back. Hold on a second. You realize that in sports bet, betting that if you go 53%, you're like – God mode over a long period of time. Yes, but but the pushes don't help you. That has nothing to do. Not, they're thrown out. I agree with you, but even if you're fifty three percent over a thousand games, that's God. Like fifty seven percent. Like you hear all these ads on 
TV almost 70% winner is impossible. It's like billions to one. No, I agree. I agree. I'm not, I'm not disputing any of that. I'm just saying to you that you should never brag about ties in sports betting because they, they're neutral. They don't help. They don't hurt. Like, a, I, I understand. So, so really what you are is 1-0. and o. You just throw out the two ties, and 1-0, and o, it's better than being 0-1, but that's not like a wonderful thing to brag about. Like, like I could take Benjamin in here and say, Benjamin, uh, what do you think is going to cover the spread, this team or this team? And, of course, he'd know nothing about it and just pick one, and he'd have a 50% chance of being right. So that's why, that's why it's not a huge deal. I wouldn't brag. I would wait to brag here. So, like, if next week you're 4-0-2, then you can start bragging. Nice hand. And you know what happened to me? when I, Last year I was betting the NBA over-unders, and I, I was something like 33-21, uh, and 21, which is a nice start. And then from there I went in the toilet. It was my fault for yeah. bragging on the – I bragged on here that uh, I was like 33-21, and 21, and then it completely fell apart. So The NBA is very tough to win on. It is. Them. It is tough. So I, I'm, I'm, tempted, is... I'm tempted to bet against the Lakers every time and on the over on the Lakers every time until it, uh, those stop covering because it, it, just well, really, it just really seems yeah. like that's going to happen. Well, I don't like the way the NFL is set up for playoff positioning. I mean, we have three teams that are 7-0. and One of them is now 8-0. and And uh, we've got um, Indianapolis and Houston tied at 3-5 and for the division. Okay, I got a low house. I got a low house here. We're not doing sports talk now. Well, hold on a second. No, 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 no. We have so many topics here. If the team gets a home team advantage over a team that's 7-0 and or 8-0, and that's unfair. You're right. You're right, but let's not talk about it right now. I agree with well, you. Can we get off on the mic on mode then? Yeah, we'll get off the mic. On. First of all, you're not dictating the show pace here. You're, uh, you can be on here, but you can't dictate the show pace. But we are getting off the mic on topic. You can be happy about that. Fifty-three percent is God mode, Dark Star. Look it up. And I, I, you know, I don't. I'm not even wishing bad things for Mikeon. Yeah, it's it's fine. It's fine that this happened. It's fine that he got his probation. I I think he got off too easy, honestly. At least at the very least, they should have taken every penny he made from seals. But uh, good for him for getting off. Good for him for beating it. Uh, that's what I'd want if I were in his shoes. Uh, I would have done exactly what he did: is hire the best attorney and refuse to come back until they came to a favorable deal. So he did it right. Give him that. Anyway, let's get off of him and get to poker stars. Poker Stars dropped a huge bombshell this week that everyone's talking about. This had to do with their VIP program, and the regular players are furious. Basically, they are downgrading the top tiers of their VIP program and taking away a lot of the benefits that people have earned. So let me give you a breakdown of what's happening, and then I'll tell you why this is so big and why people are so angry, and I'll tell you whether I agree or disagree with it. I know some people were surprised on the forum with the position I took on this, but uh, surprised, but yet most people agreed with me, so that was good. So here's what happened. PokerStars announced on November 1st I think it was November 1st. If it wasn't November 1st, sometime around November 1st. The following is going to be changed. Number one, Supernova Elite, which is the very, very top tier 
of the Poker Stars VIP program. You only earn that from playing a ton of hands there, a ton of raked hands. I mean, just, I, I, even with all my play on Poker Stars, I never reached Supernova Elite or came close to it. So Supernova Elite is being phased out. As of January 1st, 2017, is going to be gone. Completely gone. You also cannot earn it in 2016. So if you do not already have it by the end of 2015, you will never be able to get it again. If you do have it by the end of 2015, you will get to keep it for one more year in 2016. You'll be grandfathered into it, but you will get reduced benefits. What I mean by reduced benefits is that Supernova Elite from PokerStars' own website shows that once you're there, once you're already at Supernova Elite, you will be getting anywhere between 68 to 75% rake back on your play, which is huge. Can you imagine? 68 to 75% rake back. Now think of that over just an obscene number of hands that you play. How much money that is coming back to you. 68 to 75% rake back is what they're saying it's worth on PokerStars' own site. However, starting 2016, now you will only get a maximum of 45% rake back. So it goes from 68 to 75% rake back down to 45% in 2016. And that's only if you're Supernova Elite grandfathered in from the previous year. Also, there will be no more rake back at all or VPPs, which is what allows you to move up in tier level on uh, the PokerStars VIP program at medium or high stakes games starting January 1st, 2016, which means uh, in less than two months, if you're playing 510 no limit or higher, 510 pot limit or higher, 1028 game or higher, or 1530 limit or higher, any of those games, you will get 0% rake back and 0 tier points to move up your rank on PokerStars. It'll be as if you don't play them, other than the money you win or lose at them. So that's a huge change. People keep saying high limit, but I wouldn't say high limit. Like 1530 limit is not high limit. That's medium limit. Same with 510 no limit. I mean, you can... It can add up to a lot of money if you run well or poorly at those limits, but it's those are not what I'd consider high-limit games. It's medium and high-limit. FPPs, which were basically the rakeback. Those were those are equivalent like to rewards credits at Caesars. That's, it's basically you trade them in for bonuses and other prizes. If you traded them in optimally they were worth 1.6 cents each. And it's been that way for many years. 1.6 cents per FPP at Supernova Elite if you trade them in optimally. FPPs are going to be done away with. They're converting them to something called Stars Coin, which I think is a dumb name. But they're converting them to Stars Coin. And Stars Coin, unlike FPPs, which have a variable value depending on how you redeem them, uh, Stars Coin is going to have a flat rate of 1 cent each. So you would think when they're converting FPPs to Stars Coin, if FPPs are worth 1.6 cents each, then you would get 1.6 Stars Coin for every FPP you have. But no. On January 1st, 2016, they will convert the rate from FPP to Stars Coin at a rate of 1.2 Stars Coin for every FPP you have. (laughs) 
And that is not very good. That's basically them robbing 25% of the value that you already earned. Because keep in mind, you already earned this stuff. This is not, I'm not talking about going forward. You earned FPPs. They were worth 1.6 cents when you earned them. And if you don't redeem them by January 1st, then they're going to be converted at a rate of 1.2 cents. Pretty bad. So this is a devaluation of 25%. On August 12, 2015, by the way, Amaya, which is the owner of PokerStars, reported that it had a rather large number of FPPs in player accounts. How much worth of FPPs are on Stars? How much is there? Would you believe it's... One million dollars. Well, it's not. It's a million dollars times 105. There is... A value of $105,250,000 worth of FPPs in player accounts on PokerStars. That was according to Amaya in a report they published on August 12, 2015. So as you can see, a major devaluation of those FPPs by 25% will save a lot of money for Amaya. Especially in the case of players who do not rush to redeem their FPPs before that conversion on January 1st. Now, a lot of them will do it, but a lot of people won't, especially ones who don't have that many FPPs on there. So that's going to really take a lot of money off their books of money that they owe. That's considered like a debt they have. There's another weird change they announced that I don't understand. They're saying that Supernova and Supernova Elite will no longer require monthly play in order to keep those statuses in the subsequent year. Currently, if you earn Supernova or Supernova Elite, you keep them the following year. First of all, you keep them the entire rest of the year no matter what, even if you don't play another hand. The following year, you keep them provided you play a certain number of hands to maintain it which makes it a lot easier to maintain it than it is to earn it in the first place because the the amount you have to play to maintain it is not, it, you know, it, on an absolute basis, it's not as much as it is to earn it in the first place where you have to earn it and you have to play an obscene number of, of hands. So they're claiming that won't have to be done anymore, but I'm not really understanding what they mean by that. Are they, they, are they saying you'll have like a, another whole year of Supernova without having to play at all to maintain it, or are they just saying you start over on January 1st? I don't know. Another big thing that was announced is the fact that most third-party poker assistance programs will be banned for use with PokerStars. That means uh, uh, no more HUDs, no more programs that you run in the background that give you advice or give you stats on the players you're playing with. None of that. You're not allowed to use any of that stuff anymore when you're playing on PokerStars tables. That's another big change. So, a lot of people got very angry about this. A lot of people felt that this was very bad in several ways. Some of which I agree with, some of which I don't agree with. Danny Stern, or Donnie Stern, is actually the way you pronounce it, D-A-N-I Stern, also known as uh, Angsty, or Angsty, Anxi, the way you say his name? I don't know. But uh, he was very vocal about the whole thing. And he was making a big deal about this. 
And uh, he was complaining, uh, among other things, that, uh, first of all, these things weren't announced in enough time and that people who earned Supernova Elite had certain expectations for the benefits they were getting. And uh, now these benefits are being rolled back and it's like a bait and switch. Uh, He's also complaining that there's going to be no way to beat these games with these benefits being lowered like this. And uh, it was also saying that he doesn't think that Poker Stars is going to gain from this because uh, they're claiming that they're doing this to benefit the recreational player. He thinks this is not going to help the recreational player. So here is uh, Donnie Stern's statement. He said, Last year when Stars increased the rake, I didn't speak up at all. I thought the changes, while seemingly random and unexplainable, were not entirely disgraceful. It was simply a price change from the industry leader, one which justifiably caused outrage from their customer base. The new announcement, however, has crossed the line into outright deception, as far as I can tell, is extremely unethical. The VIP program is simply not an annual program, which restarts at the end of every year. It's actually a two-year program where you carry over your VIP status that you achieved the year before over to the second year. A huge percentage of the value in achieving Supernova Elite is that you maintain Supernova Elite uh, FEP multiplier for the year two, and you can maintain it for the entire year, even if you're going to reach, you're not going to reach the Supernova Elite status again. Poker Stars is surely very aware that players have been grinding hard all year with the expectation that they would be able to maintain their Supernova Elite status until the end of next year. Making this announcement in November is truly an outrage. If that wasn't enough, they weren't even planning on announcing it. It leaked, and they rushed the announcement, which is interesting. I didn't know that, but uh, he's claiming that they weren't going to announce it yet. It just came out too early, and they wanted to get ahead of the rumors. For the record, I am aware that Stars announced that there would be changes to the 2016 VIP program, simply saying that months ago, while tacitly watching all the Supernova Elite players grind away, does not give them carte blanche to royally screw their most loyal customers. Regardless of your position on the current climate of Supernova Elite super grinders, you have to acknowledge that Poker Stars had an agreement with them, which they're now breaking. This is completely outrageous from the biggest poker site in the world. So, uh, so then he goes on to explain about. Uh, the changes they're doing and how this affects everyone, which I'm not going to read to you. But I'll explain shortly, and I'll tell you that I agree with him. So, let me uh, explain how I feel about this change, these changes. There's a number of changes here. Let me explain how I feel about them, because it's a complicated matter. Not matter, matter. First of all, believe it or not, as far as eliminating Supernova Elite in 2017 and severely reducing what grinders get as far as rake back, I think is the right thing. I think overall they're doing the right thing, but they're doing it in the wrong way. I think PokerStars is being somewhat unethical here, but overall, I think they have the right idea. So the angry grinders, the grinders who are complaining about this, who are saying that uh, it's going to make the games unbeatable, how they, they, they've done so much for poker stars, how this isn't going to help recreational players, blah, 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 they need to get over themselves. These super grinders, the guys who grind all day and all night, 
basically for rakeback. There's a lot of people who are like break-even players on the site who make a living through rakeback. They need to get over themselves. They are not as important or special as they think they are. Now let's pause for a second and realize what these guys want. These grinders believe that they should pay less rake per hand than everyone else simply because they put in a lot of volume on the site. Now how pissed off would you be if you were sitting in a live card room and you know they rake each pot? How pissed off would you be if they decide that they're going to rake half or a quarter of the normal rake for a guy who plays every day? So let's say they rake your pot $4, but when a regular wins the same pot, they rake his only $1. Would you be furious? Would you say, what the fuck is going on here? Would you accuse them of favoritism? Yes, and you'd be right. Because everyone should pay the same rake. Why should the guy next to you who plays every day pay less rake per hand at the same table for the same pot as you pay? It's not fair to you as a casual or occasional player. But believe it or not, this is what has been happening for years, for many years on Poker Stars. And I think it's wrong. Now, how did this occur in the first place? Well, Poker Stars has been on a very old school model where grinders were seen as equivalent to prop players. Now, what is a prop player? A prop player is somebody who is hired by the poker room to keep games going because a poker room doesn't make money unless it rakes, unless they rake the pots. If a game doesn't go, the poker room doesn't make money. So it's sometimes worth it for them for someone to just sit there and get games going and start games and pay those people to do so because uh, the poker room benefits in the long run or even the short run because with these games running, the rake they take in is more than what they have to pay this prop to be there. So these grinders were seen kind of equivalent to prop players originally. That is, it was assumed that the grinders would start and maintain the running games. So therefore, they should share in the fruits that the site would gain from these games consistently running. So that's why they were getting so much rake back. That's why they were getting up to 75% rake back is because, hey, you guys are keeping the games going. You guys are starting the games. We want to recognize that and give you a lot of that rake back. So fine, but Poker Stars doesn't need that anymore. Poker Stars is huge. Now, grinders are still very important on small and medium-sized sites. Sites where if the grinders are not there trying to get games going, the games won't run. So if a recreational player shows up on a small or medium online poker site and sees no games running at the limits that he wants to play, he's not going to sit down alone. He's just going to close the software and never sit down at a table. So therefore, grinders who keep the games going on these small and medium sites are important, and they do deserve something extra for doing that. But on Poker Stars, grinders are not necessary. The site is already huge. It's already active. The games that the recreational players want to play are already going just from the site's size and activity level. So you don't need these guys. So like if someone shows up and wants to play 50 cent a dollar, no limit, it doesn't matter if there's 100 tables going, 50 tables going, 25 tables going, as long as there's tables going. As long as there's no time that they'll show up and see zero tables going, then you don't need these grinders. You only need them to keep games going that would otherwise die. Otherwise, they're useless. Otherwise, all they do is beat the recreational players, suck money out of the site, and really don't provide any value to the site. Now you can say, oh yeah, you rake them, but I'll get to in a second why that doesn't really matter. So Amaya realized this 
and they're tired of giving extra money to these people. They don't want to ban them, but they're saying, you guys are not special. You guys don't deserve special treatment. You guys don't deserve to be treated better than the recreational players on this site. You don't deserve to pay less rake than recreational players on the site. And they're right. They don't. So, even though these grinders end up paying a high amount of overall rake, you know, you play a ton of hands over the whole year, you're going to pay a lot of rake, even with 75% rake back. But they realize that there's still not very much value in having players like this. Because the way poker stars and other online poker sites work, the way they make money is through deposits, not rake. And that sounds kind of weird. You go, wait a minute. That, wait a minute. I, I thought you may be saying, wait, I thought you were complaining about sites that would take players' deposits and keep them or spend them on themselves. I thought you were calling them thieves and scammers like Lock Poker and Full Tilt. How can you say that that's what poker stars and other legitimate sites are doing? Well, that's not really what I'm saying. I'm saying the way a site makes money is when people deposit into the site. Otherwise, they have no income. They have no cash coming in. Their cash coming in are deposits. And the cash going out comes through withdrawals. Now, they have expenses on top of that. But without deposits, the site is not making money. This is different than a brick-and-mortar room because a brick-and-mortar room pretty much has instant deposits and instant cash-outs for every player in the room. So let's say I go to Commerce and I buy into a 100-200 game for $5,000. So I go up to the cage. I give them $5,000. They give me 5000 in chips. Whatever I leave with, let's say I, I lose 2000 what I will do is I will take my remaining 3000 in chips, go back to the cage, and they will hand me $3,000 cash. So I, I don't walk out the door holding their chips. Now, I know there's a few people who store the chips in their boxes and whatever, but that's not, that's not the majority, so we're ignoring that. But at most live card rooms, people do not take the chips home. They cash them out immediately. So in this case... I buy in for 5000 I lose 2000 I cash out for 3000 when I'm leaving. So there's no chips that are still being held by me. So I'm leaving with $2,000 less. But my 2000 in chips landed in other people's stacks. And when they leave, they're going to cash out. So the only way commerce makes money is when these people cash out, they're not going to be cashing out 2000 of my money. They're going to be cashing out 2000 of my money minus whatever rake I paid and minus whatever rake they paid. And that's how commerce makes money. They make it immediately from the rake. Because everybody is buying in and cashing out at the beginning and end of each session. Online, it does not work that way, and it's a big difference. With online poker, people leave a balance there for long periods of time. So the only way they have money really coming in is through a deposit, And the only way they really have money going out, other than expenses, is through withdrawals. So here's an example of an online poker site, which would be a disaster, which would not be a disaster if it occurred at a brick-and-mortar room. Let's look at an online poker site 
where I deposit or not, where I'm sitting there and a fish deposits a thousand dollars. If that fish deposits a thousand dollars and sits with me and loses it to me within a short period of time, within like uh, twenty hands, that's a disaster for that online poker site. Why? Because they paid a hefty fee for that player to deposit because the, the money has to get on there some way. They've got to pay a payment processor. Sometimes like 10% they got to pay. So here they pay 10%. That player only lasts 20 raked hands. They don't make back $100 through those 20 raked hands. And then me as a winning player, I eventually go cash that out and they got to pay my cash out fee too. Because, again, the payment processor probably charges about 10%. So this means, with that fish depositing $1,000, they end up losing money if that fish loses it too fast because of the deposit fees and cash-out fees. So that's a disaster for them. Whereas a brick-and-mortar room, they don't really care if that happens. Of course, they'd prefer to see the same money be raked a lot more, but if a guy shows up, buys in for 1000 loses it immediately... It's not a disaster if it's very little raked and it gets cashed out because they don't have expenses really in buying in and cashing out. So that's why there's a big difference. And that's why it's much more important to an online poker room that the same money goes around and around and gets raked and raked and raked before it gets cashed out. And these pros, these grinders, they may generate a lot of rake, but they're also very good players who are beating the fish quickly. And a lot of times, the money that gets cashed out does not get raked enough to make it worth PokerStars' while. It's not enough to overcome the expenses they have for the buy-ins and the cash-outs. So it's not just about rake collected. It's about deposits that come in and that deposits that they circle around the table enough for a long enough time to rake enough to account for the company's expenses, especially with the buy-in and the eventual cash-out of the money. The ideal thing for a poker site would be for everybody to be near the same skill level to where there's very few cash-outs and to where eventually the money just gets raked off and they don't pay out any of it. So that's why it's very important for them to... make sure that most of the people who deposit can last for a while on there, and that's why having these super grinders is not good for the poker economy. They tolerate them, but they're not good. Even if they're paying a lot of rake, they're not good. So they don't care if those super grinders leave. In fact, they'd be happy to see them leave. They may take in less rake, but they're happy to see them leave. In fact, these players don't even deposit. These players take from the site. They don't give. Even if you say they're paying rake, if they're never depositing, they're taking money off the site. They're taking money out of the poker economy. They are. By definition, these guys who make a living playing poker are taking money out of the the poker economy, taking money out of the stars economy. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm saying for these players, it's great. That's what uh, they should aspire to do. But it's not helping stars. Whereas there is value on sites where winning players are keeping games going, even if they are beating the fish. There's a big difference. 
Because if the games won't go at all, then you need these guys, even with the negatives they bring that I just discussed. But if you don't need them to keep games going, then they're totally a waste. Lost team MLK, I see. No wonder he's been so quiet. I was wondering why he was... Like, what? I didn't hang up on him. He just disappeared. It's his fault. I blame him. So, the problem is these grinders, a lot of them still see themselves as, like, they are poker stars. They think, well, without us, where's the site going to be? What about all the games we keep going? We're the most important. We pay the most in rake. We make your site active. Not really, not anymore. But I agree that Poker Stars is being scummy in the way they're handling this. As Donnie Stern said, they are going back on agreements they had, and this is where I think they are being unethical and they need to change. And since none of this is being implemented until January 1st, there's still time for them to reverse course and change. So here are the things I believe that PokerStars is doing that's unethical. Number one, they lied to their super grinders in 2015 by portraying Supernova Elite as being worth 68 to 75% rake back once earned. It says in their own graphic, continuing Supernova Elite once you're there, you'll make 68 to 75% in rake back. That's what it says on their own site. It still says that today if you go there. Well, that's a lie because that 68 to 75% will fall to 45% in 2016. So somebody who puts the time and effort, the massive time and effort required to make Supernova Elite in 2015, believing that one of the benefits they'll get is the ability to make 68 to 75% rake back in 2016, now is having that taken away. So they earned something being told that going forward you'll have this benefit for the subsequent year, and now they're not going to have it anymore, which is a total bait-and-switch. A total bait-and-switch. Also, it's far easier to maintain Supernova Elite in the subsequent year than it is to earn it initially. It's unethical to chop the benefits like this in the second year like they're doing. It's safe to assume that the players earning it in 2015 believed that they were getting these great benefits the next year following when they earn it. That's part of the reason they earned it. You can't take it away after the fact. It's not fair. The devaluation of the FPPs is not fair. They should be converted at 1.6 star coins per FPP, not 1.2. They're only giving two months' notice to players to spend their FPPs at the current rate. And this especially harms casual players who may not be aware of the change. And even if Star sends out a warning email saying, hey, cash out your FPPs now, use them now because they're going to go down in value. They haven't done this, but even if they do this, that's still not good enough because casual players may not even understand this. And many of them won't even bother because uh, they'll feel they don't have enough FPPs there to be worth it. Bottom line is, if you earned FPPs and they were worth 1.6 each, each when you earned them, they should remain 1.6 cents each when you earn them. Period. If PokerStars says they're worth that much in their promotional material on their site, which it does say, 
when they're giving values of rakeback percentage, blah, 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 they're basing that on the 1.6 cents per FPP. So if they're promoting it that way, and then they can devalue it on you at their will, then they're, they're basically stealing 25% of the value from you. I don't care if they give you two months to spend it. It's not fair. Now, if they want to say going forward, each, each time you earn an FPP or its equivalent is going to be 1.2%, so they want to say what you earn in the future is going to be worth less, that's fine because then you have the option whether you want to keep playing and get 25% reduced rake back. Fine. But if you've already earned it, they shouldn't be able to take it away. Now, some people have said, wait, what about like airlines? You earn frequent flyer miles, and it's known that airlines keep devaluing those. Yes, but the difference is airlines do not tell you that a frequent flyer mile is worth such and such value per mile. They don't. Some people attempt to figure it out. There's websites dedicated to discussing this, but it is never guaranteed to you. It's never promised to you by United Airlines or American Airlines or Delta or whoever that each mile is worth two cents or one and a half cents or whatever. You can try to figure it out, but this is not promised to you. This is like a promotional thing they're giving you. So if they want to devalue it, they can. And they have been. That's not what FPPs were. FPPs were promoted as something that has real value. And something that has real value should not degrade. Now, this does not surprise me because PokerStars screwed its U.S. players after Black Friday regarding FPP value. I got screwed. When Black Friday happened and I cashed out my FPPs, I was forced to do it at one cent per FPP when they should have been worth 1.6. I earned them when I was at Supernova when they were worth 1.6. And they forced me to take them at one. And when I said that at the time, boy, did everyone get in my case. How dare you say this about stars, they told me. Stars is the only one paying people out their balances. Look what Full Tilt did. Look what UB did. They stole our money. Stars is not only giving us our money immediately, but they're giving us our value for our FPPs. And how dare you question that they're not giving as much in FPPs as you hoped they would. What a jerk. What an entitled asshole, people said to me. Boy, I got torn a new one over that. Well, guess what? This is the same thing. I made the points back in 2011 that when people earned their FPPs, not only did stars routinely say that they were worth 1.6 cents each, not only did stars pay out FPPs at 1.6 cents each when they kicked off all their Washington players prior to Black Friday, not only did stars post on 2 plus 2, that they were worth 1.6 cents each. But they encourage you to hoard your FPPs to reach huge prizes such as sports cars and other stuff. So here they tell you to hoard your FPPs. Here they assign a value to them. Here they compare FPPs to traditional rakeback being given on other sites. And then they devalue it when it comes time to pay it out. It's, it's a complete bait and switch. And I said Stars was not doing us a favor by paying out the FPPs. They were paying them out because this was something you earned. This was something that they were promising you in return for playing their, on their site that had real value. So I got screwed to the tune of like $1,800 over this. And I'm still mad about it to this day, even though it happened almost five years ago. 
So they've done it before, and they're doing it again. They should not ever devalue FPPs that have already been earned. That's stealing. So they, they shouldn't be doing that either. I don't know why they're doing this. Like, it's just a money grab. If you want to convert them to Stars coin, fine. Do it at the real value. Now, they may say, well, not everybody earned the FPPs when they were worth 1.6. What if people who were not supernova? They couldn't ever redeem them at 1.6, so we shouldn't give them at 1.6. Well, fine. Then analyze at what level each person earned them and convert them using that schedule. But convert them at whatever maximum it was that FPPs could have been redeemed at for the person earning them. Don't screw these people by lopping off the value by 25%. That's unethical. And finally, about the removal of rakeback and tier credits for medium and high-stakes players. I don't understand why they're doing that. They can do that. That's not unfair. It's not unethical. They can make whatever policy going forward they want as far as what they give those people, but... I don't understand it. It's a big slap in the face to anyone who played middle stakes or high stakes. And you have to realize that recreational players are not all low stakes players. There are plenty of recreational players who play medium and high stakes. In fact, if there weren't, then those games wouldn't go because all the pros don't want to play with one another. They, most of the pros want to play against fish. So by refusing to give any kind of VPPs or rakeback to players at medium and high stakes games, you're not only screwing the grinders, you're screwing your recreational players, the ones you claim that you want to uh, attract so much. Not only that, these recreational players are the most important ones because they're playing the higher stakes games. That's where you get the most money deposited into the cider from those people. You don't make that much from the guy putting in 80 bucks to play micro limits. You make the money from the people putting in thousands of dollars to play higher stakes games. You want to encourage them. You don't want to give them no credit for playing medium and high stakes games. And yes, they'll notice. I I don't know why this war on medium and high-stakes players. Now, I understand they're probably figuring that uh, that money, it costs them a lot to process getting it on there, and then the fish lose it quickly, and they end up losing it in the way I described uh, earlier, to where stars can even lose money on these type of transactions, but still. They should not be punishing anyone who wants to play medium and high-stakes games just because a lot of them are pros. They shouldn't give them more rake back, but they should give them equivalent as to what they give at other stakes. Now, I fully support their policy changes regarding the the software ban, the third-party software ban. That should have been done a long time ago. Third-party software provides an unfair advantage to those with those tools, and that's against the entire spirit of poker. You should succeed and fail at poker only with what you can do with your own mind. You should never succeed due to having computerized tools which give you an unfair advantage computationally over other players at the table who don't have such tools. That should not be why you win. You shouldn't win because you have better computer programs analyzing the game. You should win because you're a better player. That's it. There are only two reasons you should win in poker. One, you're better. Two, you're luckier. Not because you have better tools to analyze the table. 
So those should have been taken away a long time ago. I'm glad Stars is doing that. Great. So overall, I think Amaya is doing the right thing by giving the middle finger to its super grinders. But they also should have approached it more ethically and at least handled their prior obligations fairly. 775-FRAUD55, 775-372-8355 is the phone number. See if I got any texts. See what the chat is saying. Yeah, Beer and Poker is saying that. What about all the dormant accounts? That's what I was saying. Like, and by the way, uh, back in 2011, they Superman threed and office spaced everybody there who had a remainder of twenty five dollars or less of FPPs in their account. Not even twenty five dollars. Anyone had twenty four hundred ninety nine FPPs or fewer after they redeemed their blocks of FPPs. Couldn't get them at all. That they just kept the remainder for the millions of accounts of people who did that. Uh, because when you would cash out your FPPs after Black Friday, you couldn't just say, "Okay, I've got uh, four hundred eighteen thousand FPPs. Just give me its equivalent in money." No, you have to buy these blocks. So you had to buy one block at uh, four hundred thousand, the next block at. Uh, at uh, 50000 the next block, at 25000 like you had to buy them in blocks, so you always have a remainder at the end. Just about everybody has a remainder at the end of anywhere between 1 and 2499 FPPs. And those were useless. You couldn't do anything with the remainder. You just had to forfeit them. That was another way they stole a lot of money from people. So I'm not surprised by any of this. Aaron Mykunt, I know he was a grinder on there. I don't. I think he lives in New Jersey now, and he can't play on there. But he either is or was a grinder on Poker Stars, and he's pissed about this. And he's saying, "Watch how many different forms of poker die because of this." I don't believe it. I I think that most of the people are going to stay anyway. They're not, uh, especially if they bring back the rake back for middle and high stakes. But I don't think that I don't think that a lot of the games are going to die. If people can beat the games, they can beat the games. And like, look at Bovada. Bovada is quite active. Not as active as Poker Stars, but it's quite active. Even though they give no rake back, the tables are anonymous. There's a lot of really player unfriendly stuff going on at Bovada, and yet people play there because they feel they can beat the games. It's, it's back to the old fashioned, I play poker because I want to win thing, rather than I play poker I want to break even and win rake back. So I think whatever does die there isn't going to hurt stars that much. I don't think this is going to bring more recreational players to the game. I don't think Rex are going to go, oh, I'm going to put more money on poker stars because the pros are gone now. No one's going to say that. They're not going to get more recreational players as a result of this. But I think the money deposited by recreational players is going to stay on there longer before it gets uh, won and cashed out by pros. And I, I think basically Amaya is just tired of giving away the farm to players who are not really doing anything for them. And that's the bottom line. They don't; These players don't deserve anything special. They don't deserve anything more than the average recreational player. They don't deserve 75% rake back. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Now, 
there's another piece of the story which some people would probably say I should not be doing and should not be mentioning, but I'm going to anyway. Daniel Negranu, who's the face of Poker Stars, immediately everyone went to him and said, Hey, Daniel, you're a longtime player. You're accessible. You seem like a guy who cares. What do you think of all this? Don't you think this is awful? Now, Daniel is known as a huge Poker star shill. He tries not to look like one, but he is. Daniel will say whatever he has to say to make Poker Stars look good. They pay him a lot of money each year. I have to imagine they pay him like a million bucks between cash and tournament buy-ins. So Daniel gets a lot of money to promote Poker Stars, and he's not going to come out and bash Poker Stars because they put a lot of money in his pocket. So he's been publicly defending Poker Stars, but at the same time, Daniel does care. And Daniel does understand that a lot of these things that are being done are unethical. That at the very least, stars should be honoring their prior promises and obligations. They shouldn't be making so many changes starting 2016. Daniel feels that what they should do... Basically, he feels the same way I feel. It's funny, we came to the same conclusion independently. I don't believe Daniel read my post about the situation, but we came to the same conclusion independently. Basically... This is how I feel. I think that poker stars should make these changes, but they shouldn't take effect till January 1st, 2017. They should leave everything the same for Supernova Elite for 2016. And then just drop it completely on the, on 2017 as soon as that arrives. That will make it fair. That will make it so everybody who earned Supernova Elite gets what they thought they were earning. That will make it so Nobody can say they were misled. Also, I feel they should not devalue FPPs, as I explained earlier. And I think they should continue to give rake back, standard rake back, but rake back nonetheless, at the higher stakes games, in the middle stakes games. So Daniel feels the exact same way. This is exactly what Daniel wants. Now, publicly, Daniel has been defending them. Publicly, Daniel's been saying this is going to help recreational players. It's going to help the poker economy. You guys don't understand uh, what seems like it's not good right now for certain people. It's going to be great for poker as a whole, blah, 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 blah. Daniel has been doing nothing but defending stars publicly. But privately, something else has been happening. Daniel was invited into a Skype chat with a number of concerned players who basically brought him in there and said, Daniel, what do you think of all this? Now, Daniel could have just given a diplomatic answer and said, sorry, Beth, this, I see where you're coming from, but nothing we can do, nothing I can do. I'm just a representative. But he didn't. Daniel actually had a conversation where he revealed what he had been doing behind the scenes. And someone took that conversation and uploaded it to the web. And it was posted on 2 Plus 2, and 2 Plus 2 immediately deleted it. You're not allowed to post this conversation on 2 Plus 2. You're not supposed to see this. Because this was something that Daniel said, please don't tell anyone because I, you know, this isn't supposed to be public. 
Well, it was posted over on Poker Fraud Alert by someone. I, I don't even know who the person is. It's someone who has an account that hasn't been used very often, but they came here to dump this. And I decided to let it stand because I, I think it's useful information. And it it's information that, number one, I don't think it's going to get Daniel really in any trouble. Number two, it's useful for people to see this and see what Daniel's doing behind the scenes. Number three, I think this makes Daniel look good. So it's not like reading this is going to make you hate Daniel. If anything, it makes you like Daniel more. And uh, and also, I don't think anything really private's being revealed. Like, I, I would feel funny about this if this revealed any personal information about Daniel's life or revealed his salary that he doesn't want people to know. Or it's nothing like that. It's just about what he's doing about this situation behind the scenes. So I didn't think this should be removed, so I left it up. You can go to the Poker Fraud Alert uh, Poker Community Discussion Forum and look under the thread entitled 2016 Poker Stars VIP Club Changes Rile Up High Stakes Pros and go to page 2 and you'll see this has been posted by a user named Snodgrass. So someone who was in this conversation... Maybe it was uh, Snodgrass himself. Maybe uh, it looks like he captured it from 2 plus 2, actually, but whatever. Uh, this conversation definitely did take place. It was verified by Brian Pellegrino, who was part of it, and Ryan Bell, also known as Moldy Onions, that this conversation did take place. So this is not phony. But it was a conversation of uh, several high-stakes players and grinders with Daniel. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you guys. If you want to see it, you can look on the forum. I'm going to read some things Daniel said, though. Hi, guys. Daniel Negreanu here. Little update on what's been going on behind the scenes. I've been on calls for six to eight hours a day, about half of those one-on-one with CEO of Amaya, David Bezov. Whoa! Six to eight hours on the phone every day about this? And about half of that time with the CEO? Whoa. Isn't that strange? Like, Daniel's been on the phone for all these hours with the CEO about this matter. Wow. We've covered the wide spectrum of issues, but ultimately my main focus is getting him to implement these changes starting January 1st, 2017 and honor the Supernova Elite commitment. Keep all of this private for now. Oops. Sorry, Daniel. I hope you don't yell at me next time we play together at the World Series. If you do, <laughs> I'll take it. But, uh, I'm reading this anyway. And by the way, I wasn't part of this conversation. I'm I'm not breaking any code of silence here. This was posted to the web by someone else. I wasn't part of this whole thing. He said, I've made some ground on the elimination of the VPPs for high stakes. But that's secondary to the key issue of integrity in terms of the VIP promises that were made. Again, please don't share this publicly. Oops, again. But my resignation is obviously in play as much as I would hope that it doesn't have to come to that. Whoa. So Daniel's saying that his resignation might occur if they refuse to do this, which would be huge. Imagine if Daniel Negreanu resigning and giving up all that money. So, so he's saying he's not threatening this yet, but if they won't budge, that he might resign. Credit to him for playing hardball here. Good for Daniel. 
That would be even worse to the players because as of now, there is no one else within the company working towards a reversal of these changes, and I believe that. I should add that I do, as most reasonable players, understand that these changes are essential. They just have to happen because the current system isn't sustainable. I agree with that too, Daniel. What's not okay is the fact that the changes were not adequately communicated to the players in a timely fashion. Bezov disagrees, hence the back and forth I have continued with him. He also cites that we have done this before as a company in the French market, as well as changed the way VPPs were distributed in 2011, I believe, which was announced in December. Today I'm gathering information to show him why that's very different. Any feedback on that will be helpful. So Daniel claims that they're already about to reverse the whole thing with not giving rake back for high-stakes games and medium-stakes games, but that the other thing that they're not budging on right now, but he's very, very strongly pursuing it with the CEO, David Bezoff. He says, again, please don't discuss this publicly. It will only do more damage than good. I mean, specifically what I've shared. So I, I felt a little funny reading this on the show, but... It's gotten out enough already, and I'm sure it's already gotten back to poker stars that this has gotten out. And, and the bottom line is, I, I think this is a positive for Daniel. They're not going to fire him over this. You know, so he told someone privately, and they shared it publicly. Okay, that happens. But they're, they're not going to fire Daniel, believe me. They, they love having Daniel. They, they love Daniel over there. There's no way they're going to can him. So if I thought this could get Daniel fired, I wouldn't publish it. By publish it, I mean allow it to be published on my site. I'm not the publisher, but having it uh, published on my site. But I think this makes Daniel look like a guy who wants to fight for the rights of poker players, and that's great. So I think people should see that he's doing this. And since it's already gotten out, and since Poker Stars has already probably realized that he has told people he's doing this. Uh, I, I think it's better that more people see it at this point. And Daniel himself can't go post this at this point, even if PokerStars knows. And keep in mind, he has not asked me to take this down. If he messaged me and said, hey, Todd, can you take this down? I really don't want this up here. I, I would take it down. But uh, he hasn't. So he wrote, the truth is, there are so many ridiculously amazing promotions in store for 2016 we can't share. Communication has been awful, just bad news and more bad news for the players. We did have an 18% increase in signups this year, but they're obviously losing their deposits at a much much faster rate, over 40% faster. So he's complaining that uh, the rec players are just losing super fast due to the super grinders playing so many tables, and just they got to change this. Bezov is not the devil. He actually believes the changes will help, and we won't know for sure until that happens. My main concern and the focus of all my time is not eliminating these changes. It's delaying them until January 1st, 2017. So Daniel's on the right track here. This is exactly what I would be doing if I were in his shoes. I, I think this is great, what Daniel's doing. I think he's hammering on all the right things. He's not being unrealistic. I mean, we have dumb things in this conversation, like Brian Pellegrino, who idiotically defended Locke till the very end, or almost the very end. Told people it's all okay. Tell people he believes in the company, that they should trust Jennifer Larson, that they're not having their money stolen. He basically was trying to shoot down every point that was against Locke the whole way and looked like a fool. Well, he looks like a fool again. He said, this is Brian Pellegrino. If the new changes 
take place. One, two, no limit is unbeatable for 90 to 95% of the field. Is Stars okay with that, or are they going to actually make efforts to keep the games beatable and fair for people playing them? Hey, memo to Brian Pellegrino. Not every game in poker is long-term beatable. Low-limit games in brick-and-mortar rooms are not long-term beatable in most cases. The rake is so high that even if you're substantially better than the competition, you're going to lose in the long run because the rake is too damn high. The rake will beat you at most of these low-stakes games in live card rooms. That's the truth. So a poker room is not required to offer a long-term beatable game for the best players. They're not. So that's a stupid point. Poker Stars is not existing so pros can make a living. Poker Stars is existing to offer poker games to people who want to play poker. That's it. They don't have to worry about who can beat them and who can't. Daniel brought up the point that if everybody was of the same skill level, no games would be beatable. Because everyone would lose to the rake in that case. So you cannot blame a poker site for providing, quote, unbeatable games. So those points are stupid. But Daniel, he sees the good points and he also sees the stupid points. And he's only bringing up the good points to CEO David Bezoff. Daniel DeGranu is a smart guy. He may be a little bit weird. He may be too obsessed with his Choice Center crap. But he's a smart and sensible guy. And that's why he has been so successful in poker. That's why he has a lot of people that like him. That's why he's a very good ambassador for poker. That's why he hasn't been involved in any kind of big scandal. Really any scandal. The only controversy surrounding Negreanu are just things he gets involved with which are kind of stupid or weird. But uh, he doesn't cheat anyone. And he tries to act in the best interest of poker. So... I think this all makes him look very good. I was very impressed with Negranu and the effort he's putting into this behind the scenes. I thought he was just going to defend, defend, defend and act like a big poker star shill, which he is doing publicly, but privately he's really fighting for the players. So great. Good job. And I mean that. I'm not being sarcastic. I really mean good job. Thumbs up, Daniel. You're handling it well. Let's see if we got any text about this or anything else before we move on to our next topic. I know we spent a while on this, but got one text in the 505 area. Yeah, but don't HUDs compensate for the digital age? How can you expect a person to remember the amount of hands they play per hour playing online, especially in big bet games? He's talking about the player assistant programs that uh, they comp- they compensate for the fact that you're playing so many hands per hour that they help you remember which players are better than others. Look, if these were built-in tools to the poker site, that'd be one thing. But the problem is they're not accessible to everybody. They're only accessible to those who know they exist and know where to get them. And casual players or players who are not very computer savvy do not have access to them or don't know that they exist or don't know how to get them. And that's not fair. There should never be at the poker table electronic tools which helps some players and not others. 
Everything has to be on equal ground. That's why these need to go. You should never have like a computer that can analyze the way things are going at the poker tables. It can analyze your players. You, the player analysis at a poker table should occur in your mind and in your mind only. It should not occur through an automated system that watches these players and has a perfect memory. That's unfair because some of these players don't have the same ability to do that to you. It's not fair that you can see stats about players that they can't see about you. You should win or lose in poker either through your skill or through your luck, not through computerized tools that only certain people have. That's why I don't support these. That's why I think they should be eliminated. So again, if you want to see this whole conversation, which is fairly lengthy, go to the Poker Community Discussion Forum on Poker Fraud Alert and find the thread called 2016 Poker Stars VIP Club Changes Rile Up High Stakes Pros thread in that forum. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. Someone's saying there's a chat problem. I, I don't see a chat problem. Oh, I see. Danny Deadwood was coming in and out. I can tell you Danny Deadwood, he's a good guy. He's uh, donated in the past. He must have just had a computer issue, but I, I see it's uh, it's over now anyway. Tilted Stone in chat is saying that Daniel released it himself to make himself look good. Hmm. Well, I I don't think so, because I don't think Daniel wants his bosses at Amaya seeing that, like, he's revealing his discussions with them behind the scenes. Like, if they found out about this, which I think they probably have by now, I think they're annoyed. I think they're annoyed with Daniel for revealing the content of these conversations. But they're not going to fire him because he's too valuable. So, I don't think he released it himself. Anything's possible, but I don't think he released it himself. And that's usually not Daniel's play. He's not known as a schemer or someone who does this sort of thing. He's usually known to be pretty straightforward, pretty much a straight shooter. (laughs) Beer and Poker said... In chat, Daniel is replaceable. Jason Somerville moved up to the number one homosexual on the Poker Stars Team Pro roster. <laughs> well, Jason Somerville is an out homosexual, as most of you know, but Daniel, for many years, people assumed that he was a closet gay guy, but I don't. I don't know, because Daniel, he really, really, really had a big thing for Amanda Leatherman. And I know this for a fact. I know this wasn't just a beard. It wasn't Daniel pretending to be really into her just so he doesn't come off as gay. Like, I know for sure that he was legit, like, really, really, really into her. And I can't see a gay guy being this obsessed with a woman. Like, it just doesn't happen. Like, uh, guys who get married or have girlfriends who are actually gay, you always hear the same story from their girlfriends. You know, he didn't seem that into me. He didn't seem that into the relationship. Uh, you know, he wasn't obsessed with me at all. <laughs> he didn't seem to really care if I stayed or left. Like That's always what you hear from women who are with guys who turned out to be gay. 
and Daniel was not exhibiting that at all. I, I guess I believe if I would believe maybe that Daniel's bisexual. I'm not saying he is. I'm saying like I could believe that. I don't believe he's gay though. But I think Daniel probably is straight and the gay or bisexual thing, it's just kind of in his mannerisms, but he's not. And I've I've known guys like that before. I've known guys who come off kind of effeminate and kind of gay and aren't. Just like there's guys who don't come off gay at all and are. I know it's much more common that a guy who appears gay is gay. But I have known of guys who are completely straight that if you met them, you'd swear they were gay. I've known of girls who come off as lesbians, where you'd be shocked that they'd like men, and yet they're completely straight. They're not even bisexual. So it happens. So I think I think that uh, Daniel is one of those guys. I think Daniel's straight, if I had to guess. Just the the level he was obsessed with Amanda really strikes me as something that would happen from a straight guy. Jason Somerville is pretty popular, though. People really like him. He was voted number one podcast. This was voted number four podcast. But hey, I'll take it. I'll take number four. That is number four poker podcast. The two plus two poker cast, by the way, which one of the two hosts of the show listens to this show every week. Uh, That was ahead of ours. They were either number two or three. But that's fine. Two plus two is a bigger site. I can understand how they got a higher rating than this site. I mean, they, they have a bigger audience. But yeah, I've got my thousand people. I'm happy with my thousand people. Lou Father saying in Chad, Daniel Druff going hard in the paint against Daniel Negreanu. No, I'm not. I'm being supportive here. I'm saying that he's probably straight. I'm saying he looks great in this whole situation. And I mean it. If I thought Negreanu was gay, I'd say so. But I don't think he's gay. From the 505 area, Druff, I bet that's the best backhanded compliment Daniel's ever gotten. (laughs) Maybe so. All right, let's go on to a new topic, a new old topic. Poker Hall of Fame, I mentioned last week what a joke it is. John Juwanda and Jennifer Harmon were elected, which is fine, but the voting process is very, very suspect and has all kinds of problems and is easily... Manipulated by those who want to manipulate it. Seth Polanski, who is the number three guy at the World Series of Poker, as far as management is concerned, he wrote an article that was published on CalvinAir.com defending the Hall of Fame voting process. He also made an oral statement about the whole thing. And this is what, uh, I'll play this first, what Seth Polanski had to say about the Hall of Fame voting process and why it's actually okay. Okay. That's not what he said. 
But since it had to do with Seth Polanski, I had to play that. No, uh, Seth Polanski did have something to say about this. And I'm going to read it to you. Now, why is he commenting on it? Uh, The World Series has been very much promoting the Poker Hall of Fame. I'm not sure why, but for whatever reason, they've kind of partnered with it. I don't think officially, but they really seem to be pushing it. So it's to Seth Polanski's advantage that it is taken seriously. And Seth Polanski is someone who cares when something that is associated with the World Series is criticized. He doesn't hide from commenting on these things. He He's aware of the criticism. As I said, he, he pays attention to what's talked about on this show, and other shows too. But he pays attention to social media, including radio shows. And when something is criticized that the World Series is associated with, it's his job, he feels, to try to diffuse it. So he's attempting to do that with the Poker Hall of Fame. So this is what he wrote about it. This was published four days ago on CalvinAir.com. He says, there's a battle raging within poker. On one side, you have North Americans. On the other side lies everyone else. The reason for the war is the Poker Hall of Fame. Now, I wouldn't say that, by the way. I know that the non-Americans were complaining that you don't have a chance to get elected if you're not American because of the voting blocks and the voting manipulation. And I agree with that. But I'm not European. I'm American. And I am on the side of bashing the Poker Hall of Fame because their voting process is BS. And it's unfair and it's easily rigged. And that's... It doesn't just affect Europeans. It also affects Americans. David Chu, who I know wasn't born in America, but he lives in America, he's getting screwed year after year. And it's not because he's European. It's not even because he wasn't born in America. He's just screwed because he's not friends with the people voting. So it says, the North Americans are happy that the Poker Hall of Fame inducted Jen Harmon and John Juwanda. Nobody else is. Each complaint contains a cushy caveat that both deserve to be inducted, followed by the word that my wife says I pull out of the knife drawer when I'm upset to defend myself. Or I pull the knife out of the drawer when I defend myself is what he's trying to write. But they should have inducted the devil fish instead. This is actually not from Polanski. This is uh, from Lee Davey, who's writing about Polanski. I reached out to Polanski to ask him for his opinion of the recent uproar, and this is what he said. So up till now, this is I, I thought these were Polanski's words, but it, it's kind of unclear in this article. This is what I just read. He's from Lee Davey, who wrote the article, and now this part is from Polanski. Who is in charge of the structure and and can affect change in the Poker Hall of Fame? We just administer the existing criteria. Oh, I see now. He says, since we inherited the Poker Hall of Fame from Binion's a decade ago. So I guess the World Series of Poker owns it. I never knew that. I I learned this during the show. (laughs) For some reason, I skipped over that part when I read it. All righty. Saying it out loud, it hammers it in. No wonder they're so into this at the World Series, because I guess they technically own it. Since we inherited the Poker Hall of Fame from Binion's a decade ago, that is when they bought them, when they bought the World Series, we only made two tweaks to address some of the concerns we saw. One was to add the age minimum, because Tom Dewan and Isildur were getting too many nominations, and we added a blue-ribbon media panel to cast votes to help broaden the base of voters. But in general, the group responsible is the Poker Hall of Fame Government Council. 
So he's claiming here that they just didn't mess with it too much. He's saying we, we bought it when we got Binion's. We didn't really intend to buy it. It just kind of came along with it. And we, we tried to just leave it alone, is what Seth's saying. Who is the Poker Hall of Fame Governing Council? A group that comes together a couple of times a year to deal with the process. There is a sway of opinion that as, big, that as long as the current Poker Hall of Fame members have the final vote and the Poker Hall of Fame continues to grow its American member base, that even more Americans will get in. What is your view on this? That was the question to, uh, from Lee Davey. I wish they would separate Lee Davey and Seth Polanski in this article. It's hard to read. So Seth Polanski said they're right. That's true. But we haven't inducted a single member. There were 25 years of inductees when we got involved, and the voters have determined since then who gets in. So we don't believe our role is to try to manipulate the membership to better balance for what part of the world a person comes from. We believe that if you make the finalist list, it is in essence a confirmation you meet the criteria and will undoubtedly get in at some point in time. Just like Miss Harmon has waited for more than half a decade to get in, she eventually did, and we're confident other finalists will get in too. I wouldn't say that. You're going to have a lot of worthy people that uh, reach the required age, which I think is 40. I think a lot more than the two that can be elected each year. Anyway, Lee Davy asks, why do the current Hall of Fame members have a vote, and why are they allowed to vote anyone in regardless of the public vote? He says, first off, the public doesn't vote. I don't know why Lee Davy asked that. I mean, even I do that. They nominate. Then the Poker Hall of Fame Governing Council reviews all the public nominations and puts forth the 10 deemed fit to criteria. So that's the problem. That's a problem right there. That's one of the problems is that the process used to translate nominees into the ones you actually vote on, not you, but the ones they vote on, the 10 finalists, uh, it's not a transparent process. They just come up with it. They, do, they just come up with 10 names, and you, you have no idea how they did it. There's nothing transparent about the whole thing. Even the public nominations are not transparent. Nothing's transparent. So even that could be rigged. So he goes on to say, Then the Poker Hall of Fame members are voters along with the Blue Ribbon Media Panel. This year it was 23 Poker Hall of Famers and 16 media members, which, by the way, as we mentioned last week, is a lot fewer media than the previous year. Poker Hall of Famers have the ability to nominate someone that will get considered on the next year's ballot if they meet the criteria. The truth is it's really no different than the rights everyone out there has, meaning Poker Hall of Famers can't say they want X in and we automatically make X a finalist the next year. They have to meet the criteria to become a finalist like every other candidate. Well, that's stupid. Like, the, the criteria to become a finalist is very broad, especially because you can make someone a finalist not just based upon the results at the table, but also what they've, quote, done for poker. So you can take just about anyone and say that they're Hall of Fame worthy because of what they've done for poker outside of the table. Hell, even I could be nominated and it could be defended. Now, I don't deserve it, but it could be said that for doing this radio show and for fighting against AP and UB and their scandals, for that I deserve to be in the Poker Hall of Fame. I don't agree with that, but it could be said that I made contributions to poker outside of the poker table. So even though I only have one bracelet from 10 years ago and I don't play that many tournaments and I, I, you know, I don't play the very highest cash games, I'm not a Hall of Fame caliber player at this point, probably never will be, uh, you could claim that I still deserve a nomination. And you can claim that about just about anyone and find some flimsy reason. So that's the problem is that a poker hall of famer who wants to see someone on the ballot can make it happen and find some really questionable reason why that is. 
So Leave Davy asked, has a discussion on change ever emerged, and could you share some thoughts on that? So Seth says, no, not to any great extent. <laughs> That's funny. Has a discussion on change emerged? No, not to any great extent. <laughs> I, mean, I guess at least he's honest. Jeez. All Hall of Fames are subjective. You are letting people vote for whom they feel is most deserving. Everyone has biases based on their background. Yeah, like their friends. It happens with the Baseball Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and every other one. Deserving people don't get in year after year. To make it a Hall of Fame, it should be hard. To make it into the Hall of Fame should be hard, and for the top percent of its members. Sure, there are probably 50 people who could make an argument to be in the Poker Hall of Fame, but it is no good to put all 50 in in one year and not to have any more to add for subsequent years. If someone is so worthy, they will get in. It's not just an if, it's a, it's a matter of when. It makes no sense in our eyes to manipulate the process. That, in essence, is just as bad as some of the things folks are accusing Certain people involved in the Poker Hall of Fame of now, it just shifts the blame. Again, it's subjective. Beauty is in the eye beholder. That's BS. Like, it's either being rigged and it's either being manipulated or it's not. You can't say, well, everyone will make it eventually, so who cares if the process isn't fair? You can't say that. That's not what he's saying directly, but that's what he's saying indirectly. So then Lee Davy asked, why aren't the members of the media who vote shown to the public if it's so transparent? Or so it's transparent. So Polanski says, all members of the media are allowed to identify themselves and identify they have a vote and identify who they voted for. There's no rules coming from the governing council stopping them. And while we believe in transparency in almost all cases, there's some downside in this instance, which is why we don't out them. I I think they should be outed. You don't have to out who they voted for, but you should say who they are. First, they are volunteers. They aren't getting paid to partake, and we don't want the important task to become a burden. Second, we don't want them to be lobbied or harassed or bombarded by supportive of those, fi- of those finalists. We want them to, be, to make decisions based on their research and not be influenced or swayed. Well, yeah, but you could say that about any Hall of Fame. How come it's only the Poker Hall of Fame where that's covered up? Now, we have debated this and see some good about discussions occurring to ensure voters have all the information and knowledge as possible when making decisions, but we've chosen to counteract this concern by giving votes a lot of times to the media outlets. What we do is we put one person from a company in charge of assembling their entire editorial staff to discuss and debate the candidates and finally submit back to us their company's votes. While we don't observe any of the discussions that these outlets have, we assume that when we get a ballot back, it has been well thought out. You know what? Poker fraud alert should get a vote. How do you, as a media outlet, get a vote? I know Haley Hintz has a vote, for example. And she doesn't work for a large company. She works for Flush Draw, which is a good site, but it's not like a giant in poker. Now, I'm not saying Haley Hintz shouldn't have a vote. She should, because she's very knowledgeable. She's very intelligent. She's very logical and reasonable. But I think Poker Fraud Alert should have a vote. I should look into this. I don't think they're going to want to give us one, but I should ask. Lastly, if we make the list known, it could potentially cause those with votes to vote differently. Feeling pressure or scrutinized, voters may no longer vote for who they believe deserves it that year, but instead vote to keep the peace and try to guess the consensus, etc. How is that true if you don't have to say who you're voting for? Why not just say, I'm not revealing who I'm voting for. Thank you very much. Like, why not that? We don't think this is good. Also, as part of this... It is hard to find Blue Ribbon Media members that aren't affiliates 
or media outlets owned or run by a particular company or group with a more likely inherent bias. That sounds like us. Can't be more neutral than Poker Fraud Alert. I don't think anybody who is up for nomination in the Poker Hall of Fame, I would be biased toward. Like any of those people I'm not friends with. Not that I'm trying not to be friends with them, I'm just not. So, I think Poker Fraud Alert would be a perfect vote to give. I I should look into this. I'm I'm not even kidding. I should look into what criteria is used to give someone a vote. I think Poker Fraud Alert should have a vote. Believe it or not, I think 2 plus 2 should have a vote. Maybe they do, maybe they don't, but I think they should. Lee Davey asked, can you tell me who's in the Poker Hall of Fame Governing Council? He says, no, for the same reasons outlined above. (laughs) Why the secrecy? What the hell? Lee Davey asks, is it possible to see the votes for the shortlist and also the votes for the Poker Hall of Fame and media panel again to aid in transparency? Again, what do you think he had to say to that? You think it's going to be yes? Uh, no. (laughs) Since first, the nominations are nominations. The goal is to ensure everyone from far and wide can put forth names that are deserving. It is a way to ensure no one deserving gets left off. Terry Rogers this year is a good example of someone of that. Bob Hooks previously, etc. These aren't votes, though. Once names are dominated, they are analyzed, and the finalist list is based on these names versus the criteria of the hall itself. If a Hall of Famer or media member wants to detail their vote. We have no problem with that. But putting everything out there is just as potentially influencing for future years or shaming people and we just don't want to we just don't see the value of that. Okay, fine. You don't have to say who voted for who, but why not put like put out a list of who got what votes? Just like in elections. We see the number of votes that each candidate got. We don't see who voted for which candidate, but we see how many they got. Why don't we see that? Then he goes on to write, as I've explained in private emails to a few who inquired, if there's one thing that is occurring in the voting, it's the decision on how many people a voter votes for. Since there's a 10-point must system, meaning a voter can allocate 10 points, he can give them all to one person, split them among two people, or at a maximum, split them among three people. So some voters vote for one person and give them all 10 points. Others vote for three and may allocate those points as three, three, four. So in that case, someone who gets three points by one voter really needs three other voters also to give them three points to surpass the one voter who gave them 10 points. I thought it was a little bit of a different system, but whatever. Same concept. Uh, It says voters are told whom to vote for they believe is most deserving in that calendar year. But again, when you're dealing with people, they interpret the information and data as they see fit. 390 total points up for grabs this year, and each voter representing 2.5% of the votes. A finalist who gets to say five voters to give them all 10 votes accrues 50 points. Compare that to another finalist who may get 20 different voters to give them two points for 40 points. The finalist getting five people's support is ahead of the others getting 20 people's support. Is that fair? Is that the way it should be? Sure, that can all be questioned. But following the rules and the intent, simply the finalists getting the most total points are the ones ultimately inducted. It certainly doesn't mean that others don't have broad support. It just means that some guys have their votes split, in essence, when others not as much. Well, uh, yeah, thank you, Seth, for the education on that. But yes, this is very wrong. Yes, if five guys get together and give 10 points all to one person for 50 total points, 
that gives that person a huge edge that they should not have. And it makes it very tough for anyone else to overcome. So yes, that's rigging it. Yes, that's manipulating the system. It's not just, hey, we're still giving it to whoever gets the most points, so it's fair. No, it's not if you can manipulate the points. So here's another question. Why is it restricted to two inductees per year? He says, because that's what the original members had in mind after they had their initial year of establishing a base class. Could there be more? Sure. And perhaps as the growth of the game is seen this century, perhaps changes in the future. So he's also asked, what is your opinion of the widening of the selection committee to prevent the click-like mentality? He says, we haven't seen any evidence of a click. In fact, this was likely the closest voting year in a long time. More finalists earned a fair share of points than ever before. There were a lot of worthy candidates, many of which will be on the finalist list again next year, I'm sure. So that's not really answering it. That's just saying no. That's just saying we're, we're, we're going to let the clicks continue because uh, the votes were close this year, so everything must be fine. That's not true. That could just mean there were two competing clicks. There was the Juwanda and Harmon click, which was uh, Daniel Negreanu and friends, and probably uh, another click that were supporting a, a different contingent. But it still shuts out people that don't have influential friends in the Poker Hall of Fame that want to see them elected. So it's a crap process. I, don't, I, I understand what, what uh, Polanski's trying to say. He's saying we inherited this. It already existed. We didn't want to come in and, and railroad them and say, no, you're going to do it our way. I, I can see this, but now that you guys do own it, it's time to overrule some of the stupidity there. It's time to make it fair. It's time to make it to where it cannot be rigged by five people. It's time to become more transparent. I'm not saying you should make it completely transparent to where people can be harassed for who they vote for, but you need to make it more transparent to where everyone sees the process of how it goes on. It's very possible, for example, that the public nominations are useless. It's very possible that the public nominations are just being ignored and they basically select 10 finalists that they feel like putting up there. Saying, oh, we're, we're seeing who best fits the criteria is crap because the criteria is so broad. So either you need to have really strict criteria, or if it can be very broad criteria, you need to make the nomination process more transparent, you need to make the voting more transparent, and you need to change the voting system to where it's fair and You need to take in more than two people per year, and you need to separate votes for players versus non-players. You can't have them competing with one another. As I've said before, it's like Vin Scully competing with uh, players on the field for a Baseball Hall of Fame nomination. It should be two different things. A guy who's being nominated for his contributions as a tournament director should never be competing with someone who's the being nominated for their poker accomplishments. Apples and oranges. The whole thing's a mess. And uh, Polanski tried to defend it, but basically he's saying we're not going to touch it. We may make a few tweaks, but uh, we're leaving it alone. I think that's too bad. Seven seven five fraud fifty five. Anyone wants to call in seven seven five three seven two eight three five five. You can also text that number seven zero two. 430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. Got a few texts. Druff, do any listeners of your show listen to Art Bell out of Nye, Nevada? 
talking about Nye County, Nevada. I think Art Bell is in Pahrump. I have to imagine probably some of them do. Art Bell is just pretty much starting up his show again. So if you miss him, he's back. In fact, he just got back on uh, KBC Radio in Los Angeles. Uh, Art Bell has an interesting syndication package in that if you have a radio station, and I don't mean one like uh, Poker Fraud Alert that's an internet station, but if you have a terrestrial radio station, you are allowed to carry Art Bell's show for free. There are some very strict caveats with that. For example, you cannot compete with another station in your market carrying Art Bell. You have to carry him live. You cannot archive the show or make it available for download anywhere on your station's website. And you have to let Art run his own commercials, and you can only run your station's commercials like the final two minutes of each hour. So your station is not going to get a lot of money out of it, but if you just want to fill time, you can carry the Art Bell show, which I think broadcasts every night from like 9 p.m. to midnight on weekdays. And if you hear Art Bell on terrestrial radio, you're actually hearing a rebroadcast of the internet stream. So Art Bell is broadcasting from his own site and anyone else carrying it is actually copying the internet stream with their permission and putting it out on terrestrial radio, which is interesting because that's not usually the way it's done. Usually the internet stream is a copy of the live terrestrial broadcast. But here is the reverse. I don't listen to Art Bill. I think he's crazy. From the 516 area. Do you think poker stars will end up making more money or less money next year due to these changes? I think it's going to be about the same. I don't think it's going to be... I don't think these changes are going to mean a lot as far as what they make or don't make next year. I think that... uh, Outside market forces are going to determine that. So they may make more money, but it won't be because of these changes. But I don't think these changes are going to cost them money. I think there's going to be an upside and a downside in the short term to these changes, but I think these changes are positive. And I think in the long run, it'll help them. From the 505 area, why doesn't the Poker Hall of Fame at least set an earnings minimum? Well... I can see why they don't do that because earnings doesn't mean winnings. You can be a losing player and have millions of dollars in earnings. So that's the problem there. If there was a way to keep track of every tournament someone entered and come up with a winnings minimum, that would be great, but that's too hard to do. So I wouldn't support that, but the the process has to be more transparent. It's... It really is like a good old boys network. And I, I don't blame the Europeans for being pissed off about this. I don't blame the general public for being pissed off about this. It's The whole Poker Hall of Fame is a joke, and the World Series, they need to stop defending it. They need to just change it. They need to say, we own it. This isn't fair. It's changing now. And if a few old pros don't like it, too bad on them. Like, I I don't think old pros who bitch about the World Series forcing change in the Hall of Fame, I don't think they're going to get a lot of uh, support. As you've seen, like, look at Howard Litterer. He has no popularity anymore. He's he's pretty much uh, persona non grata in poker. He's part of the old school poker crowd. 
but people don't like him anymore because he stole the money from Full Tilt. So the general public is not going to be swayed by some old school name pros who are unhappy about it. I think the general public will be happy to see the World Series taking the lead and fixing the wrongs here. So I hope Seth changes his mind on this. Speaking of the World Series, I want to tell you a little story about my World Series of Poker food vouchers. Now, Poker Fraud Alert gets a media credential each year. And uh, the media credential... Yeah, it gives me a few elements of access that others don't have. It's not a wonderful thing, but I, I get it, you know, for in case I need it. I feel that uh, Poker Fraud Alert deserves it because we are media. We have a radio show every week. We have a forum which covers all current poker topics. We fight against scams and injustice in the poker community so basically when you get a media pass you have the right to use the World Series of Poker interview room you get to use the media room you get to use the media internet Uh, little perks like that nothing that wonderful but uh, one perk they do give you which is nice is they give you a food voucher for $10 each day you go pick it up now it would be nice if they just handed you like 40 food vouchers for the entire World Series, but it doesn't work that way. You have to go there all the way to the media room and find someone who's authorized to give them. They they guard these like they're gold. So they don't just give them to every employee there. You have to get them either from Seth or another manager there working under Seth. So I've gone there before and no one's there and it sucks. Like, like I walk all the way down the hallway to get there and then it's like a long walk. And I'm like, oh, I'm such a Jew. Why? Like, I'm going all the way down this long hallway for a damn $10 food voucher. But I go, no, I got to do it. I got to do it. Like, you know, <laughs> I, I go get the food voucher or I go to get it. And then there's no one there to give it to me. And I go, ah, shit. And I just go back with my tail between my legs. And I feel like such a foolish, cheap Jew for trying to get it in the first place. But then I go right back the next day to try to get it again. But I use them. And you can combine them. So if it's like actually using $10 a day, it wouldn't be worth it. But if you hang on to them, then you can use it for like a $50 meal, $60 meal, whatever. Like you can use, you can combine 20 of them if you want for a $200 meal. So it's nice to have. Well, I dutifully collected them when I was there at the Rio. Like I, I never went to the Rio just to get a voucher. Like even I wouldn't do that. But I, when I was there at the Rio... Uh, I would go get one, which was my right to do as a, as a credentialed media. And uh, I ended up with eight that I didn't use. But I figured no big deal because they had an expiration date of November 20th, and I figured that I'd be back at the Rio before November 20th. Well, I haven't been. I, I just haven't made it back down there. And November 20th is coming pretty damn soon, and I'm not going to be back there. So I offered them to Poker Fraud Alert members. I said, hey, anybody going to be in Vegas or wants to go to the Rio, let me know and I'll mail these vouchers to you and you can use them. Well, it turns out that uh, no, they can't. 
because even though it has an expiration date of November 20th, according to someone who tried to use them and couldn't and told Kevmath, uh, they're not valid. <laughs> so I, I guess what happened was whoever printed these vouchers asked, okay, well, when does the World Series end? And they were told November 20th. So they put expires November 20th, not realizing that this was not the intent of these vouchers, that the vouchers were actually supposed to be for covering the World Series during the summer. And that once the summer was over, or the summer for the World Series, that is, for the mid-July, that that was that, that you couldn't use them anymore. That it was not meant to last all the way through November, where you could just show up in August, September, October and use them. So uh, apparently they don't take them anymore. Apparently they've disabled the code that is used for these vouchers, and the computer can't take them. So these have completely gone to waste, and I feel like such a fool. Like, I wouldn't feel that bad if I just gave them away to someone from the site to use, but I feel like such a fool that I left with those vouchers and didn't use them. And I talked to Kevmath about it, he's like, yeah, I feel the same way. Like, Like, we both felt like major fools. We both felt like idiots. Someone else was asking on Twitter, oh, maybe we can use them for next year. Yeah, right. (laughs) Even I wouldn't expect that. But eight food vouchers. I could have had $80 worth of food at the Rio. And that goes a long way. $80. You know, there's a lot of parts of me that bothers. That bothers the Jewish part of me. That bothers the part of me that always wants to maximize the value I get out of the Caesars Corporation. That bothers the part of me that enjoys eating, a.k.a. my stomach. Like, you guys saw me eating on Live at the Bike, all that free food. Can you imagine? I gave up $80 worth of free food. All I had to do is, uh, on the last day, just show up and have a nice feast by myself. All on the Rio's dime, and I didn't do it. I don't care if it's only $80. It's killing me. I'm going to have nightmares tonight that I reach into my pocket and just see hundreds of vouchers and I can't use them. Even though I only have eight. Like My nightmare will be that I have like $110 vouchers and I can't use them. Like This is a very traumatizing thing for me to have $80 worth of food vouchers that I could have used and did not. Ugh. Let me tell you how much I always make sure to get value out of the Caesar Corporation. When I went to Atlantic City, I got a $500 food credit at Caesar's Atlantic City. And while I was there, I spent $424 of it. And I had to leave to go do something else. We were actually taking a road trip from there. We're going to go from Atlantic City up to Vermont and New Hampshire. And I said to Benjamin's mom, you know, this is really bothering me. I have $76 worth to spend on food, and we can't spend it. And we had just eaten, too. We just ate. This is after we ate lunch that day, and we had to leave. So I'm like, I can't eat another morsel. I'm full. We can't stay here any longer. We can't stay here for dinner. I have to just leave $76. It pissed me off. And I figured out what to do. I went down to their little food cart where they sell little items like little drinks and fruit And I bought $76 worth of stuff. And, like, no one buys $76 worth of stuff at that place. Like, this is where you stop by if you want to get a banana or you want to get a yogurt. You want to get uh, a drink. Like, nobody buys $76 worth of stuff. You don't like grocery shopping at that thing. But I did. 
I went grocery shopping at the little Caesars Atlantic City food cart. <laughs> they, they really couldn't believe it. And also I was going, okay, well, can you tell me what the running total is now? Okay, what if I add this? What's my total now? Okay, now what's my total? <laughs> like, I just kept doing this till I got to 76 bucks. And I said, okay, I'm done. And I took out bag after bag after bag of stuff I bought there. And it was useful because I put it in the back of the car and then we used it on the road trip. So like, you know, we, uh, anything that we wanted to eat while we were on the road, I had bought from that little cart. So it was very useful. It wasn't just to pointlessly spend money. I also did the same at Harris Rincon in northern San Diego where I had food credit that I wasn't going to completely use. So I went to a similar type thing there and I bought all this like Mexican soda and candy and all this other stuff that uh, they were selling there and took it home. So when I have a food credit, believe me, I spend every penny. So this freaking bothers me. I screwed up. I, I blew it. I thought, oh, I'll be back. It expires November 20th. Nope. Nope. Here's a text from Brandon Drexel Gerson. I asked him at 5 p.m., can you make radio tonight at any point? His response was, I've been sleeping for two straight days, have an awful cold slash bug, just woke up and saw this. So I guess that's a no. All right, Brandon, get better. You know, Benjamin's mom has actually been getting sick a number of times at the end of the year here. I haven't. I haven't caught it at all. Uh, I know I had a cold before, which affected my ability to get on radio. But other than that, I, I haven't been sick that much this year. But my problem this year has been pain. I've had an ankle injury that took forever to get better. I had this dental problem which lasted over a month I've had a knee problem which I think I inherited from my mom that's showing up it's been my issue this year has been pain I did get a double cold during the World Series you know two colds at the same time first time in my life I had that But apparently Brandon is sick now. Trader Ski, I just see your text right now that uh, you're available if I want to co-host. You're probably sleeping now, but if you're around, I'll, I'll put you on. I don't know why I didn't look before. I just saw your text when I went to look at Brandon's text. These guys are texting me on my like regular phone number, not the radio phone number. They are among the privileged few to have my regular phone number. So if I know you pretty well, I'll give you my regular phone number. Just don't give it out. Like my nightmare would be to have certain people on this forum having my phone number and calling to bug me. (laughs) At least the radio phone number, like, you know, that one, I could turn off for some time if it gets to be too much. But I wouldn't want some people here having my my regular phone number. Some of you I wouldn't care. (laughs) 
Everyone's asking me to talk about Dwight Pilgrim. Jay Stat is saying you're losing your fastball draft by forgetting eighty dollars worth of food vouchers. Yeah, I, I blew it. John Stamos says people in third world countries are having nightmares about getting eaten by a lion while sleeping outside or dying like, dying slowly from HIV. Druff's nightmares are about unused food vouchers. Yeah, that's true. I actually have a lot of nightmares. Not a lot, but I have some nightmares about not being able to find my way back to a tournament where I'm playing. Like, I take a break and I either can't get back there or I get back there and everything's gone. Like, or I, I make a final table and can't find it. Which is weird because I don't play tournaments that much. I, I hardly ever have a nightmare about cash games. Once in a while, but usually not. And my cash game dreams tend to be mixed. Either I do really well and I wake up and I'm all disappointed that I didn't really win. Or I lose a lot of money and I wake up like sort of relieved that I didn't lose it, but I also feel stressed out. So it's not even like I wake up from a big cash game loss and say, oh, I don't really, I didn't really lose anything. Wow, this is great. Like I don't feel happy. I feel stressed. Like my heart's beating fast. I'm pissed off. I'm, I'm reasoning to myself that I didn't really lose the money. Like I'll even wake up from the dream and think, well, wait, I think I still owe the money, right? Like, it was a dream, but I still lost to this guy. Shouldn't I pay him? Like, I, I've got to, like, reason with myself that, no, I didn't even really play it. Like, the, the people I lost to didn't really play me. It was all in my head. Lou Father is surprised I gave my cell phone number to Trader Ski. I don't see why. Why would I not give him that? There's a number of people I'm friends with that are kind of like background people on this site that, uh, you know, I don't talk about them that much and my friendship with them outside the site, but it exists. So I've said before, Traders, he's he's done a lot of nice things for this site, including uh, he helped arrange the the hats that uh, Poker Fraud Alert got. So he pointed me to someone who made those hats. So it got me a very good price. And, uh, you know, I bought the hats, but uh, he helped arrange that whole thing. And he didn't get anything out of it other than just being helpful. Okay, so I'll talk about Dwight Pilgrim. I have to research this during the show, but what the hell. Uh, Dwight Pilgrim, if you remember last week, he's a guy who has been on the tournament scene for quite some time, who turns out has been scamming people for quite some time. He has been uh, backed by people and then not paying anyone when he cashes, making up stories that he couldn't get his money because his ID is messed up or whatever. I talked about last week how Aaron Massey and Brian Hastings were calling him out. Well, Brian, or not Brian, uh, Aaron Massey, through his website, BigCockPoker.com, 
BigCockPoker.com, and that's actually a real name of the site, BigCockPoker.com. <laughs> he has been the one most actively calling out Dwight and providing evidence of what occurred. And Dwight, by the way, made a statement that I will read, which I think is pretty ridiculous. By the way, why did they pick the name Big Cock Poker? I mean, I know it I know it grabs your attention, but do you actually have to have a Big Cock to join Big Cock Poker? I guess it's hard to verify this. I guess the only way we would know is if we were to speak to the girlfriends or maybe in some cases even boyfriends of the eight members of Big Cock Poker who would be Aaron Massey, Ralph Massey, Kevin Saul, Jacob Baisley, Zoe Kareem, Ronnie Barda, Jared Jaffe, and Makul Pahuja. What's interesting is I, I had kind of crappy experiences with two of these eight guys at Big Cock Poker. Aaron Massey was nasty with me at the table, which I mentioned last week, and Makul Pahuja. Uh, he made a needling comment to me deep in the... It's actually the same event both did it at different tables. Deep in the uh, 50-50 DraftKings No Limit event where I finished 40th, uh, Makuhu Pahuja, I think he uh, made the final table in that one, but uh, it just so happened that I was running into big hands of his. Either that or he was making moves on me and fortunate I didn't have a hand. Like I was, I always had like just not good enough of a hand, I had to lay it down to him. Like, I'd raise preflop or three-bet preflop, and he'd go over the top on me, and I'd fold. This happened, like, three or four times in a row. So he may have been making moves on me, and I just, every time I had things like pocket fives, pocket sixes, where I didn't want to call off all my chips with him. So I laid it down. But uh, on, like, the third or fourth time this happened, and here I'm folding to him every time and not making any kind of statement about it. Like, I'm not giving him a hard time for doing that to me. I know it's just part of the game. Uh, he makes a needling comment like, what, there's nothing in your range there where you can uh, you can three-bet then call? Like he made some kind of comment like that, about my folding every time. Like, just shut up and take the chips. Why say something like that? Like, you're, you're coming over the top on me, and I'm folding every time. So fine. Like, what? Uh, why Why rub it in? Why needle me about it? Anyway. Um, I kind of think like Big Cock Poker is almost like richguypoker.com. Like, like whenever you brag about something like that, it's usually you're the opposite. Like, guys who are really rich don't walk around saying, hey, I'm really rich. They just are rich, and they just uh, don't feel a need to advertise it. I got to think the same about big cock poker. Though maybe they mean big cock, like, in your attitude. I don't know. It's weird. I like Ronnie Barda, though. And I, I don't care if Ronnie Barda has a big cock or a medium cock or a small cock. It doesn't matter to me. I do like Ronnie Barda. He's always nice when I play with him. Everyone seems to like him. He's very friendly. Uh, he's a good player. 
and you know he's a very Boston guy. <laughs> you could tell from speaking to him just for a few seconds that he's from Boston, but uh, I like Ronnie Barta, always have. But uh, some of these other guys, I don't feel the same way about. Anyway, back to Dwight Pilgrim. Aaron Massey, despite uh, being nasty to me at the table, he was a victim of Dwight Pilgrim. He he did get screwed here, and he didn't deserve it. And uh, he wrote a blog on his Big Cock Poker site. If you want to read it, it's bigcockpoker.com slash question mark lowercase p equals 448 or you can just go to bigcockpoker.com and click on the Dwight Pilgrim article which may be easier but he posted some texts that he had with Dwight Pilgrim which were pretty telling Uh, this is when Dwight was really really stalling him Basically, uh, Dwight was claiming he couldn't pay Aaron for his share of the winnings because his ID was in very poor condition and they didn't accept it as a valid ID. So they wouldn't pay him for that reason. (laughs) So Dwight's saying, look, I've just got to get the ID thing straightened out, go back to the casino, and, and then they'll pay me. But I can't pay you right now. So... Aaron started to really doubt this and he started asking for proof that the driver's license is really in that bad of a condition. So Dwight, when he's talking to him, and remember Dwight is a black guy, and in these conversations he tried to come off as like he's a gangster, which I don't think he really is. I just think Dwight Pilgrim's a, a black degenerate. Just like a white degenerate, you know. He, I think he's taking the fact that he's a black guy, and that he can try to sound like a gangster to scare the white boys who he borrowed money from, to make them fearful in demanding things from him. That's what my read is on the situation. So, Dwight messages him, "I'm in Brooklyn. I could have died last night for real. Got to change things up. Not got to change things up. Just got to change things up." So so Aaron Massey says back, I'm not listening to you. Please resend me your address. Please send me a pic of your state ID or driver's license as well. So then Dwight says, no, if you want my info, I will give it to you. And so Aaron says back at this point, pic of ID, I do not trust you. Now keep in mind, this is after Dwight had been stalling him forever. And he's starting to trust him less and less and less. And indeed, indeed Dwight was screwing him here. So he was right to be suspicious. So Dwight says, why not you trippin'? Dwight Pilgrim ain't hiding, little man. And he goes on to say, you be pushing me to the limit. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Dwight Pilgrim ain't hiding, little man. You pushing me to the limit. Now, by the way, Aaron Massey is rather short. I think that's where the little man comes from. So Dwight says, cousin, rather give you an easier way. So Aaron says, easier? Explain. He says, they don't know how life get. That shit could happen in the blink of a breath. They don't know how life get. 
That shit could happen in the blink of a breath. Yeah. That's from Dwight Pilgrim to Aaron Massey. So Aaron says, I'm still not following. I helped you. I put you in, as put you into the tournament. I took care of you in times of need, and now you're threatening me? A blink of a breath, huh? Because Aaron Massey took this, that shit could happen in a blink of a breath. He took this as an implied threat, like you could get killed in a moment. That shit could happen in a blink of a breath. So that's uh, follow this conversation again here. He says, rather give you an easier way. They don't know how life get that shit could happen in a blink of a breath. So basically he's saying an easier way is that I could just kill you without directly saying it. I think he's quoting a rap song or something. So then Dwight texts him. Hang with the Crips and I hang with the Bloods. And so Aaron texts back saying, I don't know what that means. It's clear that I'm being threatened. And I agree. It looked like a very implied threat there. Aaron writes, he had previously threatened me over the phone. Then in text, he referenced... References Bloods and Crips in an attempt to scare me quiet. He also said that it could, it could happen in the blink of a breath, whatever the hell that means, in an allude to, to having me killed. I recently found out that he would be receiving some money. I confronted him about it and asked him if he planned on using the money to pay a portion or a small portion of his debt. He said he couldn't do it. The fact is, it's not that he can't do it, it's that he won't do it. It was then posted on Facebook and Twitter about the situation for the first time. The response that I got was overwhelming. I received dozens of notifications and messages regarding his situation. I was contacted by many people who had similar experiences with Dwight, and they thanked me for posting this, possibly preventing them from becoming a victim. Others shared their stories with me, but but most hadn't lent him anything yet. One of the people who contacted me was my friend John. John showed me a screenshot of Dwight asking him for a small-term loan. In the message, Dwight uses Brian Hastings' name to vouch for the money. I immediately sent it to Hastings, and it turned out Dwight had scummed him too. Hastings put Dwight in some tournaments, including a Purple Chip Bounty tournament at the Parks he won. Hastings never saw any of the money, and Dwight claimed that Parks refused to let him cash out. He gave Hastings a series of excuses that didn't make much sense. Hastings also confirmed that he never did and would not vouch for, for Dwight. It was ironic. Weeks earlier, I had checked Dwight's hidden mob and saw that cash at Parks. I immediately contacted Dwight to pay me, and he also gave me a story about not being able to cash out for a variety of reasons. Another person who reached out to me after I posted about Dwight was a woman I had never met. Here's our conversation. This is a woman named Kim Tyler, and I'm not uh, giving out any private info here. This is on the Big Cock Poker blog. Kim Tyler wrote this to Aaron Massey on October 17th. Good evening, Mr. Massey. I would like to first start off by saying I'm very sorry for what Dwight did to you. I had a similar experience as well. I met Dwight on Facebook about a year after he won the Borgata Open. We became fast friends, and he offered to mentor me in poker. We met in person around October 2012. It was then he fed me a line about the BS that the IRS froze his accounts and he was expecting a large sum of money from Antonio Esfandiari. Oh, boy. So he asked me to borrow money to tide him over until that that came through. I agreed but told him I would need to get the money back within three months, and he agreed. When I tried to recover the money he owed, he told me I should just forget about it and that he would pay me but couldn't right now. I must tell you the only people I really told what he did was my best friend and my fiancé, and when he gets his hands on him, I promise you it won't be pretty. If you decide to pursue legal actions, go public against him, etc., please let me know. I'm all too happy to let others know what he did. 
I have a sneaking suspicion we're not the only ones he's done this to. I'm sure Antonio would be interested to know he's been using his name to borrow money from others. My name is Sonia Pickett, but my Facebook name is Kim Tyler because of my clearance and where I work. <laughs> Why'd you post that whole thing, Aaron? What the hell? This, this girl's trying to keep her name off, yeah, her public name off Facebook, and you post that. That wasn't very nice. So it's out there anyway. So uh, that too. So he scammed some woman who really needed the money. He says, uh, Dwight will do this to any person. He even uses Antonio's name to vouch the same way he used Brian Hastings' name recently. There are many more stories to be shared. I promise you that if you ask around, more stories about him and many others like him will come to light. It's a never-ending con and it needs to stop. As you can see, Dwight will take advantage of anyone. The haves, the have-nots, the flush, the bust, it doesn't matter to him. He's a preservationist, a preservationist, sorry, a parasite willing to survive by any means necessary. His prey is any human being with money, anyone he can take advantage of. He is a self-serving con artist. I mean, I can't argue with any of that. It's unlikely that Dwight will pay me back because he has zero honor or integrity. Integrity. It's also because he's broke. I thought his name meant a lot to him. He always seemed very proud of his name and his legacy. That's why it baffles me that he would risk ruining it all instead of doing whatever he could to restore or maintain it. Had he agreed to pay me $1 or $10 or $20 when he saw me, I would have continued to protect his name. That is weird. Uh, He even said that at one point that he offered Dwight to pay him as little as $1 a week, and Dwight refused and said that he couldn't do it. Dwight said he couldn't pay him a dollar a week. I I think that Dwight didn't expect this. I think he didn't expect anyone would go public. And I think when Aaron even asked for a dollar a week, I don't think Dwight believed this would really happen. That's why he probably refused. He probably just he was probably just arrogant about it. Like, hey, I don't have to pay you. I'll pay you when I have when I have money I can afford to pay you when I'm ready to pay you. But right now I'm still broke. So f you. If I cash in something, I'm using it on me. You're not going to pressure me to pay anything. What a scumbag. Anyway, I have to think that Dwight Pilgrim's career of borrowing money is pretty much over in poker. I don't think we'll be seeing him at any tournaments. Now, it's possible that some person will put him in with the agreement that Dwight pays them back first. I mean, that's how Chino keeps getting backed. That's how Eric Lindgren keeps getting backed. Basically, basically backers say, I know your history, but I like your poker skill. So as long as you agree to pay me first, and as long as you agree to let me follow you to the cage to get the money immediately when you cash, I'll stake you. And that's unfortunate. I like I, I hate that people stake scammers like that. People like Dwight Pilgrim, Chino Ream, Eric Lindgren should never be staked. I don't care if they can make you money. They, I, I just wish everyone in poker would say, we're not doing it. I wish everyone would just kind of get together and say, we're not going to support scammers like this. I, I wish that stakers would be shamed for staking people like this. And there's the argument, well, you have to. You know, these people have to make money some way to pay back their their creditors. So why not let someone stake them and allow them to get some money to pay people back? But the problem is uh, it's selfish. It's selfish to be able to come forward and give these people money to keep them in action and get paid from them if you make conditions that you get paid first and that you get to follow them to the cage where everybody else who had debts way before yours has to continue waiting. It's not fair. It's not fair just because you're the last one to loan the guy money that you get paid back first. It should be reversed. 
So at some point, you just got to declare a loss on these people, and I, I just wish that everyone in poker would just declare a loss on them and shut them out and not be greedy and say, oh, I bet this person could win for me through staking. The best way to stop this sort of thing is to completely shut these people out from staking, but it just won't happen. So I bet I bet Dwight will still find a few suckers to do it, provided these suckers can feel confident they can get the money. Maybe people will do it if they can follow Dwight to the cage and be there when he's playing. Or maybe Dwight will find a few fools who haven't heard about this, but I see Aaron Massey is making an effort to get the word out, and good for him. And I believe everything Aaron is saying, 100%. Now you may wonder, what is Dwight saying about this? Is Dwight denying it? Is he staying silent? Well, Dwight Pilgrim has made a statement to the media. He really has. Here is Dwight Pilgrim's statement. In January 2013, Aaron and me had a Player of the Year bet. That same January, I asked Daniel Negreanu if he wanted a Player of the Year bet. I was in a great situation. No worries, no problem. You got to be if you ask Daniel if you want to have a Player of the Year bet. (laughs) Well, it turns out that's not true because we just read from this uh, Kim Tyler, or Sonia, whatever her name is, that in October 2012, Dwight scammed her. So I doubt that he was in a great situation a few months later when he scammed this woman and couldn't pay her back. I believe he made this stupid player of the year bet with with Negranu because he figured Negranu had so much money and was so busy that he wouldn't chase after him if he didn't get paid. So on the surface, it seems stupid to make a player of the year bet with Negranu, who's so likely to beat you as far as player of the year points. But if you think Negranu won't, make an effort to collect, then it's a good bet. It's almost like a free roll. Shortly after I had some problems, I asked three friends to help me. I needed cash for a month or two. They did, and everything was cool. In February, right after playing a $10,000 main event, I got some life-changing news. From there, I had some of the toughest times of my life. (laughs) What, What does that mean? I got some life-changing news. From there, I had some of the toughest times of my life. And he's referring to financially. He says, I was in a financial bind, which took me out of playing for the rest of the year. What news could this be? What news could someone get, just abrupt news, that just takes them from financially stable to broke? Like, what news would that ever be? Uh, your house burned down and you didn't have insurance? <laughs> what? I, I don't get it. Usually if you get some really bad news, it's something that's awful but isn't related to money. Like uh, a relative died. Or you have cancer. Something like that. But no- nothing that's going to instantly make you broke. Now you may say, well, what if Dwight found out that he had some expensive medical issue, like cancer, and let's say he didn't have insurance. Maybe that's it. Well, believe me, Dwight would have mentioned that. If Dwight could have pointed to a legitimate cancer diagnosis or other diagnosis that ate up all his money, believe me, he would have been the first to present this to explain his behavior. But he didn't. He just said he got life-changing news 
that put him in a financial bind. I don't believe he's just making that up. I don't believe it for a second. Especially since he had just scammed that woman right around the same time, right before this. So obviously it wasn't everything was fine till February 13. He just scammed someone in October 2012. I wasn't able to pay back my arrangements on time. I've had some of the toughest years over the last couple of years and never got back on track. I never duck a call or text from anyone. I've always intended on paying, but honestly did not have it. If it wasn't for the thing that happened, I wouldn't have paid back. I would have paid back on time. I'm sorry for my mishap. I'm sorry my mishaps hurt anyone, but it wasn't done with malicious intent. Yeah. Uh, whatever this thing is, you should explain it. Otherwise, it's meaningless. And you should provide proof it really occurred. I've got nothing but love for everyone who help, whoever helps me. Moving forward, after I owed Aaron for a while, he would call and his text would get aggressive. He called me on a rough night and I quoted a rap song, which he took as a threat. I instantly replied and apologized. Tell me, um, have you ever called someone and they replied with a rap song, a gangster rap song? Have you ever called someone and they quote gangster rap to you on the phone? I, I don't think you have. So Aaron called him. Dwight admits it was a rough night and he was in a bad mood. And he quoted a rap song. Now, why would he quote a rap song? He's quoting a gangster, a gangster rap song on the phone. Because he's trying to scare him. That's the only reason you do that. If you're in a bad mood, if it's a rough night, and if Aaron's calling you asking for money and you quote a rap song, you're not just doing it because you were singing along with the radio. You're quoting the rap song because you're trying to scare him. And I doubt that he instantly replied and apologized. He says, I play with hundreds of players a week. Okay, what does that mean? My family and friends all know my character. That's my favorite excuse. Oh, my friends all know me. I'm not like this. Uh-huh. I'm okay with this whole situation. Yeah, I bet you are. But hopefully we can fix it ASAP. Why are you okay with it? It's terrible. You ripped a lot of people off. At the end of the day, we all take hits, but it's all how you bounce back. Real homies ain't hating, and hating homies ain't real. Real homies ain't hating, and hating homies ain't real. What the hell? This isn't hating. It's telling the truth that you scammed people. Don't call it hating. Hating is if someone wants to criticize you for something you didn't do. Like hating is saying, Dwight Pilgrim's fat. Dwight Pilgrim's ugly. Dwight Pilgrim's a crappy poker player. Dwight Pilgrim's an asshole. That's hating. Telling true stories that you scam them is not hating. It's stating facts about your scammy behavior. He writes, My pride and ego was high when I took myself out of the game. I was one of the strongest players in the world. It was easier to walk away than to ask for help, especially when you're the one that expect, that, that, that everyone expects to be the one helping. Here's my favorite part. When you're at the top, no one knows who their friends are. When you're down, you know whom your friends see you at the top. (laughs) 
When you're at the top, you don't know who your friends are, but when you're at the bottom, that's when you realize it. You know whom your friends. So he's trying to say, Aaron's not a good friend. When I was making a lot of money, everyone was my friend. But when I was broke, everyone turned their back on me. Poor me. Poor Dwight Pilgrim. No. Your friends turned their backs on you because you lied to them. You borrowed from them under false pretenses. You had them put you in events and then didn't pay them when you cashed in the event. You ripped them off and you lied to them. You lied to them about why you didn't have the money from those events. You lied to them about getting money from those events. Claiming you couldn't get it when you really did. You threaten them. That's why they're not your friends. Not because you're down. Not because you're broke. So, he's equating the word friends to those who let me cheat them and get away with it. That's who he. That's the behavior he wanted from his friends. He wanted his friends to let him cheat them and say nothing about it. Did he really think that statement made him look better? Did he really think that this would be something people would read and go, oh, this Dwight Pilgrim, he's a cool guy. He went through some crap. He, he had a good reason for it. Yeah, he owed some people some money, but he had a good reason. He's okay. He got life-changing news in 2013. He was okay till then. Totally understandable. What a jerk Aaron Massey is for turning his back on his friend like that. Do you think anyone thought this when they read his statement? Do you think Dwight Pilgrim convinced even one person from that statement that he wasn't as bad as people were thinking? I mean, he looks worse from this. <laughs> he would have been much better off issuing no statement. You could tell he doesn't feel bad about a bit of this. He even said, I'm okay with this situation. I'm okay with this whole situation, he said. I believe that. He is okay with it. The only thing he's probably not okay with is that this got out. But I'm sure he's okay with ripping everyone off. So there's your Dwight Pilgrim update. Bobby Orr is pointing out that he may not even be black. He says he's from Guyana. More likely, he's Indian and not black. Hmm. It's possible he just is dark-skinned and is adopting black mannerisms. I'll tell you, playing with him, he acts like he's black. He speaks like he's black, but that, that could have all been just like the culture he adopted because it was convenient. Could have felt it was easier to fit in as a jive-talking black guy rather than a foreigner. I didn't know he's from Guyana. Interesting. But yeah, I, I love the acting gangster to try to scare the white boys that lent him money. I love that act. By the way, Dwight, all you're doing by acting that way is is making all black people who are honest and good look bad. Like, acting like that is what good black people are ashamed of when they see things like this. Right, let's talk a bit about Bitcoin. Bitcoin has had quite a ride recently. And the ride is continuing as we're doing this show. 
if you look at the Bitcoin chart for the past week, you will see that it had a huge rise very abruptly. And then, since then, a pretty big fall. Overall, it's still up for the week. But the gains are not nearly as much. Now, first, I want to point out that ever since Bitcoin hit its peak of 1200 about almost two years ago, it has never... Well, well it kept declining... And then jumping around, but since May 2014, 18 months ago, Bitcoin has never stabilized higher than where it stabilized previously. What I mean by stabilize is a substantial period of time where it stays at relatively the same rate. I mean, it goes up and down every day, but where it isn't making major changes. Every time Bitcoin has stabilized, it has stabilized lower than it was before since May 2014. And that's very important to understand because that doesn't speak well for the future of Bitcoin. That it hasn't once stabilized higher than where it stabilized before. It's had spurts upward, but they always seem to be followed by corrections downward that are leaving it in worse shape than where it was before it went upward. Now, I don't know if that'll happen this time because it hasn't stabilized yet. But Bitcoin had stabilized for quite some time in the low to mid 200 range. It had one crash where it went as low as 157. But then it went back up and it hovered between around 210 and 275 for quite some time. And uh, for Quite some time, it was actually stable around 225, 230. It popped up to over 300 for a little bit, and then it fell back down to the 225 type range and hung there again for a while. And then it started to creep up. So it was around 225. And keep in mind, the the second huge Bitcoin run-up was from 220 all the way up to 1,200. So it actually had three run-ups. One run-up was from uh, 17 to 80. The next run-up was shortly thereafter from 80 to 220. The next run-up after that was 220 to 1200. Those are the three big Bitcoin run-ups. But since then, it's been down, down, down. So it was around 225 where it had been kind of hovering for the whole year. And it started to creep up. And it got to around 275, kind of steadily rising. And then it just rocketed up. Up, 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 up. And in the last few days, it went from around 300 all the way up to, would you believe, a level that has not been seen in quite some time, 500. <laughs> I'll admit, I didn't think I'd ever see Bitcoin at 500 again. I didn't think I'd see it at 400 again. I didn't think it could touch those numbers, but it did. It it was pretty shocking to me that Bitcoin would rise as high as 500, but it did. 
I think it made it to 499 and change, actually, on most exchanges, but we'll call it 500. Then came the crash. Then it started to fall. As we stand right now, on Coinbase, Bitcoin is at 369. It's a pretty big fall. Less than two days ago, it was at 500. Now it's at 369. Now, 369 is a lot better than 225 when this whole thing started. It's a lot better than 300 when the massive run-up started. But it's been falling. Even earlier today, it was at 400. Now, as I'm doing this broadcast, it's at 369. The question on everyone's mind was, what the hell caused this? What caused Bitcoin, which has been hovering in the 200s range for the whole year, what made it rocket up and more than double in value? How in a week's time did it gain so much when it hasn't done anything like that the whole year? Well, some disturbing news came out about the possible reason for it. And this hasn't been verified, but this has been speculated. And that is that a Russian Ponzi schemer ran a website aimed at Chinese people that encouraged Bitcoin purchases and... uh, It was a pyramid scheme, but it caused a run-up on the Bitcoin price until people realized what was going on and the massive sell-off occurred. So there's a supposed social financial network called MMM that bears all the hallmarks of a pyramid scheme. This is a site for uh, Chinese investors. It's run by a Sergei Mavrodi. And he was a former Russian parliamentarian who has been in jail for fraud. For running other Ponzi schemes in the past. Bitcoins are sent to other members of the network as quote, mutual aid, and then people participating are promised a 30% return per month that is on whatever they send. So you send uh, 100 Bitcoin or $100 worth of Bitcoin, you're expected to get uh, 130 back per month uh, with bonuses for referrals or posting testimonials online. So the more positive things you write about it online, you get more bonuses. You can already see what's going on there that... uh, more and more people write wonderful testimonials and go, wow, how could thousands of people be wrong about this? This thing must be wonderful. So this is what Wen Quang wrote about MMM, which he calls 3M. It has nothing to do with 3M Corporation, by the way. Today, on October 31st, I received 20% interest and a bonus as a recommender for a total of $7,750, I truly experienced the greatness of 3M and this is the sincerity of all the participants. So this guy posted this online. And within 24 hours, 
hundreds of people posted testimonials just like this on YouTube at the very end of October. Right when this happened is when the spike occurred in Bitcoin's price all the way up to 500 bucks. So basically this is a pyramid scheme where people are supposed to buy in and then they get rewards by getting other people to buy in. So if you get someone to buy in, then you get a piece of what they buy in. And if you don't think about it too much, it seems wonderful. It seems like everyone will make money, that everyone you refer will get you money. And then if they refer someone, they get money, and then they give you part of their money. So that's why it's called a pyramid. The people at the top get rich, and uh, everybody below that is supposed to also get rich but less rich. And only the ones at the very, very bottom don't get rich, but then, of course, they could be above someone else. But the, the problem is it doesn't work that way. The problem is almost nobody makes money in a pyramid scheme. All of them eventually collapse, and only the people at the very, very top who started it make money while everyone else gets screwed. That's the way pyramid schemes have always worked. So this is nothing new. MMM claims on his website that it's breaking no laws because it involves money transfers between private people, and they have a right to transfer money as they want. (laughs) This is not true, by the way. This is not true. You, you cannot have a business which is just basically selling the opportunity to sell to others. You have to actually have a product. And there's no product here. The, the product here is just uh, getting other people to buy in. Sergei Mavrodi was charged with fraud in Russia in 1997. So he's been doing this for many years. After the collapse of a pyramid scheme he operated in 1994. And guess what the name of that pyramid scheme in 1994 was? Yes, MMM. I guess, uh, why change what works? Tens of thousands of Russian people lost their money. He defrauded people out of $1.7 million with the first MMM. So he's revived MMM in 2015, 21 years later. Didn't learn much from going to prison. And this has been running for about a year. But it is thought that uh, this has caused the uh, rise in the price of Bitcoin. And that uh, suddenly with so many people now joining it and posting these testimonials online and then causing other people to join because of these great testimonials that uh, basically this has caused a rush of people wanting to buy Bitcoin, that is Chinese investors in this. This put a great demand on Bitcoin and when there's a great demand on something, the price goes up. So that's sent the price up, up, up. And then that probably also had the further effect of making even more people want to buy into this system, thinking that... uh, They'll make even more money this way. On his website, MMM claims that 
It operates in 60 countries. And it says this is a community of ordinary people selflessly helping each other, a kind of global fund of mutual aid. Sure. The goal here is not the money. The goal is to destroy the world's unjust financial system. That's the goal, not to make money. Just trying to take down the financial system, which screws everyone, as opposed to his very fair financial system. There's also been copycat social financial networks, also similarly describing themselves to allow people to, quote, help each other. These have been very popular in China in recent months. And they even had a similar scheme operating in India that was named after this Mavrodi character. It was called the Mavrodi Mondial Money Box. I guess that's what MMM stands for, the Mavrodi Mondial Money Box. So this is called the Mavrodi Mondial Money Box India. So I guess he has offshoots in India that he's not even involved with, his copycats that uh, operated in India and uh, three Russians and th- three Indians were arrested in 2013 for operating this MMM. So I guess this MMM has uh, existed for at least 21 years, but it's getting attention now because it caused the Bitcoin price to ri- rise. Now, this is not for certain, but that's uh, what the theory is, because right when this major rise in Bitcoin price occurred, is when there were massive numbers of testimonials online for buying into the system using Bitcoin, meaning people needed to buy Bitcoin, meaning that there is a a lot of buys out of China, and a lot of times China is really kind of dictating the Bitcoin price because they are big players in the Bitcoin market. Beer and Poker in chat is saying that uh, these scammers were buying Bitcoin with expired WSOP food vouchers. <laughs> Real Talk is asking, can I get in at the $100 level? <laughs> That's a reference to Six Toad Pete and his uh, cash gifting scam where you have to buy in at different levels. So I would not buy any Bitcoin at this point. I'm pretty sure it's going to return to where it was, maybe even lower. Because it has not in the last 18 months ever returned to a level higher than when to to where it was before the run up. By the way, it just went up uh, $5 when we were talking about this, but Maybe some Chinese heard what I was talking about and decided to buy in again. Yeah, it has risen. It it hit a low of around like three fifty two and now has popped up twenty two dollars since then. But that doesn't mean much. It popped up again over four hundred earlier today and then fell back again. I I think when this is all done, I think when the current wave of excitement over Bitcoin's rise dies down. And when the people buying in hoping to see another pop up to 500, 
stop buying in and realize it's not going to happen again, I think it's going to go down, down, down from another sell-off. I mean, it lost 20% of its value right there from a sell-off from 500 down to 400 when people realized that the whole thing was probably propped up by a Ponzi scheme. I think it's going back down. I'd be very surprised if it stabilizes over 400. I'd be very surprised if it stabilizes where it is now at 375 or so. I don't think there's a way to short Bitcoin, is there? If there was, I would say that I'd say that's a pretty good play at this point. In fact, what would be a really good play is to watch these run-ups, and then as soon as you see it start to fall, like immediately short it. Like it's it's hard to see at what point it will start falling, but once it starts falling, it tends to fall, pretty hard. But I don't think you can short it, and Lou Father says so in chat too. I don't, I don't think you can short it. It's too bad, because there's been many times I've been certain it's going to fall, but there's nothing I could do. Seven seven five fraud fifty five seven seven five three seven two eight three five five. And guess what? It's gonna finally happen, maybe. The devil might actually finally be coming to Georgia. Down to Georgia, he was looking for a soul to steal. He was in a bind because he was way behind and he was willing to make a deal. When he came across this young man sewing on a fiddle and playing it hot, and the devil jumped up on a hickory stump and said, Boy, let me tell you what. I guess you didn't know it, but I'm a fiddle player too. And if you care to take a dare, I'll make a bet with you. Now you play pretty good fiddle, boy, but give the devil his due. I bet a fiddle of gold against your soul because I think I'm better than you. The boy said, my name's Johnny, and it might be a sin, but I'll take your bet you're going to regret because I'm the best as ever been. Johnny, you're awesome up your bow and play your fiddle hard because hell's broke loose in Georgia and the devil deals the cards. And if you win, you get this shiny fiddle made of gold. But if you lose, the devil gets your soul. Yes. This is kind of a... Uh... A form of gambling there in, uh, in Georgia when the devil came down there. But uh, in reality, you can't gamble in Georgia. There is no casino gambling in the state of Georgia. Where is there casino gambling? Well, more states than you think. The highest number of casinos you might guess, would be in Nevada, and you'd be correct. 367 casinos exist in the state of Nevada. Where are the second most casinos? You think it's New Jersey? You would be wrong, not even close. The second highest number of casinos would be in California, where there are a lot of Indian casinos, 183 casinos in California. 
more than half, or almost as almost half as many as are in Nevada. Third most, you'll probably be surprised by this one, Oklahoma, full of Indian casinos, has 131. There are also 127 in Florida. And 136 in Washington. So those are the places with a lot of casinos. I've seen a lot of the Washington casinos, though. They're pathetic. Like There's little casinos that are like in the back of bars. It's really weird. Arizona has 94. Louisiana has 69. So here's all the states that have some form of casino. Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, Florida, Georgia. I guess Georgia has two. But it's probably... uh, I thought there were none there. See, I'm making a fool of myself here. I thought I thought they were not even on this list. Well, I'm sure it's not full casinos. It's probably uh, a horse track or something. Idaho, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, Minnesota, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, Nevada, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York. North Carolina, including a Harris that's there. North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, South Carolina, South Dakota. 52 in South Dakota, by the way. Texas, only nine there. Virginia, Washington, West Virginia, Wisconsin, and Wyoming. Notice there's no Utah. Notice there is no Hawaii. Those two, all forms of gambling are illegal. Those are the two states where there is no form of any kind of gambling allowed by state law. Georgia is listed with two. Let's see if I can find what two are there. I thought there were zero. Um, Let's see here. Well... I don't see any in this other list. I have a list on Wikipedia. There's no Georgia casino showing up, so maybe that other thing I was reading from is wrong. But uh, Georgia is attempting to get casino gambling. I know there's no actual casino there. And they are discussing the possibility of legalizing casino gambling in the state of Georgia. The problem is that Georgia needs money. And there's a scholarship program called the HOPE Scholarship Program. And it's running out of money to help uh, Georgia residents pay tuition at in-state colleges and universities. It's funded by the Georgia Lottery. But uh, the problem is that uh, so many students are using it now that uh, it doesn't have any more funds. Or it's almost out of funds. So they're trying to look at ways to prop it up even more. So State Representative Ron Stevens, or Steffens, I don't know how you pronounce it. He's a Republican in Savannah. Said that uh, they need 
to get some more money for the Hope Scholarship, and they can do so through gambling. Steffens or Stevens introduced legislation in March called HB 677 that would legalize casino gambling in Georgia. It would authorize the construction of six, what do they call, destination casinos in Georgia across five different licensing regions. And the largest region would be Atlanta. And that would be eligible for two casinos. Each of the other regions would only get one casino. So it would be a maximum of six casinos and split up by region. The big kicker here would be that casinos would have to give up 12% 12 of their revenue, not just uh, profits, but revenue, 12% of gross gaming revenue to the government. Furthermore, there would be a very expensive licensing fee. For the main region, which includes Atlanta, the licensing fee would be a whopping... $1 $1 million. Times 25. $25 million to get a license in the Atlanta area to operate a, one of the two casinos allowed there. This was being proposed. And in the other four regions, which are not as populous, the licensing would still be $10 million. Now, this would be a 15-year license. So uh, you wouldn't be paying this every year if you had a casino there, but you would have to pay that up front. Plus... 12% of gross revenue. So you'd have to really be making a lot of money at these casinos. Uh, because right off the top, you've got to hand over 12% of what you take into the government. And you will have to pay a either 25 or $10 million licensing fee that's good for 15 years. So, for example, if you're making a 12% profit, you're going to break even because you've got to give up that 12% right to the government. However, the governor, Nathan Deal, is very against this. He said, I will make my position very clear to the members of the General Assembly, and I would hope they would recognize we have so many good things going for us in the state of Georgia. This is not something I view as a positive, he said. I do not think it improves the quality of life for our citizens. And in my opinion, it has very little redeeming value. If they're willing to put anywhere from 24 to 35% of their gross revenue into education, as the Georgia Lottery does, that would be a totally different proposition. I don't think we're going to see any of them take us up on that offer. <laughs> so he's very against it. But... the gaming companies that are interested in doing this are actually willing to go up as high as 20% from the 12%. So basically uh, what the governor's saying is that we're not going to do this unless we get 24 to 35% of their gross revenue, which I don't see how any casino could survive giving up 24 to 35% of their revenue. But apparently these game companies are willing to do 20%. PCI Gaming, I don't know who they are, but uh, their CEO said, we want to be good neighbors and are willing to go up to 20%. The reason that 
PCI Gaming is willing to do this is because the Atlanta area is seen as really the best untapped gaming market in the country. That is, uh, there's a ton of people in the Atlanta area of Georgia that want to gamble and don't have a close destination for it. So they just don't. So it's thought that if there is a place that Atlanta residents can go to that's close by to gamble, that it will make money hand over fist. So they're willing to pay super high taxes and licensing fees to do it. So it might happen. If they're willing to go up to 20% of gross revenue and pay that $25 million licensing fee, then yeah. <laughs> I think it's very possible those casinos will show up. Now, don't expect them tomorrow. Don't expect them this year or anytime soon. It's a long process. But I think it's starting to look good for the state of Georgia to get its casinos. I wonder if Caesars will build a property there. Caesars is trying to expand into the south. They have uh, the property in Biloxi. They've got New Orleans 90 miles away. They've got North Carolina. They just built a hotel there. 21-story hotel. In fact, I think I'm going to go there next year. Check it out. But they don't have one in Florida, which I'm sure they'd love. They don't have one in Georgia. No one does. So I'm sure they'd love to have a presence over there. But I don't know if they're one of the bidders. Seriously, Sirius, who lives in Atlanta, I bet he'd be happy to see that. Well, maybe. I don't know... I don't know if he really likes going to casinos. Bobby Orr, who's from Canada, somehow knows this. He said that the casinos in Georgia I was talking about are boat casinos. They're not brick and mortar. All right, that makes sense. Lou Father's asking, why did Brian Mikon move to Atlanta? That's where he lived before he moved to Vegas. And... Mikon is from Indiana. He grew up in Indiana. He went to college in Indiana. So why would he have gone to Atlanta? For a girl. His then wife, Erin, her family was from Atlanta. He met her at college and she demanded they move to Atlanta. And he was never happy there. He was miserable in Atlanta. He didn't want to stay there, and when he got the first opportunity to get out, he left. And that that was really the main reason why the marriage ended, was that he was happy going to Vegas and never coming back, and uh, his wife was not for that. So that was that. They had other problems too, but that was the biggest one. JSTAT pointing out, Caesars is losing properties left and right. They lost St. Louis, Biloxi, Cincinnati, and Cleveland. I forgot about it. They lost Biloxi, yeah. So maybe they won't expand. Maybe maybe they're done with that. But it, it really is a an untapped market. I think Caesars, even Caesars could do well there. Lou Father saying in chat, Atlanta is awful. 
Well, yeah, I've heard the criticism of Atlanta. I've never been there. I may actually come to Atlanta for the first time next year when I go to North Carolina just to see it, you know, once I'm there. I know they have a pretty bad crime problem over there. Lou Father's saying that uh, it's worse than Detroit. But, of course, he's biased because he lives near Detroit. Kev Math is in the chat. He's saying if you head to the suburbs of Atlanta, it's not bad. No problem. And I believe that. It has bad areas, but so do most big cities. I know the weather in Atlanta is terrible in the summer, as is that entire region. You don't want to be anywhere in the south in the summer. It's horrible. So, I will be going in the spring. I will never go to New Orleans or Miami or Atlanta. Any of these southern destinations, I'm not going to go in the summer. The southeast is somewhere I will not go in the summer. But the spring, that should be nice. Yeah, Lou Father saying, I stayed over the summer down there one time. It was literally humid as shit and like 98 degrees every day. Yeah, I've heard it's just horrendous. Kev Math saying, Dreffel love playing those automated tables at Harris Cherokee. That's in North Carolina. I don't know how much I'll play there. I, you know, I'm going to have my seven stars trip I can take, and I, I like to just take it to a different region every time and then take kind of a road trip from there. So the one I did last year is uh, New Orleans. The year before that, actually this year was New Orleans. Last year was uh, Detroit, where I went to Windsor. Uh, I've done it to Atlantic City. So I'm trying to just span the different areas that uh, Caesars allows me to go and they'll pay for. Darkstar is saying it's a cool drive to get to Cherokee if you head through Tennessee and Gatlingburg there. You know, before I go, I'm going to have to ask you guys who know the area better for advice because I know very little about that area. The, the southeastern U.S. is probably where I know the least about as far as the country goes. The, the part of the country I know the best, obviously, is the west. The, the entire western part of the U.S. I know very well. Not just California and Nevada, but I know the entire western U.S. pretty well. And the, and the northeast I know pretty well. But I, I don't need this, know the southeast very well. So I'll need some advice on where to drive, what to see, things like that. And yes, I'll be with Benjamin, who will be five and a half then. Willie Nelson is not known as a poker player. When you think of Willie Nelson, you probably think of pot smoking. You think of his music, but... You don't think of uh, poker. But you should. Because he's a better poker player than you might think. And he's a more crafty poker player than you might think. Now, Willie Nelson is quite old. He is 82 years old now. And 
and I guess he still plays. And there are stories coming out about Willie Nelson hustling poker players through marijuana use, which is pretty creative. On the road again Just can't wait to get on the road again The life I love is making music with my friends I can't wait to get on the road again On the road again Going places that I've never been Seeing things that I may never see again I can't wait to get on the road again Willie Nelson not only gets on the road, but uh, plays against rich and famous people in poker who he knows like to partake in marijuana and then uses that to his advantage. Now, how does he do it? Well, Willie is known as a big pot guy. If you're hanging around with Willie, he's got something for you to smoke if you want it. So what he does is he offers up his best stuff. He gets you really stoned, and then when you're really stoned, he asks you if you want to play poker with him. And then if you do, then he crushes you <laughs> because uh, he plays you in high-stakes poker, and he figures if you're really, really stoned and don't seem to be thinking straight that you'll be an easy opponent. According to nymag.com, Willie Nelson is famous for smoking his new friends to oblivion and then challenging them to high-stakes poker. And that all debts have to be settled at the table. He can't just take IOUs. There's a story that he did this to Woody Harrelson, who I'm sure you're shocked had an interest in uh, smoking a lot of marijuana. (laughs) And uh, Woody lost $40,000 to Willie, and Willie said, you're not leaving the room until you pay me my 40K. And Woody said, I don't have 40K on me. So Willie said, all right, we better call someone to come bring it down to you, and you can pay them back later. And uh, he was not letting Woody Harrelson leave until he came up with 40K in cash. Toby Keith hung around with Willie Nelson especially uh, around the time that they did a song together called Beer for My Horses. And uh, Toby Keith had, at the time, told stories that uh, he had smoked out with Willie. I know Toby Keith is not someone you really think of as a smoking pot, but I guess he does so too. He's not the stereotypical pot smoker. Uh, This is Beer for My Horses, if you don't know it. Oh, that's not it. Hang on here. Here's Beer for My Horses. started really man come on six o'clock news say somebody been shot somebody's been abused somebody blew up 
So that's the first third of the song, and the rest of it is pretty similar. It actually had some controversy surrounding it because they referred to too many gangsters doing dirty deeds and hanging them high in the street. And some people took that to referring to hanging black people, like in the old days when uh, black people would be lynched. Some people took it to mean that gangsters were black gang members and hanging them high, you know, hanging them was lynching them, but. Uh, Toby Keith and Willie Delson insisted that wasn't what they meant. They just meant rounding up people who committed heinous crimes and giving them the death penalty for everyone to see. So it was, it was basically a, a pro-death penalty song. And not just pro-death penalty, but uh, pro-death penalty with with an audience sort of thing. Like uh, rounding up the criminals and uh, putting them to death in front of everyone to make everybody fall into line. Uh, this song was released in 2002. Part of this was the general sentiment at the time where, you know, this was shortly after 9-11. And uh, even though 9-11 wasn't traditional street crime, it was terrorism, uh, the country was, was a little bit divided then as far as... Uh, Punishing, you know, what to do to punish those who have uh, harmed Americans, and this was kind of an extension of it. So, uh, this this was the sort of thing is, you know, we shouldn't just go after the terrorists; we should go after anyone who's committing murder or or bad crimes and go after them very harshly. And it's it's basically saying that a long time ago in Texas, they would just uh, round up anyone who does things like this and hang them. And we should go back to that. That's basically what the song's saying. Uh, not not a typical song you would hear from a hippie like Willie Nelson, but nevertheless, he did it with Toby Keith in 2002. Anyway, uh, around this time, Toby was hanging out with Willie a lot and was smoking with him. And Toby later wrote a uh, a song that had the lyric, I'll never smoke weed with Willie again. And uh, Jack Johnson had a song with the chorus that had the line, Willie got me stoned and took all my money. So we have Woody Harrelson, we have Toby Keith and Jack Johnson, all of whom smoked pot with Willie and regretted it. 
So I think there's some legs to this story. I think that uh, it's possible this is being exaggerated or made up, but I think I believe it. That uh, Now keep in mind, it's not like Willie is getting Phil Ivey or Daniel Negreanu stoned and trying to beat them. He's playing against celebrities who are known not to be good poker players. There's a few celebrities who are good, like Toby Maguire. But most celebrities are pretty bad poker players. Like the ones you see at the World Series every year, like uh, Brad Garrett and uh, Jason Alexander, Ray Romano, they're decent. You know, they're not great players, but they know what they're doing. They're not fish. But I can't imagine that Woody Harrelson or Toby Keith or Jack Johnson is any good. They've probably only played a few times. They're probably awful. Like, you have to understand that if poker's not a big part of your life, if you only have time to play once in a while and you just kind of have the basics of the game in your head, but you don't really know the strategy, nor are you interested in learning it, you're going to be awful. And that's why most celebrities are terrible. That's why most really rich businessmen are terrible at poker. That's why these the big, big money in poker is if you can get into these private home games, these super high-stakes home games, then you can afford the buy-in, which is the toughest part. Actually, I guess getting in is the toughest part, but affording the buy-in is pretty tough too. And uh, you'll be playing against some of the biggest fish ever. That's how Tommy McGuire is making so much money as a private game professional poker player because he's by far the best player there. And he's able to get in because of his celebrity where everybody else in the game is awful. So it's much, much easier to beat a game like that than it is to beat a high-stakes game at Commerce or Bellagio or Aria or whatever because there you're playing against really elite players, whereas these private games full of rich guys, you're just playing against awful guys who are really rich. So I think that what's being left out of this article but it's pretty clear to me that Willie Nelson not only gets them stoned, but they probably aren't good at poker in the first place. And I think Willie being so old and seen as a stoner himself, you wouldn't expect Willie to be good in poker. And he doesn't even have to be that great. He's probably just okay, but beats these guys when they're not good in the first place and stoned off their ass. In fact, it's possible that getting them stoned is just what kind of loosens them up to be willing to play rather than really making them worse at poker. Because I've seen players who were stoned before at my table, like guys I know to be good, and they can still play pretty well. They're not playing their A game necessarily, but they can still play pretty well. So I think if you get a recreational player, one who's already not that good in the first place, stoned, one, he's probably more willing to gamble with you, and two... He plays even worse. So that's where Willie's beating them. And I think he really is taking advantage of the perception of him that he's not good. So that's interesting. But if you go to nymag.com, I think you can find the article there. Or just Google Willie Nelson space nymag.com and you can read about this. But there's enough stories about this that I think it's true. So you never know. You never know who the card sharks are. Willie Nelson is not one I would have guessed.
Let's see what else we have here. I think we're done with our poker topics. We are. All right, let's get to the general topics. It's 12.15 in the morning right now as I'm broadcasting this. Would you want to drive a driverless car? Or be in a driverless car? I guess you wouldn't be driving it if it's driverless, but would you want one? And would you trust one? The whole concept of a driverless car is a little bit strange to me. I'm not sure I would enjoy it. I would be worried that it could malfunction. I wouldn't like that it has control over my safety. Now, it's one thing riding in something on a track that is running on its own because that's much less likely to malfunction. But there are so many elements you have to be aware of when driving, including other drivers doing crazy things. And yeah, the car is going to have sensors and all that, but I, I just don't think it's the same as human judgment. Now, it's true human judgment also makes errors and machines have better reflexes than humans. Machines have better vision than humans. Machines don't have emotion like humans. Machines don't have issues of being distracted like humans. But still, machines also have bugs and humans don't have that. Humans make mistakes, but machines can have bugs. Machines can freeze up. Machines can uh, have crashes. Machines are only as good as their hardware and their programming, and I hate to trust my life to that. Now, I imagine this will improve over time. But would you really want, at this point, a driverless car? Google has driverless cars, and they've actually gotten permission from the state of California to operate them on the highways. You will see cars driving on the highways, especially Northern California, that are marked as Google driverless cars. It's really weird. You'll drive by them, and they'll have no people in them. (laughs) It's kind of freaky to see. I've never seen it, but I've seen videos of it. Driverless cars can have some advantages. First of all, if you're drunk... Instead of getting behind the wheel and risking killing someone or killing yourself or uh, getting arrested, you can just say, yeah, drive me home and then lie down in the back and let the car do the work. I will say that a driverless car has got to be safer than a drunk driver. So that could really cut down on drunk driving. Driverless cars can also be helpful if you're tired, but you've got to complete your drive. I'm sure you've had times before where you're driving and you feel really, really tired, but you just can't stop. You've got to get where you're going or it feels unsafe or inconvenient to stop. Let's say you've got to drive 40 miles home at 3 in the morning. You're very tired. You don't want to do it, but you don't want to pull over in some unknown area and try to sleep in your car. You don't feel like spending the money for a hotel room, so you just keep driving and hope you don't fall asleep. I've had that before. I've had to roll down the windows to let cold air in to keep me up. Had to blast the radio really loud. I've had to do that to keep myself awake when I'm too tired to drive. At that time, I would prefer to have a driverless car. But what about for everyday driving? Do you really want that? Do you want to cede control to a machine when you are otherwise feeling good, 
feeling alert and able to drive normally. I wouldn't. Not only that, but it takes some enjoyment out of driving too. I actually do get enjoyment out of driving. I prefer to be the driver rather than the passenger. Even if I knew you were a safe driver, I'd prepare I'd prefer to be the one driving if we were both in a car together. So it does take the joy of driving, it takes the control, the feeling of control of driving away from you. Let's look at a hundred years from now, when every single one of us is going to be dead. I think it's safe to say every single listener to this show will be dead in a hundred years. In fact, I, I think almost every single living adult today will be dead in a hundred years, barring some kind of real medical advances that allow people to live to 120. So in a hundred years, which we won't see, maybe my son Benjamin, if he gets lucky, will be alive in a hundred years, but probably not even that. Driverless cars I could see being all over the road to where it's like the norm, to where they're very efficient, very smart, don't make errors, very mature product, much better at driving than humans are, and to where just about every car on the road is driverless, to where it's just, that's what you assume. You just walk in your car, say, take me to such and such place, and it just takes you there. And it's like effortless. You just get in your car and, uh, you know, maybe it has some kind of emergency override if you need to start driving. But uh, other than that, it's always driving you. And that's that. But I think the earlier driverless cars are going to have problems. I think we're going to have stories of driverless cars that are making mistakes. They're causing accidents. People are going to die. There's going to be questions, should we have this? Who's liable if people do die from them? I think what we're going to have for a while will be cars that are both driverless and regular at the same time, where cars that normally you will drive, but you can use as a driverless car if you want to. I guess you could always use it as driverless, but something that it's not expected you're always going to use it that way, but that uh, can do it for you if you need it. Like if you're tired or you're drunk or you just don't feel like driving. So I think even when these start to gain popularity, I think it'll still be a mixture of people driving and not driving, even if they have one of those. I have spoken to some people, including Benjamin's mom, who say that they can't wait for this technology to land in the mainstream because uh, they don't enjoy driving and they, they'd much rather use the time to do other things. To use their smartphones, uh, watch movies, whatever. Like, let's say you live in Los Angeles and you want to go to Vegas, but you kind of don't like the idea of the four, four and a half hour drive. But what if you could just get in your car let it drive you to Vegas and load up your iPad with a few movies 
and watch them. And uh, you know, by the time you're done with two movies, you're in Vegas, and you never had to worry about the hassles of driving. So I can tell you I don't think I would want one. Maybe I'd have one for the times and I, I feel tired. Which honestly isn't all that often. But maybe I'd like it for that. But I don't ever drink, so it wouldn't benefit me from the drunk driving aspect. And I like having the control when I'm driving. I even like being able to speed if I want to. If I want to get somewhere quickly. Like, uh, driverless cars are probably going to obey the speed limit, even though JSTAT videoed one that wasn't. But I have to think that one of the requirements of these is that they can't break speed limit laws. I don't know. I'd find that kind of brutal, just being forced to be on the speed limit all the way to Vegas. Like, for a short drive, it's not that bad. But for, like, a long drive where you're normally wanting to drive 75 or 80 and the speed limit's 60 or 65, that adds a lot of time to the drive. Now, maybe if you can do other things while you're in the car and don't have to pay attention, maybe it doesn't seem as long. But I just, I just don't like it. It just doesn't appeal to me. I wouldn't even feel safe. It's not even like I'd feel safer. I'd feel less safe. I'd just, I'd be waiting for it to screw up and get me in some accident that I'd think, oh, shit, if only I was driving, this wouldn't happen. But maybe some of you would enjoy it. It seems cool on the surface, but I, on one hand, it kind of scares me. But on the other hand, I think once it becomes a mature technology, I, I think we'll probably have a major decrease in accidents, both from the lack of drunk driving accidents and just the lack of uh, accidents from people who aren't driving well. If you could really get all the cars in sync and see each other perfectly, I mean, and get all the bugs out of the system, you could take accidents down to almost zero. But that doesn't mean I'll like it. <laughs> I'll still miss the driving experience. And I don't think it'll be in my lifetime where most of the road, most of the people on the road won't be drivers. I don't think it'll be like all driverless cars or mostly driverless cars. Like, wouldn't that be crazy if like 100 years from now it's illegal to drive your car except there's like an emergency? Like, wouldn't that be crappy if you were required to let it drive you? But I don't think I'll see that. I think that that's far enough in the future to where I won't be alive anymore. I do wonder, like, what safety advances will have been made even if driverless cars will become popular by the time Benjamin's old enough to drive in 11 years. And if that will take any of my anxiety from having my 16-year-old driving. Because that's... No parent likes sending their 16-year-old out to drive. You just you just wish it wasn't happening. Like, in, on one hand, you're happy you don't have to drive them to school anymore, but the other hand, you're always worried that you're going to get that call that... Uh, they were in a major accident. So. I'm kind of trying to convince myself by the time Benjamin, Benjamin can drive, there will be so many safety features on these cars that it'll all be fine. 
775 fraud 55 775 Beer and Poker is saying, I can't I remember growing up as a youngster and how they kept saying a flying car would be around in 20 years but that never happened nor will it ever. I wouldn't say ever, but not in our lifetime. Yeah, flying cars, it's something that seems cool for a sci-fi movie, but in reality, there's too many problems with it. Way too many problems. Like, would you want a car flying over your house? <laughs> would you want a car that could just slam down into your house if, if for whatever happens, it loses uh, altitude or whatever? And it, would you like a car slamming through your roof while you're sleeping? Or even knowing that can happen? I mean, you know with a plane, it's very unlikely. You know with a plane going overhead, you don't really fear it's going to slam into your house. But imagine, like, cars flying over your head at a relatively low altitude. They're not going to be, like, 30,000 feet. You know, if, they're, if they were flying cars, they wouldn't be that high. Like, imagine if those big, heavy things crashed down. And even if they weren't as heavy as, uh, as they are now, which they probably wouldn't be, you know, they crash into each other and then hit the ground. It, it just... It's not a good idea. I think there's the air traffic control of them would be tough. I think they're, they'd have to be advanced enough to where they could control themselves, almost like the self-driving cars, to where they could avoid each other. But still, what do you do about them malfunctioning and crashing? That would have to be really foolproof, too, because of the damage they would cause on the ground. I just don't see the point of them. I mean, yeah, you could go faster, you could cross over areas that are harder to cross, like over water, or over uh, mountains, but yeah, that, that's like way in the future. I can't believe anyone even like was thinking that was sometime in the next 30 years or something. Like, I think everybody realizes now it's not going to be anytime soon. Well, I want to talk about the Republican Party, which is kind of frustrating me. I am a Republican. I always have been. I came to that conclusion from a young age, from about 11 or 12 years old, from watching TV talk shows, specifically uh, Wally George. It's a uh, Southern California talk show that was also syndicated to some other markets. It was a good talk show as an introduction to politics to an 11-year-old, a 12-year-old, because it was a show that was partially entertainment and partially serious issues. Like, they talked about a serious issue, but it was done in an entertaining and outrageous way where the host and the guest were insulting each other and the audience would yell. And It was much more entertainment than discussion of serious issues, but they touched enough on the serious issues to where I was able to form opinions about them and... I, I was able to see where my opinions would lie and how that corresponded to the political parties in the country. And I found that just naturally I agreed to the Republicans much more. Not in everything, but in general, much more with Republicans. So I've been a member of the Republican Party, which is unusual for a Jew, by the way. Most Jews are Democrats. I think 80% of Jews are Democrats. So I'm not a typical Jew in that way. There's two ways that I'm atypical for a Jew. One is being a Republican, and the second one is being tall. You may not realize this, but most Jews are short. 
and the reason you don't recognize this probably is that about 20% of Jews are tall. So, I, I, I don't know if it's 20, I'm just estimating, but somewhere like that, to where there's enough tall Jews to where you don't really notice that most Jews are short. But you'll, you'll notice there's a lot of Jews who are like, you know, guys who are like 5'4", 5'5", 5'6", and uh, not many tall ones. So I'm six foot two, which is unusual for a Jew. I noticed this first when I was at Temple, and I was like sixteen years old and five foot ten at the time. And I was at like a Temple event with other kids my age, and I was towering over most of them, which was so strange because in my school, where most people were not Jewish, like my height was pretty average. I still had four more inches to grow, so I ended up above average, but at the time I was pretty average. So at 5'10 around my high school, I didn't feel tall at all. But then at Temple, I felt like a giant. And I was like, what the hell? There's like hundreds of people here. So it's not like just a, a small class of people that happen to be short. This is like hundreds of people, many hundreds of people, and I'm towering over most of them, and I couldn't understand it. And that's when I realized, oh, it's most users short. And I noticed like as I grew taller and taller and when I was full grown at six foot two and I go to temple. There were a few Jews who were my height or taller, but most of the people at temple were way shorter than me. And I'm talking about the men, not just the women. So I guess I'm atypical in both of those ways. I'm definitely not atypical in uh, the way I spend my money or the way I regard money. There I am, the stereotypical Jew. (laughs) And in some of my attitudes, I'm a stereotypical Jew, but politically, I'm not. But I'll tell you, this presidential race has really left me so disgusted. And I'll tell you, I haven't liked the presidential candidates for the last few races. John McCain, I felt, won by default because everyone around him melted down, including Fred Thompson, who recently just passed away. But everyone around McCain just melted down, and he just kind of won by default, and I knew he was a terrible candidate. But I I felt a little better in that I knew Obama was going to win, so it didn't matter who was up against him. In 2012, I liked Mitt Romney's politics, but I felt that he was a crappy candidate. I felt that he just didn't appeal to the general population. I felt that he came off as stiff and he came off as a rich guy you couldn't relate to and that uh, he wasn't going to win, especially against an incumbent president. Obama had his problems with his popularity at the time, but Romney wasn't the guy to beat him. So I liked him as a politician for his views, but not as a candidate. For president. But this year is the worst. This year's really frustrating me. Maybe when it's done, maybe when the primary's done, I'll feel differently. Because maybe one of the two front runners right now will not be the Republican nominee. But the two front runners right now are Donald Trump and Ben Carson, and they both have big problems. And I'm kind of shocked and embarrassed for the Republican Party that these two are leading. Donald Trump is leading thanks to his bluster, his 
outsider status, his appearance that he's willing to tell it like it is and ask the tough questions and say the tough things. But in reality, he's just a performer. He's kind of just a clown. He's just someone who likes attention. He's not presidential at all. He's not someone who I feel could represent this country as president and not make a fool of himself. And I haven't seen any real plans out of him that are going to make this country better. I've just seen a lot of complaints about the way things are, but not any kind of real solutions on how he would change them. We've heard general comments, but I'm not seeing anything that he's presented that's either in detail or that is viable. But the bigger problem is I just don't think he has the temperament to be presidential, to lead a country like the United States. It's different than running your own corporation or being on TV. He's very good at being on TV. He's very good at saying entertaining and funny things, grabbing attention, even... He's even good at making observations about things that are wrong or things that are bothersome that a lot of other people are embarrassed to say or too politically correct to say. So as a commentator on politics, I think I think he'd be interesting, but not as a president. And it's hard to imagine a President Trump. It just seems like the whole country of the United States would be turned into like a game show. That's kind of what it feels like. It kind of feels like a a Trump presidency would be the apprentice United States. Instead of the celebrity apprentice, it would be the United States apprentice. It really would be just uh, like a giant gimmick. And I know people are saying, oh, he's getting more serious now. Now that he sees he's got a real chance to win, he's he's learning quickly on how to be presidential. Uh, No. He should have learned that a long time ago if he really wanted to be president. And that's the problem. This started off as a gimmick. And then when he actually started getting support, he's like, oh, well, I've got support now. Well, might as well try to be president now. Why not? Like, that's the ultimate attention getter. I guess to use forum terms, I feel like Donald Trump is kind of trolling America. Now, Ben Carson... I don't understand how this guy has the support he does. And amazingly, they took a poll recently that, you know, if you had Carson against Hillary Clinton and he would be the winner by several points. That's even weirder because I don't see where he has appeal beyond those who are religious and want to vote for him for that reason. You know, he's a religious Christian. He has the appeal to other religious Christians, but that's not the vast majority of this country anymore. But somehow he's appealing to others just because he's seen as an outsider, just like Trump is, but in a different way. He's seen as like the uh, the more reserved Donald Trump, who's also an outsider but isn't outrageous. And I think that's where people are seeing appeal out of him. But you watch him at the debates, and he kind of comes off as weird and out of touch. He was shilling for a company called Manatech, that's M-A-N-N-A-T-E-C-H, that was and is a scam. And there are videos you will find on YouTube of Ben Carson promoting Manatech, which at the time was a scam, just like it is today. 
So here he was promoting something. I don't, I'm not saying Ben Carson's a scammer because he's not, and I'm not saying this because I'm afraid he's going to sue me because I, I know that won't happen. But I think he was just foolish and took it a position to endorse something that he didn't really understand. His spokesman said he was duped by Manatech, and believe it or not, I believe it. I, I actually do think he was duped by Manatech. I think that Manatech told him things that sounded good, and he didn't bother to look into it and said, yeah, sure, I'll endorse you guys, and did. Now I'm sure he wishes he didn't because it's interfering with his presidential aspirations, but he did endorse and do commercials and infomercials for Manatech. And anyone who can be easily duped by a scam company that's an obvious scam to anyone with any kind of sense, it, it, it's some kind of like nutritional supplements company. It's, it, it's an obvious scam when you look at it. Like I read a little bit about it, and I just right away it screams scam. First of all, it's a multi-level marketing firm, which right there screams scam. Uh, and they distribute what they call glyconutrients, which are supposedly beneficial for your health. Esquire magazine wrote, Manatech is a quack operation and Ben Carson is a political quack of the first rank. It's true. I don't see the appeal of this guy. It's not even like when he speaks, you think what a brilliant politician or what brilliant ideas he has or, wow, he's going to help this country. Like, you don't. You just kind of get someone who seems kind of weird, kind of out of it. There's no way that I feel that he would be a good president or even have a good grasp on what to do. I'm even surprised that... uh, He's a surgeon. I'm surprised he was able to get that far. He doesn't even come off as very smart. He also lied about his background in a very weird book he released. He talks about how he was violent as a kid and a teenager and, in fact, tried to kill someone once. These aren't, like, rumors about him. This this was in his own book he was talking about this. And the weird thing is, it turns out that this is probably a lie. Because people who went to school with him, people who were friends with him back in the day, were asked about this, and they said, no. Ben Carson was never a troublemaker. He was never a troubled kid. He was never violent. We never heard about him uh, hurting people or almost killing people or having a bad temper or anything like that. He was just this kind of, like, quiet, nerdy kid that never made waves. Which is fine. I mean, that's. I'd much rather have that as a president than someone who was uh, trying to commit murder. But but he he uses these phony stories from his past, showing that uh, by finding God, that he turned himself around. He turned himself around from a juvenile delinquent to a surgeon, who now is seriously in the re- the running to be president of the U.S. Someone who found God and went from a worthless human being to someone who was very successful and very moral. But I don't know. I I wouldn't want someone who was a psycho as a teenager to be our president. I don't care how much they turn themselves around. It's, It's still them. If you're capable of something as a teenager that's pretty bad, you don't really want to trust that person all that much as an adult. And we all did stupid things as teenagers, but the type of stuff he was describing was was pretty violent stuff, or at least uh, 
he was talking at least about considering doing some pretty violent things. Can you imagine that guy wants to be president? A, a guy who wrote about this in his book? And the funny thing, it's not even true. So it shows he's just a liar. He's just lying about this stuff for attention, which is even odder than if it were really true. Like, I'm not understanding what the appeal of this guy is. So, to me, it seems like in the Republican Party, those supporting him are either doing so for religious reasons or because it becomes like a contest of out-conservating out conservativing one another. That's not a real word, but out-conservativing is where you just try to be the most conservative candidate, and therefore everyone else looks liberal compared to you, and therefore you get the conservative vote. But I think that's BS. I don't think most conservative equals best. I think there's been too much of that focus in the last 20 years that the more conservative you are, the better Republican you are. That's not true. There is such a thing as being too conservative. You can be a conservative without being an ultra-conservative or fanatical conservative. You can be right of center without being all the way to the right. But, I, but uh, since the Tea Party got popularity in this country, unfortunately, it's become a contest to some degree in a lot of these political races in the primary of who can be the most conservative. And that's not really what they should be competing for. What they should be competing over should be who would be the best candidate to beat the Democratic candidate and who would be the best leader. Kind of a combination of the two. Who'd be the best leader and who could actually win the general election? Because you can seem like a great candidate to where your base loves you, but if you're going to lose the general election, then you're not a good candidate. You've got to win or you can't govern. doesn't matter what your views are. If you're not going to win, then you are useless. So first and foremost, you need someone who can win. And second, you want someone to win that you like. So... What I really don't understand is why Ben Carson is getting such good numbers in a general election poll. I can understand why certain fanatical conservatives love him, but I, I don't understand why the general population would vote for him, aside from the religious or super conservative types. So I don't want either of these guys. I don't want the TV clown and Donald Trump, and I don't want Ben Carson the weirdo, the scam shill, and the liar. I don't want either of these guys, but they're the two leaders right now, and I think this is a very indicative of the current problems in the Republican Party, that a lot of conservatives don't understand what's important. And I think what is important as a conservative is, number one, to get people elected in the primary that can appeal to the general population, that don't come off as weirdos or fanatics or extremists, but someone who has broad appeal. You want to know who had broad appeal big time but was a conservative? Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan got a lot of Democrats voting for him in 1980 and 1984. 
because he had general appeal. He was a great candidate. And he was a conservative. So he reached this appeal not even by moderating to the middle. He wasn't an ultra-conservative, but he didn't moderate all the way down to the middle. He was just a very good speaker. He came off as very trustworthy and grandfatherly. Very likable. And he represented the opposite of what people were frustrated with at the time. Which was big government, liberal politicians. People got tired of all the problems in the late 70s. The Iran hostage crisis, the stagflation, the oil crisis, and everything else. So they went a different direction, much like how everyone went a different direction in 2008 with Barack Obama. So, someone who's a conservative, first of all, should want to see a candidate elected in the primary who will win the general election and not just pick the guy who's most conservative because he's not going to win. Second, you need someone who understands mainstream issues in the U.S. and, and basically can govern with the will of the people, not the will of the conservative 10% of the country, the most conservative 10%, but the will of the majority. And you can do that and be a conservative because there's a lot of people who don't identify as Republicans who still have conservative points of view on a lot of issues. There's people in the middle that can kind of go either way. There's people who kind of go with the flow of the way uh, the general public thinks. And you want to be able to influence those people. You want a candidate who can influence those people who are kind of wavering in the middle in the general public that would go more to the conservative side. But you don't need an ultra-conservative who is super, super hard right on every issue. He's not going to win, and even if he does... He's not going to be able to govern very well because he's going to be seen as a far-right nut. No one's going to want to work with him. He's not going to get anything done. And he's not going to be popular with the public. So you need a conservative candidate who's reasonable and who can appeal to the independents and even some Democrats. Otherwise, you're not going to win. So I don't feel that either of these guys are that for different reasons. Trump, I don't think, is an ultra-conservative by any means, but uh, he's got his other problems, which I've already mentioned. And you don't want anyone with like a weird history, like what Ben Carson has. You don't want anyone who's been involved with a scam company, even if he was an accidental spokesman and didn't realize what he was promoting. You don't want someone who writes a book about violent tendencies as a kid. You don't want any of that weird crap. And 
And the funny thing is Hillary shouldn't be that hard to beat with a good candidate. Hillary has a lot of negatives. A lot of people don't trust Hillary. There was a a poll recently that only 35% of America trusts Hillary. 35%. Now that's a candidate with a major flaw. Can you imagine being a presidential candidate? Right now the front runner for the whole thing with a 35% trustworthiness rate? That should not be a hard person to beat with a good candidate. People, and rightfully so, are skeptical of Hillary. People think she's out for herself, she's dishonest, she basically writes her own rules, and it's all true, that's what she does. She can't be trusted. Hillary's not a good person. And I don't say that about all Democrats. I I, I don't say Obama's not a good person. I've never had an issue with Obama's character. But Hillary, I have a big issue with her character. I don't agree with a lot of Obama's politics, but I don't think his character is bad. But Hillary, I've thought for decades that her character is bad. So that's known, and Republicans should be able to capitalize on that, but only with a candidate who's decent. I'm starting to warm up to Marco Rubio. He might be the answer. Unfortunately, I I think his youth hurts him. He's a little bit older than me. I think he's like a year older than me, maybe even less than a year. And he comes off as very young. He looks young for his age, which when you're running for president and you're 44 is not a good thing. If you're 70, it's great. If you're 44, it's not good because you want to look older and experienced. People don't want to look at a president who has a youthful look. It just uh, makes people feel uncomfortable. I think that's going to hurt him, especially because he has the general aura of inexperience. And that's I'm a little bit worried about that being harmful to him. But other than that, he brings a lot of positives to the table. And if you have him as the candidate, then Republicans have pretty much locked up Florida, which they have to win if they want to win the election. That's an important state that's always very close, and they'll take that if he is the candidate. I think the Republicans will pick up a lot of the all-important Hispanic vote that they have not been getting with Marco Rubio as a candidate. There's been talk about Marco Rubio, and then Kasich as the vice president, John Kasich, and I think that's not a bad idea, even though Kasich wasn't that impressive in the debates. As the vice president, what he will bring to the table is the state of Ohio. And if the Republicans get Ohio and Florida, that's very strong, because they need both of those states. Without either of those two, they will lose. Why? Because the Democrats are pretty much guaranteed New York and California. And that's over 90 electoral votes right there. That's like 92 electoral votes. That's very hard to overcome. Just right there you get like 92 guaranteed electoral votes. Uh, Republicans get Texas, which is is nice, but it's, it's not anything like California and New York combined. Not even close. And then the rest of it, Republicans have to fight for. 
and there's no just easy big state they're going to take down besides Texas. So to make up for that, they need to win Florida and Ohio. That's how George W. Bush won, was getting both of those states. If he didn't, he would have lost. Republicans have not had those in 08 or 12. So they've got to get him back, and uh, a Rubio Kasich ticket would probably be the answer to that. Now, of course, you've got to win more than Florida and uh, Ohio, but I think Rubio could have enough mainstream appeal to where he could pull this off, especially against Hillary. We're not talking about like a 2008 version of Barack Obama, who is unbeatable. We're talking about Hillary, who is very vulnerable and is really her, wor- her own worst enemy. So Marco Rubio is not a weird candidate. He doesn't have any really bad gotchas that I see. He can be relatable to the general population. So that that's who I'm thinking I'm going to vote for right now in the primary. But I don't know if he can come back. I don't know if he can not even come back. But I don't know if he can come up. He was never there. Let me take a look at the uh, polling right now. Uh, Let's see here. Okay, so national right now. Ben Carson slightly leading now over Trump, but it's a virtual tie. Carson 24.8, Trump 24.6. Then Rubio has 11, Cruz has 8.8, and Bush has 5.8, but Bush is on his way down. He's, he's pretty much done. I really do think it's down to those four, and I don't think Cruz is going to make it. Cruz has a lot of good ideas and can perform pretty well in debates, but and he's a very smart guy, but... I don't think he has the mainstream appeal, and I think he's a little too conservative to win the general election. So, I think it's going to be one of those four, and I I think if it's going to be someone other than Carson or Trump, I'd like to see it be Rubio. And he's the only, not only would I like to, I think he's really the only one that has a legit shot here to unseat one of those two. On the Democratic side, uh, even though Bernie Sanders has broken 30% nationally, he's up to 325 uh, he's not going to even touch her. I mean, it's, it's not even close. It's not going to be close. So... Hillary is not doing that well in polls against uh, presidential candidates. In fact, even against uh, Bush, she would lose right now slightly. Trump, by the way, would lose to Hillary Clinton. But Clinton's a flawed candidate. 
I think Marco Rubio could beat her. And I hope the party stops worshipping these crazy or weird candidates. I, I hate when the candidates getting attention are ones who either say stupid things or are extreme or have a lot of embarrassing history that their supporters just keep ignoring. I like as a Republican to have a candidate that I can be proud of and be proud to support and proud to vote for, not have to overlook pretty bad things and or just say, oh, well, still not as bad as the Democrat. Like I, I don't want to be in that spot. And I hope the Republican Party can kind of recover itself and stop with this obsession of over-conservatism and just uh, pick the best one to govern and pick the best one to win. Lou Father asking in chat, why haven't we had a Jew president, Druff? Are they that unlikable? (laughs) I don't know. Uh... I just think it hasn't happened yet. I, I I don't necessarily think it can happen. I mean, look, there there were people saying we wouldn't have a black president for a very long time, and we just had a black president eight years ago. That happened pretty quickly. I mean, I know he's half black, but he looks black, and he's generally thought of as black, Barack Obama. So if we could have a black president, we could definitely have a Jewish president. Uh, probably a Jewish president would be a Democrat and I probably wouldn't vote for them even if they're Jewish, you know, just because it's the same religion as me, they probably wouldn't agree with me politically, but J-Stat is saying Rubio is a rhino and that stands for Republican in name only, but I, I don't agree. I just think he, you know, he's not as conservative as some of the other ones, but that's actually good because that means he can win. Bobby Orr saying they joined the Supreme Court, the Jews. That's the real power. I don't think there's enough anti-Semitism in the country where someone would lose because they're Jewish. Lou Father saying, Druff, what do your parents think of Obama? Do they not trust him because of the whole Muslim thing? No. My parents are also Republicans, but they don't believe this Muslim crap. Like, I, I don't believe any of those stupid conspiracy stories about Obama. Basically, about Obama, I think he, he means well and he mostly believes in what he's doing. He just isn't right. And he's just not a a good manager. That's how we had some of these debacles like the healthcare.gov thing where they spent $560 million on a non-working website and nobody realized it. <laughs> There are some stories about Obama where he's derisively called no drama Obama. And this is by fellow Democrats, not by Republicans who hate him. And you think no drama Obama would be a compliment, but it's not because that's referred to or it's referring to the fact that Obama is obsessed with no infighting within his organization. And the problem with that is that everyone is afraid to criticize anyone else if they see something wrong that is occurring. And that is what occurred with healthcare.gov 
when it wasn't ready and when it didn't work after spending $560 million on it. And honestly, it looked like a site that they spent $560, not $560 million. I mean, it was a terrible site, and I can't imagine where all the money went. But that it went this far because people who saw what was starting to happen, people who were aware of the problems with healthcare.gov, to sign up for Obamacare. They, they were afraid to say anything to Obama. They were afraid to pretty much tattle on his cabinet member who was in charge of it because they're not supposed to do that. They're not supposed to criticize each other. They're not supposed to run to Obama and, and cause problems for other cabinet members. So everyone is supposed to just shut up and smile and uh, not have drama. And this is what caused things like that. People are not encouraged to speak up to Barack Obama when they see things happening that should not be. And that's that's the hallmark of a bad manager. <laughs> Lou Father saying, if Trump somehow gets elected, I might go back home to Israel myself. <laughs> So I'm not one of these crazy Republicans who thinks Barack Obama is evil or he's a communist or that he's got some kind of secret agenda to help the Muslims. I I don't believe any of that crap. I don't believe he's not a citizen. I don't believe any of this BS. I I just don't think he is uh, a good manager and I don't agree with a lot of his political views. So that's that. I mean, like, Jimmy Carter is another, he's a president I respected as a human being and that I thought he meant well and was trying to do his best. I just think he was a lousy president <laughs> and his record showed it. That's why he lost so badly in 1980 in re-election. So we'll see. It's possible that uh, Carson and Trump will wilt and uh, Marco Rubio Maybe even someone else will rise up in their place and we will be wondering why we're ever even concerned about one of those two winning. Lou Father saying, I can't imagine Druff liking Jimmy Carter's politics at all. Well, I, I mean, at the time I wasn't thinking of it because I was too young, but later on when I was old enough to understand it, no, I, I didn't like his politics. You have to understand, when he left office, I was uh, not even nine years old yet. I was almost nine, but I was almost, yeah, I was eight years old and close to nine when he left office and Reagan took over. So, how many eight-year-olds do you know that think about politics? I was not one of them. I was aware of the presidential election and that it was Carter versus Reagan versus Anderson, <laughs> the independent, but that was really all I knew. I didn't really understand the rest of it. Finally, what about the Los Angeles Lakers? We know they have no chance this year. No one except for the most delusional fan 
believe that they really had a shot to make the playoffs in 2015-2016. But are they on their way? Are they improving after last year's disastrous season? Will Kobe Bryant's return after missing much of last year mean that the Lakers will be at least presentable even if they don't make the playoffs? Well, the answer, unfortunately, is no. Uh, the Lakers right now are 0-4. But it's not just 0-4, it's a bad 0-4. Because they have lost by an average of 10 points, and they've lost against some pretty bad teams. It's not like they were playing uh, Golden State and the Clippers and the Toronto. It's not like they were facing teams like that and losing and say, well, look, they're playing top teams here. Here's the competition. Here's the elite competition that beat the Lakers. They lost to the Minnesota Timberwolves. (laughs) They lost to the juggernaut known as the Sacramento Kings. They lost to the Dallas Mavericks, who have gone downhill and not are even are not the Mavericks of old. <laughs> and they lost to the only other team in the West that might be as bad as they are, the Denver Nuggets. <laughs> and by the way, they lost three of these four games at home. The only one on the road was against Sacramento. So the Nuggets even beat them by 11 on their home court. The Lakers have allowed 112, 132, 103, and 120 points in regulation. Yes, their their second best defensive game so far was allowing 112 points. Needless to say, this team is a disaster. Now, no one expected them to be great. No one expected them to even be good. But the question is, how long is it going to be until the Lakers are competitive again? Because this is a a very proud organization that has a great history that has been pretty much successful during my entire lifetime, minus a few short stretches. So for them to be this awful is kind of new to me. Even when the Lakers weren't good, they weren't like this. They weren't horrible like they are now. Uh, really, the, the problem is that uh, Kobe Bryant, first of all, is done. And he doesn't realize it fully. I mean, he's criticizing himself in the media, saying things like, Kobe Bryant stinks. But he doesn't really mean it yet. He means more like, Kobe Bryant stinks for the moment, but he's going to get better. Like uh, Kobe Bryant has been playing since age 18 in the NBA. That takes its toll on you. He's played a lot of minutes. He's been the go-to player. He's had three guys in his face triple-teaming him. He's had a lot of wear and tear on his body. He's had a number of surgeries. He's had a number of injuries. He's come back from them. But he's just been out there too long, suffered too many injuries, been beaten around too much by too many players covering him. He had a great career. 
I think Kobe Bryant is one of the best players ever in the NBA. I watched him. I couldn't believe some of the shots he used to make when he was in his prime. He'd have two or three guys putting their hands in his face. He'd be falling back from a long distance and put up a shot. He'd go, there's no way that's going to go in. And in fact, I'd criticize and go, oh, that's a terrible shot, Kobe. Come on. And go, swish. Right in there. Time and time again. You want a guy to make the tough shot in crunch time? It's Kobe. He never choked. Always got it done. Engineered so many fourth quarter comebacks. It seemed like there was no shot he couldn't make, no matter who was in his face, what position his body was in, whether he could see the basket clearly or not, just went in. Yeah, he was selfish. He was a ball hog. He did sometimes take some really ill-advised shots that even for him had no chance of going in, but overall, he was an amazing player, but he's not anymore. He's done, and the problem is, unlike some other great players who will take a back seat... If they still want to play, they'll become a role player. He won't do that. Kobe Bryant either wants to be the star or not play at all. So as long as he is attempting to lead the team, this team will be even worse than it otherwise is. He also can't play defense anymore. He used to be a good defensive player. He made all defensive teams, but that's way in the past. He's not fast enough anymore. He's not quick enough anymore. He doesn't have the reflexes he once did, again, because he is 37 years old, and he'll be getting close to 38 by the time the season's over. He's born in 1978, and uh, he has just too many minutes logged in the NBA. He just doesn't have it anymore. And the Lakers have too many players who have too many things in common. That is, players who can score, but can't play defense. This team cannot play defense, and they've had this problem for three years now. There's no defense on this team. That's why they're giving up 132 points to Sacramento. That's why they're giving up 120 points to Denver. Not just Denver, but a shorthanded Denver team. This team just cannot play any defense. So even though you have players like Julius Randle, who are exciting and might actually be pretty good in the future, ones like Nick Young, who are intriguing to watch, it, it's too much of the same. It's, it's too many guys who are young, who have some scoring potential, but uh, can't play defense. And you have an aging former superstar who's a shadow of his former self and doesn't completely realize it or accept it. Now, Kobe Bryant may very well retire after this year. I hope he does. But that doesn't mean the Lakers' problems are over. Because there's just so much they have to do to become... A contender. They're in the West, which is a very, very tough conference. If they were in the East, you could say, well, at least they'd start making the playoffs if they could put together a halfway decent team. In the West, it's very hard. 
And to crack the top teams in the West is even harder. Golden State, as good as they were last year, may even be better this year. They've just been super dominant. They've won their first five games by an average of almost 21 points, which is obscene. So for the Lakers to get anywhere near the point of beating a team like Golden State, it's just so far off. And even beating a team like the Clippers, the other L.A. team that I never thought would be the superior one in town, but has become that by far. Even a team like that or a team like Portland or a team like San Antonio. I mean, San Antonio, they're they're aging off. Eventually, they're going to be done. But even Oklahoma City. The Lakers just seem so behind all of them. And it just seems like they need so many pieces. It doesn't even seem like one really good player that they managed to sign is going to fix the whole thing. Will it impact them positively? Yeah, of course. In the NBA, you you get a single player who's really good, and it makes a huge difference in the standings. It's not even like baseball where... Uh, one player can't carry the team. One player can carry the team in the NBA, but it's not going to carry it to a championship or anywhere near that. So there's talk that maybe Westbrook will end up on the Lakers in 2017. Okay, good. That'll help, but he's not going to elevate the team to beat Golden State. Now, because... Basketball only has five people on the floor at once because stars on the team have so much more of an impact in that sport than any other sport that I know of. You can get health, healthier a lot more quickly in basketball than you can in other sports. That's why the Clippers rose so quickly. You get uh, Griffin and Paul, and all of a sudden you've got a different team. Probably the second best team in the West, the Clippers. But I just I just have a feeling like the Lakers not only have a lot to do, but that they don't have very competent people working there anymore. I feel that uh, Jerry Buss's kids, especially Jim Buss, don't really know what they're doing. So it's really not good ownership anymore, and it's uh, not really a good general manager, and... They just have a lot they have to accomplish. Maybe a few good drafts will correct this. Depends upon who's available and who they get. But I have little optimism about this team. I don't think we're going to see a Lakers championship or even finals appearance for many years. As sad as that is to admit. Bobby Orr is excited that the Raptors are 5-0. and He's from Toronto. The Raptors looked excellent at the uh, end of last year. And, you know, they've, they've got to compete with Cleveland again. But I wouldn't be surprised if the Raptors can get all the way to the finals. I... At the moment, the way Golden State looks, I can't see anyone beating them. 
they just look amazing right now. So I know it's only five games in, but I think if Golden State is better this year than last year, then Lord help the other teams in the NBA. So that is my uh, NBA analysis so far. I know last year, last week I said I wasn't following enough. I've followed it more in the past week and not feeling good about the Lakers. And I, I am a Lakers fan, but I, I've kind of just, I've become kind of a background Lakers fan. Like the Dodgers, I watched them every game this year, minus a few. Lakers, I, I watch very little of it because I, I know what the result is. I know they're going to lose most of the games. They're not going to make the playoffs. They're going to look terrible. They're not going to play defense. Like, why? Like, what, what's the point of watching a full season of a team you know is going to be terrible? It's not fun. Like, I, if I worked for the Lakers and I had to do that, fine. But it's not really pleasurable to watch a terrible team that you know is going to be terrible. All right, any questions in the chat, I'll answer them. We're getting uh, close somehow to the six-hour mark. I don't know how I keep doing this. I remember when three hours was the norm for this show. Three, three and a half. I, I don't know how we get to six. Some people on the forum, by the way, were surprised that I gave such positive comments to what Amaya was doing with Poker Stars. I mean, I, I was critical of the way they were handling the Supernova Elite situation, but some people were surprised that I was praising Poker Stars for basically reducing the benefits for the grinders. And I've said for years that there's a lot of dumb models that exist in today's online poker that shouldn't, that are based upon antiquated business models. The whole affiliate thing, you know, affiliates are pretty much leeches on the system and don't really bring much value. And if you're an affiliate, by the way, I know we have some affiliates who listen to this show. Now, good for you. I mean, I'm glad you're making money. I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm just saying, honestly, you're providing a useless service that the sites are dumb enough to pay you for. So great, I'm, I'm happy you're getting the money instead of the sites, but if they were smart, they wouldn't pay you anything because you're really not worth very much. <laughs> I mean, look, if a company wants to, if an online poker company wants to give me something for nothing, I'll take it. I'm not going to steal from anyone, but if they, if they're willing to pay me for work that's really not producing much value for them, yeah, I'll do it. So I don't blame you for doing it. I'm just saying that uh, affiliates are not really carrying their weight anymore and haven't for a long time. Site pros, except for maybe the top few, like Negranu and Helmuth's not even a site pro anymore, but if you were, you know, guys like that I could see being of some value as site pros, but all these other site pros like PokerStars has, again, it's stupid. It's not really bringing people in. Amaya's pushing away from that too. And they're starting to emphasize non-poker site pros, like soccer players and ones like that, who just have general appeal. They realize that having online poker nerds as site pros or a few guys who've had some tournament scores, or you know, it doesn't attract people to the game. So... 
They're doing away with that, and I think that's smart. But I also think that giving extra benefits to regulars on the site, to the super grinders, I, I think that's pointless. I think they don't deserve it. They don't deserve more rake back than the average player. They don't. It should be a flat rake structure. And that's that. I mean, honestly, I think they should just kill rake back entirely. Why even have it? Why have rake and then give it back? Why not just lower the rake for everybody across the board and be done with it? And if they really want to do rake back just for a promotional gimmick, then fine. Like, if you want to charge 25% extra rake and then give 25% rake back to make people feel good, fine. You know, at least people can feel like they're earning bonuses. Uh, it's an old trick for selling anything. People are much happier to pay 10% more for something and then get a free one after coming in 10 times than they are to just pay 10% less and never get a free one. For some reason, the pay more and then get something free feels better. So I can understand doing rake back in that way, but don't do this tiered system that rewards the people who just sit there all day in 20 table. You don't need them anymore. So I I like to be fair when it comes to poker stars. I don't just criticize them because I hate them or I want to find something to complain about. I'm fair, just like I am with the World Series. I'll I'll criticize them when they need criticizing. I'll praise them when they need praise. I like to think of myself as someone who's very fair and objective when it comes to any poker matter. And that I'm not afraid to piss people off or piss companies off, but I'm also not someone with an axe to grind that's looking to make a particular company or individual look bad. Even with a story like with Brian Mikon, someone who I had a big falling out with and have some hard feelings toward, I think I've handled this fairly. I don't think I've... Uh, said anything about him here that I wouldn't have said about a stranger who was in the exact same predicament. And I don't think I've been entirely harsh or negative on him. I've said some things in his favor as well. Let's take a look at the chat room. Remember, if you want to listen to this show by phone, you can always call 775-712, or sorry, wrong way, 712-775-8162. 712-775-8162 is our new call-to-listen phone number, and you will hear streaming reruns of Poker Fraud Alert Radio 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, on PokerFraudAlert.com on the radio page or on that phone number. So you don't just have to pick something in the archives if you want to hear an old show. You can just listen at any time and just catch something that's running. You might wonder, why am I doing that? Why? What's the point of 
running random shows on like a live streaming that people can't fast forward and rewind if they can just go to that individual show in the archives and just jump around where they want? Why, why would I restrict people like that? What's the point of listening to something like that? And the reason for this is that it's easier for people. It's actually a lot harder to decide which show you want to listen to and decide what part of it you want to listen to and uh, start it up and listen. It's a lot easier to just go to the radio page or call the radio phone number and just listen. It's easy, painless. It's the same reason people like to turn on the radio and listen to whatever's playing versus downloading the song that they want to hear. Sometimes you just like something being presented to you easily and where it's their choice and not yours. And of course, if you don't like what you hear, you can turn it off and come back later. You might wonder, with all these reruns going 24-7, are we going to have a lot of repetition? on the 24-7 Poker Fraud Alert radio channel? And the answer is no. Would you believe that if you play Poker Fraud Alert radio's archives from beginning to end and don't repeat anything, that it would take over a month to listen to everything? I have over a month of 24-hour, 7-day-a-week material to play without repeating anything. Which is kind of scary to me that I have over a month of 24-7 footage of just myself talking. That if I wanted to, I could listen to myself talk 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, for over a month without any repetition. Crazy. Matt the Rat says it's because every show's so long. I'll confess something else here before I end the show. And no, I don't have the broadcast I did for my car. That one I lost. Like, that didn't record somehow. But I'll confess something here. Of Part of the reason I set up the call-to-listen phone number. As a kid, I had certain things that I was really into. One of them was computers... One of them was radio. One of them was telephones. And one of them was gambling. I thought about all these things a lot when I was a kid and was into all of them. I couldn't really gamble as a kid, but I, I couldn't wait till I got older to do it. And if you think about it, these four things all persist in my life to this day. I didn't stray that far from those particular interests. So I just think it's really cool to have a phone number that I I or anybody else can call. I mean, I only call it really just to hear out of curiosity what's playing on there and to make sure it's working, but that to know there's a phone number that people can call to hear this show, that my show is like on a phone number constantly. It just seems cool to me. Because, you know, back in the day, back in, in the 80s and the 70s, Pretty much each house had one or sometimes two phone numbers, but each phone number was considered precious. And that kind of stays with me to this day, even though there's so many phone numbers that are wasted on so many things. Like, if you think about it, this radio show is hogging up three phone numbers by itself. This radio show, which is once a week, 
has three phone numbers it uses that are used for nothing else. It has the Mount Charleston line. It has the main phone number, which you can text and call. And now it has the listen line. Three different phone numbers, one in 775, one in 702, one in 712. Three phone numbers just for this show, which is crazy. Three dedicated phone numbers which do nothing else except serve this show. So, I just like the idea of a phone number that is dedicated to streaming out this show constantly. So it's partially that and partially that there's really people who wanted to use it. So I, I realized that today, though, when I thought about it. I'm like, what things were I... What was I interested in when I was a kid? What things did I think were cool back then? And I thought about telephones, radio, gambling, computers. And here we are with a show that you can call into that broadcasts also on a telephone that's done over a computer that is about gambling. All right, so you know it's time to end the show when all of the chat going on has nothing to do with the program. It's all just like people talking to each other. We have about half the ratings we had at the peak of tonight. And they will keep going downhill until I end this. So I will put an end here to the show before the ratings get too much lower. Slap this thing up in the archives. And... uh, get this done. This was not easy because I I had no co-host tonight. So, uh, I guess I had Team MLK for a short time. Hang on, hang on. Gotta take this. Haven't had many calls tonight, so I I can't give up on the chance to take one. Caller, you're on the air. Hey, Druff. Uh, I'm a long-time listener from uh, Northern California. I just got to work uh, at 1 a.m., and I was ecstatic to see that you're on the air. I very rarely get a chance to catch the show live, but I'm a big fan. I uh, frequently listen in the archives. I've went through and listened to uh, all the classics in the archives, and I heard you say either last week or the week before that you enjoy when people uh, tell you how much a show means to them and how much they enjoy it, and I just wanted to say that uh, you're the only po- – I boycott all other poker podcasts. I hate those poker podcasts where they lick all these professional poker players' balls and say, what's it like to be so great and be so rich? I love how you just – I'm really intrigued by the scandals and, you know, the shady side of poker because I was very deluded when I initially got into poker. I was like, oh, well, you just deposit money online and get rich. So uh, I really like that you just keep it real, and I like uh, your little stories from your past and everything. And I'm very entertained by the show, and uh, – I like the long, you know, five-hour, six-hour shows because, like I said, I usually listen to the podcast at work, and uh, it helps get me through my eight-hour days. So, well, thank, thank you, thank you. Yeah, thank you. What is your name, by the way? Uh, call me the Blackfish. The Blackfish. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I, I see the uh, the area code from Northern California. You seem to be in the Sacramento area. Is that true? Yes, that would be me. I am from Sacramento. Yeah, I recognize that area code, and. Uh, 
All right. Well, thank you for all your comments there. You know, I like to hear things like this. And uh, sometimes I wonder, like, how can people stand to listen to me talk for six hours? But apparently some people like it. And uh, I'm glad you appreciate the honesty of this show and that I just say whatever's on my mind. And I, I don't worry about uh, who I get angry because that's uh, that's really the focus here. The point is just... Uh, to have an honest view of everything going on. And uh, in that way, I'm actually happy I don't have any sponsors. Uh, the Jewish part of me is not happy about that, but the, I'm happy about not having the sponsors because I don't have to worry about if I want to say anything bad about them and have them get mad at me. So, No, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I <clears throat> once I discovered uh, Dress and Friends, I just pretty much – uh, stop listening to all of the poker podcasts. You you dish out the information that I want. I don't have to search the the bad beats and variants and the news views and gossip and two plus two anymore. I just come here and you know I get the straight dope and I love it. Like uh, and uh, you know I think it's funny. I've heard you mention before. Uh, I know that uh, Drexel is a, a big uh, Seinfeld fan, and I've heard you mention before that you never really uh, got into Curb Your Enthusiasm or Seinfeld. But I gotta say, in my opinion. You were the Larry David of poker. <laughs> I've, I've heard like, things like that before. I've heard comparisons uh, with me to Larry David, and I can kind of understand it. So, Yeah, I mean, if you watch the show, people are constantly misunderstanding him, and he's, he, he's like, like the whole David Baker situation. That is something that would happen to Larry David, where he <laughs> just completely misunderstands the situation, and then and David Baker ends up thinking you're some kind of ass. But really, it was just like it was a complete huge misunderstanding. This kind of thing happens to uh, Larry David all the time on Curb Your Enthusiasm. So, and you guys are both like cheap juice. So I, I feel like if, if there was a you know a counterpart to Larry David in the poker world, it would definitely be you. And I mean that in the you know the kindest possible way. No, I understand. Thank you. And mm-hmm. uh, and look, I, I'm also glad just anybody who who enjoys hearing the show and. Uh, and is dedicated to hearing it and, and wants to hear it every week. I enjoy that. And, in fact, uh, when I think of how long I'm going to continue doing this and, and when am I going to ever quit it, and I, I think about, like, if I just quit it tomorrow and never did the show again, I think, well, we're going to have a 1,000 people, a lot of whom will be very disappointed never to hear it again, and I'd feel like I was letting everybody down. And uh, so I, I like to hear... That, you know, the time I put into doing this once a week and and the time preparing for all that like it's that is well spent and that people are enjoying it and that uh, that makes me feel good whereas if, if people could kind of just take it or leave it and not give a crap I'd probably just not bother no I implore you please continue doing the show I'm a huge fan and uh, uh, you know I've, I've heard you talk about things like this before I've been meaning to call in I've not I don't have an account on the forums. I've never, uh, I'm not big on forums. I don't have a personal Facebook or a, you know, a Twitter. I'm not, I don't like people in real life. So why would I want to socially network with them? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I, I know so, the forum, uh, the forum is, it attracts a different crowd to some degree. There's some who listen to both, uh, who listen to the show and go on the forum, but, uh, it's, it's easy to forget sometimes for me that there's a lot of people who listen to the show that don't read the forum or get involved in it at all because they, it's just not something that appeals to them. And uh, it's it's really two different crowds. And uh, in fact, I saw that when I sold pieces of myself, to the World Series in 2015, most of the people buying pieces were ones I'd never heard of before who were radio listeners and not even uh, forum people. And uh, so that, that sure. even show, showed it more. But I'm glad you were able to catch us on here 
tonight uh, late. It's just been going a long time recently. It just seems like the <laughs> the shows are getting longer and longer for whatever reason. And the, this one was a little tough tonight because I, I really didn't have a co-host almost the whole time, and I'm feeling it now. I'm six hours in, but that's just. Uh, I love the epic marathon shows. Those are those are my faves because it gets me pretty much through my whole shit. So. Yeah, that, see, I understand that point. Like, I, I think about when I used to work a regular job, and I do think about some of the long days when I'd get there and I'd go, oh, man, I, like, I can't believe I'm going to be here for nine hours, and it seems like such a long time. And if you have a, a show you could hear in the background that's entertaining, I mean, I would even turn on radio shows and I'd be at work. And uh, so I can see how something like that, just to have in the background for six hours can be, can be nice to have if it's something that you enjoy hearing. Yeah, it's great. And also, I'd like to say, you know, fuck all the, the laugh track haters. The laugh track is the shit. I'm all <laughs> about the laugh track. I laugh before. It's like I'm laughing in the laugh track. I'm like, yes, that's funny. That's funny. You need the laugh track. I think it's great. Huge fan. I can use it as much as you want. Fuck Judong, Marty, the people that don't like them. The last track is brilliant. I'm glad you like it. You are fading a bit, though. Your cell phone is cutting out. Oh, sorry. A little bit here. Yeah, for some reason, uh, you're very clear before, but now it's kind of hard to hear you. Uh, I'm on the first floor. Uh, I work in a a high-end department store in in the greater Sacramento area, and uh, when I get on the first floor, I don't have the best reception. Okay. Well... Yeah, I, Marty doesn't like any sound effects. He gets mad when sound effects. I think Marty hates the sound effects because on previous shows when Marty was going crazy, people would just we, – we play sound effects over him to just uh, kind of drown him out. Yeah. So I think – Like cuckoo. Yeah. yeah so I, I think that uh, now when he hears sound effects, it just traumatizes him when he thinks back to that happening. And, <laughs> and he, he just doesn't like them no matter what. But – I like them. That's why I play them. And I know there's there's mixed feelings on the sound effects. Some people wish they weren't there at all, and some people uh, really enjoy them. And I know when I go back and listen to the show, I'll sometimes like jump around and just skip. And I, I never listen to like a whole show in its entirety that I've done because I've already done it and said it, and I don't need to hear it again. But uh, I, I will sometimes listen afterwards in parts and just jump around. And I do admit when I listen back, I like the parts where there's a sound effect the best like uh yeah i think they're hilarious so anyway that's uh, i'm glad to get the feedback from you and uh, and overall i try to do what the listeners as a whole like and not just necessarily what i like and if if something i'm doing is very unpopular then i don't do it anymore and uh i I, at the same time i know i can't please everyone and you'll have some like I, i had someone message me on the forum that i'd never heard of before but he told me that uh he doesn't like any of the poker stuff. Or no, sorry. He uh, he likes the poker stuff and he likes the the politics stuff, but he doesn't like any of the banter with me and Brandon or any of that type of tangent stuff that that bothers him. And I'm like, that's funny because there's a lot of people who tell me the opposite that that's their favorite part. So I'm like, well, look, there's going to be people who like different parts of this, and there's no way I can please them all. So I just try to include a lot of different things and hope it'll catch as many people as possible. You know, uh, I, I can totally see that. I, I, I happen to enjoy the whole show, even though, um, personally, what does it for me is the poker. And uh, the I, lo- I very much enjoy the politics stuff as well. But uh, I don't know shit about sports. I've never followed sports. I'm 33. I've never 
I've never been into sports a day in my life, so I don't know anything about sports, but I still listen to the banter between you and Brandon just because I enjoy the show so much. So, plus, I don't want to miss any little nuggets because sometimes you guys recap on topics when somebody calls in, you know, there's, you'll, you'll just throw in things randomly. So I don't, I don't want to miss anything. So I listen until the end anyway, even though I don't know what you guys are talking about as far as sports. Yeah. Um, by the way, I'm just curious, uh, how did you hear of the show? Actually, you know, uh, uh, I was, I, I like to go play live a lot. And, uh, when I would play live, I would listen to poker podcasts. I used to frequently listen to, uh, like the two plus two podcast, the thinking poker podcast. I was a fan of that one for a while. Uh, the poker news podcast. And, uh, I, I, I found all those podcasts through, uh, like just a link site. Radio. Have you ever heard of that? Rounders that, radio. Yeah. Re- yeah. I heard about rounders radio. Yeah. I've seen that. And it's just basically a, a link site with, you know, with all the latest poker podcasts. And I saw the Druffin friends, and uh, and I the first episode I listened to was uh, you were talking shit about that show Bullets that it was like a made for YouTube. Oh show. yeah, you remember yeah. that? <laughs> yes. Yeah, and you were like doing the music like do 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 do, and like you were trolling the show, and I I thought it was hilarious. I was like, this guy's great. This is funny. And then uh, I immediately went through all the archives and started listening to all the old shows and uh, got current and. I, uh, I, the very next day, I, my, my Mondays are on Fridays. I come in at Friday at 1 a.m. And ever since then, at Friday at 1 a.m., I do dress with friends right when I come into work. So. Okay. Well, yeah, so this will That's be back in the, got turned on. so this will be in the archives, I don't know, in a, a few hours. I, I don't know if you listen directly or if you use one of those tools like Stitcher or TuneIn, but, uh, I, I, I download the MP3s onto my, either my iPod or my iPhone. Okay, so that's that's pretty. It'll be up there fairly fast. Like that's that's the first thing that pops up there is the MP3 itself. And, oh, cool. Yeah. cool. Yeah. So I just always curious, and I always kind of wonder about. I've seen sites like Rounders Radio that just grab this show and put it up on their site, which technically I never gave them permission to do. And I think legally, if I wanted to, I could tell them to take it down because they're basically <laughs> making money off my content, but. I, I'm fine yeah. with it because I, I want to see it reach as, as big of an audience as possible. So I, I don't give a crap if they want to throw up some affiliate links on the side. I mean, they're, they're, they're giving the show exposure, and uh, so I, I don't object to it. I think Rounders Radio actually originally made their own content. I think that uh, guy, Luke Krieger, who I know died a few years ago, I was once on his show about the UB scandal, and I think, I'm pretty sure that was on Rounders Radio, and that's like where his show aired. But yeah, I think I think when I went there recently, I did see that it looks like it's just rebroadcasting other sites shows, but like whatever way it's found is cool. Like a lot of people time a lot of times people will find this show due to some kind of major story that we happen to be covering that they they're interested in and then they'll like be reading 2 plus 2 and someone will link it to this site where it's being discussed and then they'll discuss the, they'll, they'll discover this show exists or or someone will listen because there's some guest on there that has to do with the current scandal or something like that there's we've picked up a lot of people that way and I'm always happy when I pick up someone that just listens once for a particular reason and then says oh I like this and just keeps listening every day and it it actually seems like to me that I have a a good hold rate as far as when people try to listen for the first time that they tend to stay and listen to other shows, which is good. It's just a matter of kind of getting the word out. That's why I'm, I'm happy that 
to see it on other sites like like Rounders Radio because it helps do that and because you're always losing listeners to any radio show because people will yeah. either get bored of it or just stop listening to these entirely or or have some kind of life situation where they just uh, can't really do this anymore. So you're always losing people, so you've got to gain at the same rate you're losing. And the, the amazing thing is this show seems to be constantly gaining at about the same rate as it loses. So, I don't, so it's been like the same thousand or so listeners, give or take, for a long time. But it's the different people. It's the different thousand people. But it's it's kind of a you lose some and then you gain some others. So, so you're finding a balance. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as long as it stays around there, that's fine. Like I don't, uh, like that's that's fine. I'm very happy to have a thousand people listening every week. So, well, I mean, especially with the hours that you keep, the fact that you're able to sustain that kind of consistent, uh, you know, listenership with. Uh, you know, the, the the different times the show starts. Well, it's not a thousand days, people live. But... It's a thousand people, like, like between the downloads oh, and the live. Yeah, yeah. The no, no, I'm not getting a thousand people okay. live, no. But the, about, uh, most of the listeners are in the archives uh, for the reason that you stated, that they it's usually people going to work that, that want to listen or, or are going to be listening while they're grinding poker. I even once had someone come up to me at the World Series of Poker main event to tell me he was listening to my show right now. He's like, Hey, I guess what I'm listening to right now it shows me it's my show. Like it's someone I didn't know either. So that's killer. So that's that's always interesting. Every year at the World Series, there's someone new who comes up to me. A few new people that tend to come up to me that have been listeners to the show, and I always enjoy that. As long as it's not someone like coming up with a gun to shoot me, that's. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm happy to see you. Like whenever the new person coming up and and introducing themselves, it's like the quick thought. Like I hope it's not someone who's here to kill me. But then. Uh, once we get past that moment, then it's okay, and I'm I'm happy to meet uh, any people who listen to the show and just tell me they listen, and uh, I'm happy to get phone calls from people who tell me they listen, at least over the phone, they can't shoot me, and uh, I'm just happy to know everybody's stories out there of why they listen, how they found it, you know, what they like about it, and, and all that, so I'm, you know, I'm happy you called, I, I just happened to be on for six hours tonight. Actually, it tends, I tend to be on six hours recently for whatever reason. It just keeps, keeps landing between like five and a half and seven hours. Yeah. Right. When I tuned in, I just got into work. I got in a little bit late and then I tuned in and, uh, I was listening for about two or three minutes and I heard you say, well, I, I think the show is winding down now because no one in the chat is talking about the show. They're, they're just talking amongst themselves. So I was like, I never get it. I very rarely get a chance to hear you live anymore. Because uh, <clears throat> I was listening when I played poker, and uh, but I only play poker on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and now the show's on Thursdays. So usually, uh, I'm 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 going. I go to bed at like two or three in the afternoon, so it's very hard for me to to listen live. And, and I don't really like to catch the tail end of shows. Yeah, because uh, I want to. You know, the beginning is where all the juicy stuff is. So I usually just wait, and, you know, for a few hours or until the following day, and then catch you guys in the archives. But uh, since I was catching the tail end, I just kind of wanted to call in. And I've been meaning to do this for a while, but like I said, with my odd hours, it's really hard to catch you uh, on a live broadcast. But I just wanted to call in and voice my appreciation for the show and yeah, thank just you. let you know I'm a big fan. Yeah, I appreciate that. And by the way, uh, you know, I used to have sleeping hours that went all over the place. They're not as much anymore because of, uh, of my son. But mm-hmm. I, I used to have hours, especially when I played a whole lot of online poker, that – 
where I would just really sleep at completely random times. There was no sleeping hours I had. Uh, in fact, this has kind of trained my body to not have any issue when I travel with, with different time zones because I really can just sleep at any time, and it makes it very easy for me to take naps, which is good. But uh, the hours I hated sleeping the most as far as just the hours I would be asleep versus awake, I hated the, like sleeping 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. thing because I just felt like it ate up the, the day. main portion of the day to me. And yeah. that I, like, I'd wake up, and, and most people I knew were asleep from the moment I woke up, and then it would be many hours till they'd be awake. And then during the day, like I'd have to handle anything that required things being open or, or, or you know, calling things, going places that had to be open during the day. I had to go do that when I was tired versus uh, doing it during during the day when when I'm more awake so like uh, like here the end of the day was doing that type of thing and the beginning was kind of just this weird nobody's around everybody's asleep thing from right the moment when I wake up and I was waking up in the dark every time too which is kind of weird as well so I, I I didn't like that I actually preferred the hours I liked sleeping best was like a 4 a.m. to 12 p.m. type thing because I felt I could stay up really late, which I always enjoy doing, and then still wake up at a time where there's a lot of the the daylight hours left. So that that was my preference there. Yeah, it's really a shit schedule, and it's really hard for me personally. I had to, like, tinfoil up my windows because it's just the sun is just beat. I live in an apartment, and the sun is just coming in, you know, at, like, 3 in the afternoon in my apartment, and it's just incredibly hard for me to fall asleep. I actually had to for my windows and now I even wear a sleep mask and sometimes I'll take melatonin because it's just, I, I would like that before too because for the longest time I was, I'm a musician and for years I, uh, yeah, I cultivated and sold marijuana and I didn't work and I just did music and uh, the whole weed thing. So I didn't, I didn't hold down a, a real job from like, you know, 18 to 29. Hmm. So my hours were, and I was playing poker as well from about 25 to 29. And I still play, but more more recreationally now. So I was the same way. Like I could I could fall asleep any time, you know, any hour. Like all my friends and family were on like pretty normalized hours, but I was, you know, I could I could fall asleep just like that. You know, if I was tired, I would just fall asleep. And everyone's like, how can you do that? I would just fall, I would be I would just be at somebody's house and accidentally fall asleep on their couch. <laughs> so. Because you said you were selling uh, marijuana until age 29. Why did you stop four years ago? Did you get in trouble or you just decided to stop doing it? Like what What changed there? You know, I just, uh, I know you're not a Seinfeld fan, but uh, uh, Drexel will know what I'm talking about. And uh, maybe some Seinfeld, Larry David uh, fans out there. There's an episode where George Costanza does the opposite. and uh, And everything in his life starts going better for him. So basically, I, I decided that every decision I made in my life was wrong huh. to end me in the place that I am now. And so, therefore, the opposite would have to be right. Interesting. So I I just, uh, I was, you know, I was lazy. I was, uh, I got really overweight. I was doing the whole vegan, vegetarian thing since I was like 18 to 29. And uh, then I, I met a guy that is like a big time meathead. He's like, goes to the gym and works out and he's like you know you need to you need to start eating meat pussy haven't seen that south park episode where if you don't eat meat you grow the giants all over your body <laughs> and uh and i was like okay so he 
you know, started taking me to the gym with them. We we're, we play music together now. We're in a, we're in a couple of bands together. So, uh, so I started playing music with this guy, going to the gym. Uh, he got me this job. He was also working at the store when he got me the job. He was working loss prevention, and he got me a job in overnight maintenance. And then, uh, you know, on my feet, eight to ten hours a day, going to the gym, changed my diet up, uh, cut out all crap. Uh, not only did I quit selling it, but I quit smoking it. And uh, I don't know, everything just kind of, I, I got another job at the rehearsal studio that uh, we were playing music at, which I worked for about two and a half years, and I quit last year because I got my car. And my my life was a mess. Like, I was just, I was living in my rehearsal studio, and now I have my own apartment. I, I was driving a piece of shit car that was breaking down every other month, and now I have a fucking sweet-ass new 2014 Dodge Challenger, American Muscle Baby. Um, it's just everything just, it just worked. Like the more that I did that was the opposite of my life before, the the better my life improved. You That's know? interesting. Just everything just kind of, yeah, it is really interesting. So, 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 so real you know, life now, actually uh, followed fiction with the, the Seinfeld episode. Yes, it, it, it really did. It was, uh, it was life imitating art and uh, it ended up working out, which is ironic because Seinfeld is generally uh, life uh, the, the other way around. I mean, there's so many, there's so many real life uh, uh, situations that Larry David brought from his own life. Fourth character of George Costanza. I don't think that was one of them, but it's it's kind of interesting how that worked out for me. Yeah. So uh, yeah, the more I did, the opposite. Uh, you know, I, I lost all my weight and uh, got a job and got a new ride, got an apartment, got out of that rehearsal studio and started now I'm playing in more bands than I've ever played. You know, in my life and I kind of had the cart before the horse. I should have been focusing on my life instead of music. And basically, ever since I was 17, all I've done is play in bands and fuck off. I've never been to the East Coast, but I've toured. I've filled in for other bands, and I've toured all over the West. I've played, you know, from here to Texas to Washington to Utah, Nebraska, Nevada, Colorado. And I've been I've been all over the West, but I've never I've never been to the East. But uh, that's something hopefully uh, we'll, well do here in the next year. Yeah, this is interesting getting the the backstories of the listeners. Is I I'm always talking to all of them, but I don't get to really know much about who they are. That's a weird feeling too when I go to uh, at the World Series and someone approaches me and I'm like, hmm, you know what's funny is that this person they've heard so much about me and know so many stories about me and I know nothing about them. It kind of feels weird, but. Uh, here, at least I get to learn something about uh, one of the listeners, which is an interesting story. And and it's good that your life has moved in a positive direction in the last four years rather than uh, a negative one. As, you know, Many people look back you know, four years ago and say, oh, wow, my life was so much better than things went downhill. You've, you've got the opposite where you're, you're looking at all the things that have improved. So that's, that's always a nice feeling. Actually. Uh oh, the one, the one thing that's not improving is the cell phone reception. No, it's 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 kind of breaking up again. I'm not sure why. So, I uh, can't hear you at all. No. Unfortunately, I think we're going to lose you here because you're not uh, coming through. Yeah, I can hear you here. Yeah, that's a little bit right now. Yeah. All right, sorry about that. The store has some dead zones, unfortunately. Um, 
Yeah, I actually just saw some friends uh, yesterday and the day before weekend, so I, I went up north to where I was originally from, fur- further north in California, and, uh, you know, all my friends couldn't believe it. They, you know, they hadn't seen me in two or three years, and, you know, I've lost all this weight, and I got this pimp new ride, and, you know, I'm, uh, I, they didn't even recognize me, so it felt good, and they're, you know, they're kind of, I wouldn't say that they're wrecks, but they're not doing so hot. Yeah. They're kind of on the last, the latter end of what you're just talking about. Their their lives have slowly declined as the years have continued. So it's it, you know I wasn't I wasn't uh I wasn't taking pleasure in that, but I was taking pleasure in the fact that you know I see a lot of people that I went to high school with too, and they're just I mean that they, they look ten years older than they actually are, you know, and everyone everyone comments that. Like you look so young for 33. Like I get mistaken for 25 all the time. Somebody thought I was 23 the other day, which felt that felt great. So, you know, it's it's funny though that you can change very quickly. Uh, I I don't want to uh, make you feel bad here, but you can uh, you can look young for a long time, and then just in a short time, it it can change. This happened to me because so I uh, when I was younger, not even like much younger, but like like somewhat younger, all the way up till I was like 36. Uh, people always thought I was a lot younger than I was. And, uh, and if you look at the bracelet picture of me when I won in 2005, I was 33 there, but, but looked very young. And, uh, and then in my late thirties, then it abruptly changed. And, and it's like, I, I caught up with, with my actual age. And, and then I look back at the old pictures like, ah, oh, man, I look so young then. But, uh, I, yeah, I guess it has to happen at some point and uh, I do notice if I if I have if I have a hat on then people tend to think I'm younger I think I think my hair is doing it somewhat because of losing some hair I think that has affected a little bit but like I I look at pictures like from 10 years ago I know 10 years is a long time but I just go oh man I look so different 10 years ago so at least yeah don't 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 ruin this for me, all right? I, 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 I'm feeling young. I'm looking young. Now, now you've got me tripping. Now I'm like, three years, I'm going to be a mess. Well, yeah, but, you're, and you're 10 years you know, younger than me, too. So, 10 years younger than you? Yep. Well, I figure, you know, I still got my uh, – my father's not doing so hot, but he's really – I mean, he does not take care of himself at all. He's He's – Uh-oh, cut out again. So, he, he's not too bad. Considering considering all the crap that he's done to his body, for being like 65, you know, he still has a full head of hair. He doesn't, he doesn't look bad. Same thing with my mother, even though she doesn't take good care of herself at all. But uh, they don't look too bad for 65. I was A couple years ago, I took my buddy out to, to play poker for his birthday. I bought him in. And we're playing uh, this cash game in Sacramento, and it's his birthday, and we're sitting next to a guy who was also his 31st birthday. He said, "I'm 31 today," and me and me and my buddy double take this guy because we're at the time we're, he just turned 31, and I just turned 31 a couple months before him, and we double triple take this guy because this guy was like a leathery gunny sack, like rosacea, like red and ruddy, and I mean the guy's a mess. He's graying. You know, but he's got a beer in his hand, and you know he's going out every five minutes for cigarette breaks, and you know it's. It, it, I, I couldn't believe the guy was thirty-one. 
Yeah. I was I was like scared shitless. Yeah, I was like, Jesus Christ, am I gonna look like this guy in two years? Yeah, I, I, like I've seen that before too. I've seen I, I especially see it now where I meet people the same age as me, and I think they just look ancient because like I I, I just like I, I don't think I look old for forty three, uh, but I, I think that uh, like when I look at myself ten years ago and I had like this really youthful, uh, like like yeah, still kind of kid like look, and and then that's gone. That is completely gone now. 10 years later, but yeah, 10 years is a long time. And, uh, one thing I can say is that I sound almost exactly the same as I did 25 years ago. So I've heard you say how your voice sounds young because you don't sound like in your, 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 your mid forties or early forties. You don't sound like that at all. You sound like you're about like 29 or something. Yeah. Like I've been, that I've, that's what I've sounded like. I've sounded like I was 29 <laughs> since 25 years ago. And so I actually sounded old for my age when I was 17, and then now I sound young for my age. And it's it's funny. I even hear old recordings of myself, and I go, wow, that's, that's almost the same voice. And there's very, very little change in the last 25 years in how I sound. So I'm, I'm wondering, like, if in another 25 years, when I'm 68, if I'll still sound the exact same, and people won't believe that I'm 68 on the phone. But uh, – <laughs> or the air, yeah, or the, or the radio. Like they're not going to believe it. But yeah, that's. I, I guess that's one good thing I can say. I, I just wonder, like, eventually, like it's going to change. Like, will I ever have like the old man voice, or will I always sound the same for the rest of my life till I die? I might. Who knows? So. Well, my my dad's voice didn't change uh, from. He sounds the same to me as you know when he was in his like early thirties as he does now at like sixty five. So. He's not, and you know, and he's smoked a pack a day since as far back as I can remember. So, uh, and his voice is not like a, a, a raspy, like tracheotomy sounding voice or anything like that. So that's, that's pretty surprising. Yeah. One thing that used to actually hurt me back, back when I was 17, I was calling up party lines and meeting girls on there who were my age. And they didn't believe I was 17. They thought that, I, so you sound like you're in your late 20s. You're one of these old perverts who's trying to hit on teenage girls. And I'm going, no, I swear I'm born in 1972 just like you. And they, they didn't believe me. So th- that was disappointing. So. Yeah, tell me about it. I was I was a fat kid. I was, I was fat for most of my life. So I would meet girls over the phone and, uh, and everything would be fine over the phone, and then they would be extremely disappointed when they would meet me. Miraculously, I still did pretty well in my early 20s because of the whole band and weed thing. Okay. You know, uh, um, the selling weed and being in a band can cancel out many uh, shortcomings as far as aesthetics. Well, but okay, so, so when, that, you, when you met girls over the phone uh, back when you were younger, uh, did, did you tell them that you were overweight before meeting them? No, of course not. Well, that's what killed you there. See, I, I always just was up front – like I – you know, when I was meeting girls over the phone back then, like I didn't have a gotcha thing like that I had to tell them, but like I would just tell them like just factually what I look like and uh, uh, I wouldn't give any opinion. I wouldn't say, oh, I'm a good looking guy or anything like that. I, I, would just, I would just state, you know, I'm, I'm this height, I'm this weight, I have brown hair. Like I'd go through that whole thing and then uh, I'd be truthful about it. But, but I, if I was overweight or whatever at the time, like I would have been honest about it because I would have been afraid that this would have happened, that they would meet me and then see something they weren't expecting and, and it would kill it. So that's, uh, 
that's right. That's where I think the problem was. I think if you if you had established a connection with them over the phone and they really liked you, and then at some point you broke it to them, hey, you know, uh, I just want to let you know I'm, I'm overweight, so you know, I hope, hope you're okay with that. Some girls actually probably would have like talked themselves into being okay with it and said, well, I like him so much. Otherwise, I'm not going to worry about the fact that he's fat. So. Uh, yeah, I'm a good conversationalist. I, I've heard you say in the past that you're a good conversationalist, and I feel like I, I definitely hit home runs over the phone. And then, I mean, it worked out a couple of times, but the ones that I really wanted to work out didn't end up working out, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So the, you know, the, the really hotter ones that, that I ended up, uh, you know, I was talking about this with my other buddies that I was hanging out with the other day. It's like the way I used to meet, you know, it's so much easier to meet people with social media and social networking, even though I'm anti-social networking. It, but it feels like before when it was just the phone, it was so easy to meet people. You get, you, I would just get girls' numbers from other girls, and then it would be this, like, this chain of a girl's number from another girl's number, and then they have three friends, and it was, just, it was, it was crazy. It, it felt like it was so much easier back in the day. I don't know. I, maybe that's an age thing where, where it's just so much people are so much at that age are so much more uninhibited and you know, no one has responsibilities. Now every girl that's my age is looking to like get engaged and have children and, and that's something I'm never gonna do. No really. So like I so. actually thought of this not too long ago. I thought about like what if I was younger and and if I like I was looking to meet girls and I was a young guy now instead of being forty three, um, how would I approach it? And I thought, well I'd probably be doing it through some sort of uh, social media thing or something like that, but but it's different now. And I th- I was thinking, would I have a harder time now? Even though there's a lot more girls to choose from, there's way more girls on this stuff now than there was a long time ago. Uh, would it actually be harder for me because the place where I did the best was once I got them on the phone? I, I th- that would be harder now because everyone just wants to like text, and and also people are using apps now like like Tinder where you don't really get a chance to talk before. Uh, you, know, you you either get your foot in the door or, or you don't right away. You don't get to talk and, and influence them that way. So I'm like, I, I was wondering if even with a much lesser quantity of girls out there that I I, I could encounter through uh, the telephone or through uh, the early form of, of being online, if that was actually better for me than than what the situation would have been today because uh, because no one really talks on the phone anymore, at, at least of young people. That's true. That's very true. So, like everybody, I'm yeah, oh, sorry. Go on. No, you go ahead. Yeah. So, I so that's I was thinking of that, and I thought, well, maybe the the sheer numbers, though, of just like way more being out there now, would cancel it out. And I'll, you know, I could still get on the phone. It's not like the phone doesn't work anymore. So I was, I was like thinking of all that. Now, I'd never know the answer anymore. Number one, I'm not uh, single, and I haven't been in many years. And and two, I'm I, even if I were to be, uh, I'm not young, and I'll never be young again. So. It would be a different story. So I, I was just thinking about that, whether it would have been better or worse, like dating-wise, if, if I was born later. And I, I couldn't really come up with an answer. But I, I know exactly what you're saying there. And, and as I got older, actually, with like the phone, like meeting girls over the phone, like I got better and better at like the batting average I had with like meeting in person went up so high it was almost a 1,000. Like it was almost where... Uh, like almost every time I could guarantee at least a short-term success because I was got really good at feeling out whether it was going to work or not. And then if it wasn't, I, I could just drop it quickly. And the ones I would actually choose to meet, I got a really good feel if it was going to work or not. And, 
where, where I like when I was like 17, it was it, I didn't have as good of a feel and met some where it really had no chance. So like that was that was even more encouraging as as uh, I, I started to expect just every time, at least in the short term, it's going to work. And, and, it, and it did for the most part as I got older and more experienced with it. Yeah, that's yeah. I've been out of all this stuff for a while. I know there's the, all these apps people use and all the other stuff now, and like I know about them, but since I've never used them, it's like a whole different world. Yeah, see, I've never used those either because that's kind of one of my opposite things. Is before uh, I was, especially during the band years, because there was a brief time there. Uh, I'm not vegan anymore, but I was for uh, when I was twenty, uh, about thirty. I started eating meat again and animal products, but from from 19 to, you know, 29, right around 19, I dropped a ton of weight really fast because of the whole vegan vegetarian thing. And then eventually put it back on by being lethargic and eating way too many carbohydrates. And, uh, and then when you're, when you're vegan and vegetarian, like when your body becomes dependent on uh, too many carbo, like too many refined carbohydrates, refined carbohydrates spike your insulin levels. So when I was spiking my insulin levels all the time, when they would drop, I would think that I would have the sweet tooth. So I started drinking a lot of soda and like eating a lot of like sweet foods, a lot of fruit, a lot of like like vegan sweet snacky cookie, like a bunch of crap. Like I just started eating crap and then I started getting fat again because I'm, my body was the, the insulin levels were dropping in there saying you need to spike these insulin levels so we can get this energy going again. And so, but I thought I was just like craving sweets. And I've had other vegetarian friends who had the same problem. They're like, I always have a sweet tooth. I always have a sweet tooth. And I went and saw a doctor and a dietitian, and they were uh, telling me, well, it's probably because your blood sugar is crashing all the time and you're, you're trying to re-spike it. So you think you have a sweet tooth, but it's actually your, your blood sugar crashing. So, so I, I lost a bunch of weight uh, around 19 to 22. And then after like 26, put it all back on and more from 26 to like 30. And then right around 30 is when everything, you know, I became the opposite and it all, it all went great. Mm-hmm. So in between, in between that and the whole band thing and then, you know, the, the marijuana thing, I, I actually had quite a bit of success with the ladies. And uh, that's kind of one of my opposite things now is I, I led a very uh, debaucherous and promiscuous lifestyle where I, I got involved with a lot of really nice girls and then I would just completely ignore them, like disappear off the face of the earth. It stopped answering to their text messages, stopped replying to their calls and their voicemails. I just would cut off all contact with them. And I mean, nice girls, good people that I, you know, I basically just used. And uh, I feel like shit about, I was talking about this with my buddy that I was telling you earlier about when we were talking about how easy it was to meet girls back then. I, I did a lot of, you know, fucked up shit that I shouldn't have done. And that's kind of one of my opposite things now is if, if I'm going to meet a girl, I want to meet a nice girl and, I don't, I'm not looking to get married or have kids, but I'm also not looking to do what I was doing before, just be reckless and, you know, promiscuous and just, uh, you know, all that stuff. I feel like that's, uh, that was for my early and mid twenties and, you know, I'm kind of done with all that. So, yeah, I mean, as, as I got older, I kind of felt that way too. I kind of felt that it just, uh, it started feeling pointless and kind of depressing to do that. And I just, uh, there, there were actually a number of times where you know, I, I was single in my thirties where I, I I could have met a girl and, and had sex with her and you know, like I knew it was someone I wouldn't want to be with in the long or even short short yeah. medium term and I was like 
uh, like I just didn't want to do it. It just didn't. It just kind of felt depressing to me. I just didn't do it. Like I made an excuse and just didn't go. So like, like I didn't flake on anyone, but I just kind of made an excuse and just like didn't continue with it. And like I, I, I realized it was kind of just the whole thought of that was kind of just getting old and kind of just getting depressing to me. And I, I kind of just wanted to more meet girls that I actually liked beyond just uh, the physical and someone I really would yeah. enjoy spending time with. And, uh, and and that's why when I made contact again after 16 and a half years with, with who was going to become Benjamin's mom, uh, it was someone that I had known from a long time ago that I had always wondered what would have happened if we had been involved. And then here was the chance now we could actually really do it. And, and like, I, I knew this and I talked to her on the phone three weeks before we even saw each other again. And, and by then I was really convinced, oh, this is someone like I really want to meet. So, uh, anyway. Yeah. And I think, no, I think it would be harder too to, 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 to socially network and try to even, even if you weren't looking to just get tail, you're actually looking to cultivate a serious relationship. I don't think women, they're very leery about that kind of stuff. Like what, a few uh, months ago, you did that that show about that site where, uh, what is it, married people? Oh, Ashley see, Madison, yeah. Yes, yes. And even, you know, not just that site, but a lot of these sites, I think there's just a lot of fake profiles, you know, because I know guys that use those sites and, uh, you know, I've come, my friend has told me about, what is that, tagged or, or, or Tinder? What is that, that one? Well, Tinder's the where one you where you, just, you like swipe a, either like way to, site. yeah, it's like you swipe either way to to pick someone you're seeing there. Yeah, that's Tinder. And this guy, this, this is a good looking guy. You know, he's not, he doesn't even need a, a social networking uh, site to meet women. And uh, he says it's, it's just all a bunch of fake, it's all a bunch of fake shit. I feel like there's not a lot of, you know, women are very leery about that kind of stuff. I think you're almost better off meeting a girl on something like Facebook as opposed to a site that's actually for hookups because only guys are really looking for hookups, Wait. especially, you know, in this in the, this age category. I mean, I'm sure there are some, you know, you know, promiscuous women out there that are looking for uh, hookups, but those are fewer and far between as opposed to the men that are just looking for it. You know, I, fi- I think I figured out I was I was wondering this myself, like like how is Tinder working for so many people if there's so few women that just want to go online and just get laid like there just aren't that many. And there's way, way, way more guys. So like, how is this happening? So I, I, I realized this like I, I the way I realized this was there were some girls who were on my Facebook. They were like talking about Tinder and I was very surprised from who it was like there were certain ones that I didn't picture as the type who's just going to hook up with random guys. So I asked like, why are you using this? And they're like, Oh no, 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 I'm not doing this to get laid. I'm just using it to get dates. And I said, what? And they're like, yeah, well that I use that for dating. <laughs> then I can, like, I can see the guy, I can see if I'll be attracted to him. And, you know, it's, it's an easy way to meet people. And I'm like, don't you understand that the guys using this are just looking to get laid? And they're like, yeah, but I don't have to have sex with them if I don't like him. And like, I, I, I thought it was so strange. I'm like, oh, I see now. So the guys are using it just to get laid, and the girls are using it thinking they're just getting dates. And then if they like the guy they meet anyway, then they probably have sex with them. So like, they're kind of approaching it from two different ways, but it still ends up with a lot of sex occurring anyway. So I, that, that's what I realized was happening here, and that's why it started to make sense to me. Yeah, and the guy just figures he's like, oh, a few dates, and then I sleep with her, and then I ignore. Right, well, so, yeah, a lot of times it's one date too. The guy will still get what he wants. Yeah, a lot of times it's one date, so that's a, that's yeah, even yeah, that's, that's even true, easier. That's true. So yeah, that that's what it is. That's I was wondering that too. At first, I'm like, this is never going to work because I had remembered 
uh, being in chat rooms, and there were very few girls there that would just outright come on and say, hey, I want to have sex, you know, who, like who, who, which guy wants to uh, meet up and have sex? Like just about none had that attitude. And in fact, guys that would approach them with outright sexual conversation would get immediately rejected. Like even the girls who yeah. would sleep with you on the first night, you couldn't approach them that way. You'd have to approach them normally and just talk normally and not about sex at all for a little time. And then eventually it would transition into that. But it would, if you'd come out with that right away, you'd fail every time. So I, I couldn't understand how there's an app where basically that's what everybody's doing. And then, then I came to understand by talking to a few girls on my Facebook who mentioned they were using it. And they all said the same crap about they're just using it for dates. And I go, ah, that's it. That's what. So, all righty. Well, thank you for calling. I think I'm going to end this here now. Now we're getting close to seven hours. <laughs> so. Yeah, I should probably uh, I should probably do some work. Yeah, I should do I'm some doing work. Some kind of the easier stuff right now yeah, while we're talking, but uh, yeah, you actually yeah, you're, you're getting actually get to it. You're getting paid to talk to me here. I should get some of the money. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. I'll, I'll, I'll maybe I'll do. I can't promise this, but I'll, I'll try and donate to the free roll. How much is an hour worth of your time? No, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't worry about that. Just you know, if you want to donate at some point, uh, you you can. Uh, you don't have to feel obligated to. And I, I was just kidding about owing me money, but. Uh... <laughs> well, I'm, I, I'm not sure, you know, because I know you are Jewish. Yeah, that's where you cue the lap track. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't have it here. I'll, I'll do this just for you here. The, the laugh track that you love so much. Fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's killer. Big fan of the laugh track. Don't ever, don't ever ditch it. All right. So one vote for the laugh track, and uh, thank you for your call. Oh, thanks for, uh, thanks for uh, uh, humoring me and talking to me while I'm on my lunch or while I'm on uh, my work shift. All right. Appreciate so, everything you do, Drew. All right. Enjoy it and enjoy the archives right. tonight when I get it up there. Thank you. Talk all to right. you soon. Goodbye. That's a new listener. Didn't want to give his name, but from the Sacramento area, who. I ended up having a long conversation with for whatever reason, probably because it's late. But I, I like learning about our listeners. So uh, one of the listeners in chat, Gut, who also posts on the forum, stated that, uh, I guess it's kind of a backhanded compliment, that I would do better in the text-based environment of today than in the phone-based environment of the past because I, I come off better in my writing than how I would sound on the phone he was saying but I don't think that's true because I always got a really 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 good reaction over the phone that's always where I did my best and I, I don't think I'm that much different now in the way I write and communicate online which which isn't bad but I, I just felt like the phone always did better for me but that's Gut's opinion chat room but as i said i don't have to worry about this stuff anymore so i don't really care anyway we'll be back next week on thursday night which will be on november 12th around 7 30 pacific time and it's so dark all of a sudden at five o'clock it starts to get pretty dark sunsets even before five in most of the country now Los Angeles experiencing winter all of a sudden after an extended summer that lasted all throughout October. November comes and it's instant winter. Or at least winter by L.A. standards. So it gets dark. 
gets wintry. It's kind of weird. I'd like to thank the last caller. I'd like to thank uh, Team MLK for even appearing for a short time on the show. And everybody texted me, everybody talking in the chat and whatever, and getting me through this almost seven-hour show. And I have no idea how I spent this much time talking about the stuff I did, but that's always the way I feel when this thing's over. I'll get this up in the archives soon. Remember the call the listen number and the 24-7 reruns on Poker Fraud Alert. Talk to you later. Shalom.